Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Jeff from the Icebox Radio Theater welcoming you to the 12 Plays of Christmas. Special presentation uh, we're doing this year, a very long-form podcast. If you haven't noticed, if uh, you thought the download took a little while, it did, uh, because this single file, this single podcast episode encompasses 12 plays, our 12 best holiday plays that I thought it'd be fun to just kind of have uh, have going in the background when you go through your family activities, open gifts, have the meal, whatever. Uh, there's uh, just about every type of play here. We've got some comedy, we've got some classics, stories that are very familiar, and we've got some brand new original ones as well. Uh, if you uh, missed a single play and would like to find it later, just go to the Very Icebox Christmas podcast in which all of these episodes reside and... Uh, pick it out if you'd like to listen to that but whatever the case we're gonna we're gonna start things off with number 12 on the countdown and number 12 is uh probably the only one here that was a direct parody of a familiar play it's or familiar movie i should say because it's entitled it's a borderland life goes back to 2013 uh when jim yunt and steve wendells autumn silvers karen schickel sorry vicky vicky olsen and many many others got together uh, to do a Northland version of It's a Wonderful Life. Interesting to note, this uh, this presentation actually had two versions. One was recorded in studio, that's the one we're going to hear right now, uh, but the other was actually done in front of the First Lutheran Church as part of the entertainment for their Christmas party that year. Uh, but I think the studio version, frankly, came out a little bit better, so we're just going to go ahead and go with that. So, 12 plays of Christmas, let's kick things off now with the very first play, number 12 in our countdown, It's a Borderland Life, from the Icebox Radio Theater. This is a story about our town. The story begins at Christmas time. But, of course, you probably knew that, this being Christmas time and all. You probably know the story, too, being as there are only so many Christmas stories to go around. There's the Rudolphs and the Frosties, and then there's the story of the baby Jesus, of course, but this is that other kind of story, the Ebenezer Scrooge kind. Uh, But it isn't a Christmas carol. No, this is a story that takes place right here in the little town of Icebox, Minnesota. Winter comes hard to this part of the world. Some years it gets a two-month head start on Christmas. But people learn to depend on each other up here. We're miles away from any other towns, miles away from Target and Best Buy and the malls. So you get to know your neighbor here. Morning, George. Morning, Mrs. Gunderson. Take that man there, George Bjornson. When he graduated from Icebox High back in the day, he was the smartest one of the bunch. Opening up the building alone early, I see. Yeah, yeah, uh, well... Couldn't wait to get out of town when he was young. College in the East, maybe a summer traveling Europe. Then he was going to head out to California and find the next big thing in Silicon Valley. And then, George Bjornson was gonna be rich. Opening up the building alone early every day. But I bet you already know what happened. George's father ran a small loan company, helping people build cabins and hunting shacks and such. His father had been running it for years, and it put food on the table, mostly. But there was never a lot left over. Right after George went off to school... Well, you just can't make it right now, George, with with mother's surgery, and I'm not getting any younger. 
But I've only been in school a year, Dad. I, I, I know, but if you could just come home for a year, I, I know we can get back on our feet by then. But of course, it wasn't a year. It was three, and then another three, and then... I'm sorry, George, but Mother would do so much better down in Arizona. It's all right, Dad. Uh, you two go ahead. You've earned it. You, you can do whatever you want with the business, George. It's yours now. Sell it if you like. In, invest in that company you were looking at. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. But of course he didn't, because by that time things had changed. The new librarian had come to town. Mr. Bjornson, you have $7 in late fees. Really? That's terrible. I can waive them this time, but... Oh, no, no, don't do that. Uh, I wouldn't want you to be an accessory after the fact. Well, there's no reason to make fun of me. They're just library books, but you really need to get them back in on time. This title here has four people on the wait list. Four people, huh? Well, I'll have to make it up to them somehow. And to you, too. Ma make it up to me? Uh, yes. Uh, how about dinner? Dinner? Well, yeah, what do you say? There's a new Mexican place in town. Well... What about the other four people? Ah, they can come for flan and coffee. So, George and Mary went out for dinner. And by and by... Followed fairly closely by... Which, as you can imagine, turned into... Which, more or less, brings us up to the present. The kids have grown, of course. Three boys and a girl, the oldest about 12 now. The boys all play hockey, which is expensive, and the daughter is a figure skater, which makes hockey look cheap. So George goes to the building and loan every day early. Uh, I, I gotta fix this place up somehow. No sense in locking the door if you can kick it in. About that building and loan... George's father started the business back when some of the first really big lake homes started going up. He figured if normal people didn't have a way to finance their cabins and shacks, pretty soon all the shore and good hunting land would be snatched up by folks from out of town, even out of state. <sighs> of course, times were better then. There was money in the town to buy things like hunting shacks and lake homes. Now, well, now things are different. Yarnson? Are you in there? I'm right here, Mrs. Potter. Well, maybe I'll just let the two of them tell this part of the story. I bet you can figure out who's in there with George now. So, Mrs. Potter, to, to what do I owe the honor? Don't be flippant, boy. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Potter. I I'm in a bad mood. What can I do for you? I came by to see if you've thought about my offer. Yeah, I've been thinking about it. Good, good. And you're ready to do the sensible thing. Well, I, I talked it over with Mary, and we, uh, that is to say, well, it's a very, it's a very generous offer. Generous? It's an understatement. The oil fields of North Dakota are the only growth industry in this wretched economy, and I want to put you in charge of mine starting at 85000 a year. What is there to think about? Just the family business. What family? Your folks took off for Arizona years ago. And didn't your father tell you you could sell if you wanted to? Uh, yes. Besides, the Bjornsson building and loan can easily be folded into my holdings. I'll give you better than fair market value for it. So you'd keep it open? What do you care? You'll get a fair price and a new life out in God's country. I know your wife has been bugging you for that new kitchen. Well, well how would you know... My manager down at Potter Hardware said she's been in mooning over the kitchen designs. Apparently, she's fond of chrome. She is? 
Well, she doesn't bug me about it. Of course. But you'd love to give her a new kitchen, wouldn't you? Yeah. And the boys, they probably need new skates every year. Well, we try to get by with just one new pair per year and, and then hand them down. And your girl and her skating? None of it's cheap, George. Yeah, it still wouldn't be cheap in North Dakota, either. No, but there'd be more money. Come on, George. All you've ever wanted was to get out and see the world. Here's your chance. Well, ma'am, when I dreamed of seeing the world, uh, the oil fields in North Dakota weren't really on my list. Oh, confound it, George. You're the most stubborn boy I've ever met. Why don't you just do the smart thing for once in your life? Well, now that's a little harsh. It's that rabble that comes through your door every week, isn't it? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean by rabble. Rabble! Rabble! What, you, you mean Grimace from the McDonald's commercials? No. What? No! I'm talking about that bunch of lazy old mill hands who always want a better piece of land or a better boat. Now, you hold on there. You know what the problem with this country is, George? The working class treats a lake home like it's a right and not a privilege. There was a time in this country when you had to build yourself up to have some of these things. You had to be somebody. Only the best people lived out on the lake. Well, I'm sorry, Mrs. Potter, but I feel the best people still do live out on the lake. And folks can't save enough now to have some of these things, not if they have both kids in school or parents who need them. This building alone helps people get a little slice of paradise while they can still enjoy it. And, and all the mansions you're building out on the lake, well, you know, they need me if they're going to afford so much as a rowboat. That's as it should be. The poor in town, the rich in the country. Well, you're entitled to your opinion. Oh, George, don't you see? I'm offering you a chance to be rich. Work for me for 10, 15 years and you can retire early. You could build a mansion on the shore. You'd be one of the good people. I'm sorry, ma'am, but my answer is no. Why are you so stubborn? Because... People depend on me. Well, that was George. Of course it wasn't really all bad. He wasn't in the business by himself. Uncle Willie, his father's original partner, was still around. I tell you, George, it's the latest thing. Cell phones for dogs. They fit right on the collar. Of course, Uncle Willie was what you might call eccentric. All I need is just one more payoff on this investment unless, well... You wouldn't happen to have any spare cash, would you, George? Oh, gee, I I'd like to, Uncle Willie, but winter's coming on and the furnace is making that noise again. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right, my boy. Don't worry about it. Uh, you have your family to think of. Maybe, uh, maybe just 200? Well, uh, I, I suppose I, oh, I could. Oh, thank you uh, so much, my boy. You won't regret it. I'll make you majority stockholder. You mean you own this company? I will, I will. Now, if I could just find that fellow's phone number. That was Uncle Willie. Always a scheme cooking. In a way, he was the most important part of our story because he made the whole thing happen. It happened like this. One afternoon, just a few days before Christmas, Willie came driving into town from the lake in his old pickup truck. The back was loaded down with coolers. For a change, one of Willie's schemes had come through and he was feeling fine. He had just one thing to take care of at the bank before he went to tell George... I would like to cash this check for $25, please. Very good, sir. Say, where's that sour old boss of yours? I'd like to say hello. I'm sorry, Mrs. Potter is in conference, sir. In conference? Probably back there counting foreclosure notices if I know her. Wait, wait, I hear her wheelchair now. Hello, William. Mrs. Potter, how are you this fine day? Been drinking again, I see. 
No, as a matter of fact, but I have every intention of celebrating just as soon as I finish my errand. And this fine young man here gives me my cash. Really? Well, that isn't much of a surprise. Oh, you think I'm just going to get a snootful, don't you? No, no, no. This is a real celebration. Do you see that truck out there? What is that abomination doing parked in front of my bank? It's making me rich is what it's doing. You see what's in the back? Garbage. Ah, to the naked eye, perhaps. But what that garbage contains is row upon row of the most beautiful walleye fillets you've ever seen in your life. Hundreds of them, fresh as you can get. They were all swimming this morning. So it's fish for dinner for the next month. Bully for you. Oh, no, no, no. You don't understand, Mrs. Potter. I have an associate willing to pay top dollar for that load. There's nearly $10,000 worth of fish in my pickup. And all I had to do was pay Pig-Eyed Johnson $3,000 to get them. Wait a minute. Aren't there laws against possession of that many walleye fillets? Oh, uh, well, I didn't actually fish for them myself. And old Pig-Eye caught a lot of them standing on his own dock on his own property. Those don't count. I see. Where did you get the 3000 by the way? From the old building and loans account right here. And your nephew George agreed to this. Oh, uh, George, well, he's, um, he's not the one who usually invests on behalf of the company. Hmm, I see. And like I said, we're going to triple our investment, so, uh, no reason to tell George about any of this. Hmm. Willie, I believe I underestimated you. You did? Well, this fish caper of yours is quite an achievement. I'm impressed. Well, I wouldn't be. Uh, it's not exactly legal. Well, that's what impresses me. What would you say if you and I stepped next door and had a drink? I'm going to do just that, Mrs. Potter, once I make this delivery. Oh, pish posh. I imagine you have plenty of ice in there. The fish aren't going anyplace. Well, no, but uh, I really think I And should... I'm buying. Mrs. Potter, I've always said you are the very soul of generosity, and I would be remiss to pass up even one moment in your company. Run along now, Willie. Order me a nice glass of port, or whatever passes for it, and I'll be there shortly. Ah, uh, task to my liking, madam. I don't mind saying so. Away, away to the cups, dear friends. You there. Yes, Mrs. Potter. Did you give that man his $25? Of course. What's this envelope there on the counter? He must have forgotten it. Of course. And if I don't miss my guess... Mm-hmm. These are his car keys underneath it. I'm going next door to have a drink with that fool. You see these keys? Yes, ma'am. Wait about 20 minutes. He'll have a snootful by then, then go take that pickup and drive it around back to my private garage. Make sure the door's closed so no one can see. Do you have any problem with that? No, ma'am. believe a person would do such a thing and at Christmas time yet but that's what happened Mrs. Potter and Uncle Willie were there in the bar for about an hour and when he came out to find his truck missing he did everything he could to find it but it was all for naught so Uncle Willie went to the only place he could think of for help George's house but George George did not handle it well George, come back! Uncle Willie. What's wrong with him, Mary? He's just marching away like that. Is he mad? Well, maybe a little. Oh, I'll make good on the money. I said I will. I know, I know. Come inside, Uncle Willie. I said I'll make good on it and I will. You think I won't, but I will. Of course, Uncle Willie. Just come inside now, please. Willie was right about one thing. George was mad. Furious, even. Here he had put all this time and effort into the business, into the town, and what did he have to show for it? 
What Willie didn't know is that the 3000 he was going to lose on this fish caper was the last $3,000 the building and loan had. They were broke. Couldn't even pay next month's rent, which, incidentally, was owed to Mrs. Potter. And for George, all of this was pushing him just about to his limit. It had been snowing pretty hard for quite a while by then. George walked around town, down one street and up another. He even went out to the lake and looked at some of the beautiful houses Mrs. Potter's customers had built and thought about the offer she'd made. Eventually, he found himself on the dock by the shore, just down from a little tavern where some people were toasting the holidays and others just drowning their sorrows. That, incidentally, is just about the point where I come in. I found George sitting on the dock. Stupid, ridiculous old man. Muttering to himself. $3,000 for fish. For fish! Unbelievable! Oh, oh, this just about does it. Uh, This about does it once and for all. I I don't need to stick around this godforsaken town and and keep taking this. That's it. We're going. And I'm never looking back. Hard to do that. Whoa, whoa. Uh, you startled me. Oh, sorry, this seat taken? It's a public dock. Thank you. So, what are we doing? I'm just out for a walk. Nice night for it. Snow will stop soon and a little bit of a moon will come out. Maybe. Nothing like the moon on the lake in wintertime. I've seen it enough to last me a lifetime. I've seen more of this town than I care to remember. Well... You say that now. I mean, what's the sense of staying here when it's just one thing after another? There are other places, aren't there? I mean, people move. They do. And you know what else? I'll tell you. Mrs. Potter is right. She is? Yep. There's no law that says everyone deserves a cabin. you got to earn these things. I suppose. My dad ran the building alone for years, and he helped people buy all kinds of things for themselves. And what did it get him? Uh, the house in Arizona? It's a trailer. And they've got ants. Oh. Say, how did you know about my dad? Oh, I know a lot of things about you, George. How did you know my name was George? I didn't tell you. I don't think I've seen you around town before. Oh, you wouldn't have seen me, but I was here. I know everything there is to know about you. I know, for example, that you are just about at the end of your rope. I could have told you that. No, I don't think you could have. What? Look, George, you've been moping around here for months, trying to decide whether or not you should just give up and move, right? How do you know that? Never mind how I know. I'm right, aren't I? Well, okay, let's say you're right. So what? So what? So you're going to do it this time. You're not just talking. I know for a fact that if you get up off this dock without reconsidering, you're going to leave this town and never come back. In a couple of months, it will be like you never even were here. What's the big deal? So I was never here. So what? Things are going to go on just the way they always have. Nothing's going to change. Potter will still own everything. People will still want to get out and enjoy the lake and the woods and let them go to her to finance it all. And you think she'll give them a fair rate? What do I care if she does or not? Nothing around here really changes. It's just the same year after year. So you think your being here made no difference, eh? I just said that, didn't I? You just don't understand how many lives you've changed, George. You can't see what an impact you've had. Yeah, well, what did it ever get me? Maybe I should go have an impact in North Dakota for a while. It won't be the same. They only have about a dozen trees in the whole state, you know. And don't forget, you'll be working for Mrs. Potter. Nah, that doesn't matter. 
Hmm, much. Come on, get up. What? Where are we going? We're going to go around town, George. Eh, you go. I've seen it. No, I really don't think you have. Hey, what happened to Woody's? It's all dark. Come and see. Well, that's the craziest thing. They were open just a minute ago. That's not what the sign in the window says. It says for sale, and it's dark. There's no bottles behind the bar either. Oh, when did they decide to pull out? Oh, about three years ago. What? No, that, that's crazy. They were open just tonight. I was thinking about grabbing a drink myself. Woody put up that sign and headed south three years ago. Still living in a little apartment, hoping someone will buy this place so he can move on. Well, that's... That's that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Well, keep walking, George. There's a whole main street for you to see. No, I, I gotta get home. I, I need to sort out this mess with Uncle Willie. Main street is right on the way. Come on. Well, well that's funny. What, Wilson's Hardware? Uh, yeah, Pete told me he was going to stay open late until Christmas, and this place looks like it's boarded up. No, he's still open. Four days a week, anyway. The boards are because he had some windows broke during the burglary last month. What burglary? We haven't had a burglary in Icebox for four years. And that was just some kids breaking into garages. Whatever you say, George. I remember one of them was that Kyle boy. I, I used to coach him in peewees. He was a pretty good goalie then. Uh, Mr. March was hired to defend him, and, and he asked me to speak on his behalf, and I gave an affidavit and everything. No, you didn't, George. Those burglaries went unsolved. Budget cuts at the police department... They didn't think they were important enough to investigate. Uh, no, no, they were solved. They caught Kyle and two other boys, and, you know, Kyle admitted everything, and they gave him leniency. No, they didn't, George. What are you talking about? He didn't need leniency because he didn't get caught. Uh, that time. That's not right. Kyle got himself squared around after that. He's in technical college down in Hibbing, I think. That young man is in Stillwater Penitentiary, doing ten years for armed robbery. You were never there to help that boy, George. So for him, things turned out a lot different. I wasn't... What are you saying? You weren't there to help him. No, of course I was. I, I went to Mr. March's office and... Look, it, it, it's right here, up on the top floor of that... What the... The building where lawyer Marsh had his office burned down a year ago. No, no, I was just there. I, I brought him some papers last week. The building was empty, George. William Marsh never came to town because there was no work for lawyers here. Sad thing about that building. The owner tried to burn it down for the insurance, but they caught him. He's in prison, too. What did you say your name was? Clarice Oddbody, A-S-C. Clarice Odd... Sure it is. You don't believe me? Uh, probably. Uh, maybe. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't care. I, I don't care about you or anyone else in this town. It's the oil fields for me. That's so. Yeah. My, this isn't going as easily as it did that other time. What? Never mind. George, look around this town. Don't you see how different it is? I don't have time. I have to go tell my wife. We're headed for the prairie. Your wife's not there, George. What did you say? I said your wife's not there. She's not at home. All right, you know what? This isn't funny. This isn't funny anymore. Whoever you are, I'm going home. You have no home. You have no life. Whatever. Look around you. Main Street is dark. Buildings that should be there are gone. The whole town has changed. Here, look at this. 
The gate to the mill is locked. Well, so what? So did you ever see these no trespassing signs? Did you ever see the mill that dark? Nothing coming out of the smokestacks at all? It's not locked, George. It's shuttered. The mill went under five years ago. What? The men who kept this mill going, second, third generation, some of them, they moved out one by one. And do you know why? You're lying. They moved out because they could find something better somewhere else. Another mill in another town where they could afford nice things for their families. They moved on because all the best land here was being bought up. They didn't want to do it, George. It wouldn't have taken much for them to stay. Just someone to help them. You're saying I didn't help them? I'm saying you weren't here to help them. And because you weren't here, they aren't either. No. No? No, none of it happened. Look with your own eyes, George. I am looking, and none of it makes any sense. I'm going to turn around and head back to my house so I can give my wife the good news. Well, you can head back to your house, but I don't think you'll like what you find. Don't worry about that. Just don't follow me, understand? Leave me alone. Well, that's hardly the Christmas spirit, George. Just don't follow me. And of course, I didn't. George looked plenty mad, and I knew where he was going anyway. Mary! Mary, where are you? He went down to the small house on Sycamore Street, where he and Mary and the kids had lived for years. Only there was a foreclosure notice on the door, and all the windows were boarded up. Mary! What's happened? Where are you? She's not here, George. Keep away from me, Clarice. I, I, I told you not to follow me. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Yeah, I, I get it. This is what the world would be like without me, is it? But this isn't the movies. This isn't the way life really works. Isn't it? One man's life really does touch all the others around him, George. That might seem sappy to you, but it doesn't make it any less true. Well, I don't believe it. Look with your own eyes. I, I won't. I, I don't need to. I know what's happening. I, I know what's going on. This town is dying, and I'm getting my family out while it getting's good. This town isn't dying. It's already dead. It's dead because you weren't here to keep it alive. That's crazy. Is it? All I did was run a little business. Well, from where I sit, George, that little business made a big difference. Mary, I, I gotta talk to Mary. She's still here, isn't she? Yes. She's working late at the library again. She has to clean it herself now since the... Yeah, the but budget cuts, I, I know. So he ran off in the snow toward the library... I guess I should have warned him about what he'd find there, but I couldn't quite bring myself to. You see, there was an old pickup truck parked in front of the building. One tire was flat. Cardboard covered most of the windows. As George ran up, an old man, the dim light of senility just beginning to fog his eyes, got out of the truck and stumbled over to the public garbage can to throw away a bag of trash. When he saw him, George stopped dead in his tracks. His breath caught in his throat. Uh, Uncle Willie? Hmm? No, just, just taking care of a few things. No, no, nothing here. Mind my own business. Uh, Uncle Willie, don't you know me? I don't have any money. Go rob someone else. Uh, Uncle Willie? Willie! Look at me! Hey, let go of my coat! No, look at me! Don't you know me? Stop shaking me like that. I don't know anyone. Hey, stop that. Let go of him. Mary! Let him go or I'll call the police. Mary, don't you know me? William, are you all right? I'm fine, Mrs. Lewis, I'm fine. They won't get to me. Why don't you go wait in your truck, William? Yes, yes. I'll wait in the truck. 
All right, which is it this time? Mary, do you really not know me? Citizens for a better icebox, the police support guild, or are you just one of Potter's hired goons? What? I've told her before, and I'll tell you. This is public property. He's not harming anyone by parking his truck here, and as long as I'm library director, he'll be able to. He's crazy, isn't he? Well, he's fine when he can get his meds. Otherwise, he has good days and bad days. But he's completely harmless. But didn't he have a brother? Ran a building alone downtown? I've been in town ten years, and I don't remember anything like that. No, I, I don't suppose you would. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to look up. The library opens at 10 tomorrow morning. You just let him park there, even though he's obviously living in his truck? Yes. Why do you do it? Because where else does he have to go? Where else do any of them have to go? It's been years since I've seen anyone in this town help anyone else. The least I can do is give them a warm place to come inside and read a magazine. And they're not even new magazines anymore. I, I know, but uh, why do you do it? You're young. You could move and, and go get a job in some other town. But here I make a difference. Now if you'll excuse me. Is it just me, or is she still the prettiest woman in town? Even with all this trouble, there's a glow about her. Yeah. But what about him? Who, Willie? What about him? What happens to him? Well, George, he doesn't have much longer. You can't sleep out in a pickup truck all winter and expect to be healthy. And the two of them really don't know each other. Why would they? Willie never had a nephew, and Mary never had a husband. They're just two souls that pass by in this life. She's extending a kindness to him because that's the kind of person she is. I, I, I don't I, I don't understand. What's to understand? You had a wonderful life, George. You helped a lot of people. This whole town hinged on things you did, things other people did too. It all works together, or it doesn't work at all. What doesn't work? Life. So, uh, so that's it? What's it? I uh, go back now? Well, don't look so happy about it. No, it's just that everyone knows the story. We, we all know how it comes out. The man sees how important he is and becomes grateful for everything he had. But I was always grateful, Clarice. I, I love my wife. I love my kids. I want to give them everything they want, even the stuff they probably shouldn't have. And I'm normal that way. But... Seeing I was holding this town together, that, that doesn't help me any. And in some ways, that's my worst fear. George, it sounds to me like you want to ask me a question, but you're afraid it's the wrong question to ask. What question? What's in it for you? Well, I suppose I could be that shallow. I made a mistake, George. I showed you a world without George Bjornsson. What I should have showed you was this. George! George! Is that Mary? It is. She's looking for you, and that's not all. George! Where are you? George, please just talk to us. And they're not the only ones. George! 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 Who are all these people? The word went around town that George was in trouble. They came out of the woodwork, all the people that you've helped over the years. George! 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 Say, George, are you there? George! 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 George, 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 George
George, please. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, George. We're sorry, George. What's going on, Clarissa? I don't understand. You will. Right about now. George? Clarice! Clarice, where did you go? George, thank goodness we found you. Did you see an old woman standing right about here when you ran up? George, it's a miracle. I know, I, I know. Everyone's everyone's sorry. I heard them. It's not just that. Word went around about Uncle Willie and the fish, and you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, they gave us back all the money we lost. How did you know? I saw it in a movie once. George? George, there you are. Thank goodness. I'm so sorry, George. I, I know, Uncle Willie. It's all right. No, no, it's not all right, George. I was a fool trusting that woman. What woman? Bjornsson. Oh, there you are, boy, wandering out in the snow. Are you an idiot? You, you have a lot of nerve coming out here looking for him. You're drunk. Yes, and you made sure of that, didn't you? What? I did nothing of the kind. Now, George, have you told your family yet? Told us what? Uh, j- just a second, hun. Uncle Willie, what exactly did happen right before you lost your pickup? I stepped over to the lodge to have a drink with Mrs. Potter, and when I got out of there, my truck was mysteriously missing. Really? Oh, none of that matters now, George. I took the liberty of bringing the contracts along. What contracts? It's that job managing Mrs. Potter's oil fields in North Dakota. You're taking it? I was out here all night thinking it over. It would be more money, a new life. Are you really considering it, George? Uh, Just a minute. Mary, I heard people shouting for me. What was that all about? When word got around about Uncle Willie... I did that, George. I called around and told them. People started coming to the house. Some actually came with walleye fillets they had in their freezer, but most just came with cash. They realized how hard it's been for us. All these years, your family has been helping them, and they wanted to help you. A lot of them called it a Christmas present. And a long overdue one, if you ask me. Nobody did. It's very touching. But you still have to face facts, George. The building and loan can only earn so much. Work for me and your family will be secure. Work for you? I have no intention of working for you, Mrs. Potter. Why on earth not? I'd never work for someone headed to jail for grand theft pickup. Grand theft? Oh, that's ridiculous. He left the keys right there on the counter. I assume. Here's what you're going to do, Mrs. Potter. You're going to go get Uncle Willie's truck and park it in front of the bank right where he left it. Why? I, I, I wouldn't know where to find it. Or else it. I'm going to have to go ask a few cops I know if they have probable cause to search your premises. Oh, they'll never get a warrant. Are you willing to take that chance? Are you willing to pass up my offer? Money? Security for years to come? Your contract, Mrs. Potter. Fine. Just fine. Sure, you got a few tokens from these people today. But what about tomorrow or next year? They'll come to us that... They'll come for all kinds of things. You're, you're done in town, Mrs. Potter. When people find out what you tried to do, they'll never come in your bank again. They'll come to us. Because above all else, Mrs. Potter, people in Icebox are loyal. And just how many hunting shacks do you think they'll be building with their loyalty this year, George? It won't just be hunting shacks anymore, Mrs. Potter. Uncle Willie? Yes, George? We're expanding. We're going to offer all kinds of loans now. Help people repair and, and rebuild. And I bet a lot of business in town could use updates. I bet a lot of folks who couldn't afford a house could get one of these smaller ones in town if they just had a little help. And I bet we could take some of these Christmas gifts from today and invest in a few places. We'll turn it around. We'll turn it around because we'll do it together. Well, 
that's about it. Mrs. Potter denied any wrongdoing to her dying day, but Uncle Willie's truck reappeared in the very spot he left it that afternoon. Uncle Willie retired on the money that fish caper brought in and moved down to Arizona. And as for George and Mary, well, they did just fine. Some years they had to be creative. Some years they had to be tough, but they always had enough, and they always got to stay right in the place they wanted to be. And everyone knew that if you needed help, if you needed a hand, George was the man to see. And that's about as happy an ending as I can think of. It's a borderland life. A holiday greeting from the Icebox Radio Theater. Your cast this evening featured in order of appearance. Karen Schickel as Clarice. Jim Yunt as George. Vicki Olson portrayed Mrs. Potter. Autumn Silvers played Mary. And Steve Wendells played Uncle Willie. The script was written by Jeffrey Adams, who also did editing and post-production. Sound effects were realized by Dave Irwin. This program copyright 2014 by the Icebox Radio Theater. All rights reserved. On the web at iceboxradio.org. And now, from all of us here, may we wish you a very happy holidays from snowy International Falls, Minnesota. Merry Christmas, everyone. That was the kickoff of the 12 Plays of Christmas this year. That was, of course, It's a Borderland Life, the studio version from 2013. And next, checking in our countdown at number 11, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a departure from uh, from the, the purely Christmas theme for mystery. Now, last year, 2022, sort of as we were emerging out of COVID, uh, we decided we wanted to do a live show, uh, but we weren't sure audiences were ready to come back to the theater, so we broadcast from right here in the house. Two old-time radio plays in November of 2022. A whole group showed up. Oh, there was about eight or nine people at one point. And uh, live sound effects from Evie Conad was a wonderful evening. And uh, the lead play that night had a Christmas theme, sort of, because it's entitled Nero Wolf and the Case of the Slaughtered Santas. That's right, Justin Kapler returned with his killer Sidney Greenstreet impression. And uh, I think it came out really, really well. And even though it is certainly not a traditional Christmas story, I think it fits in nicely at number 11 on our countdown. So here is Justin Kaplan, James Yunt, and myself, Caleb Silvers, Ian Hall, Chris Boyer, and Diane Adams are in there as well. Here is, direct from a live broadcast, Nero Wolf and the Case of the Slaughtered Santas at number 11 on the IBRT's 12 Plays of Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen, the ring of that phone bell means mystery. Adventure. And Nero Wolf's office, Archie Goodwin speaking. Yes. Yes, I know that in 48 hours it's going to be Christmas, but... Who is this? Who? Hey, look, I'm a big boy now, so... Uh, okay, tonight at 8, goodbye. What the devil was that? Well, this may come as a shock to you, Mr. Wolf, but that was Santa Claus. You've been drinking. Uh Uh-huh, the usual. Milk. 
He's coming to see you at eight. He's got a problem. Indeed. Yeah, it seems that some low, not to mention murderous character is going around slaughtering Santa Clauses. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the bulkiest, the bockiest, smartest, and most unpredictable detective in the world. That chairbone genius, Nero Wolf, created by Rex Stout and brought to you in a new series of adventures over this NBC network in the person of Mr. Sidney Greenstreet. It began earlier than eight, however, the case of the slaughtered Santas. It began, to be precise, on the corner of 34th Street and Carlisle. The hour was close to six, the weather cold, the sky dark. Hey, how you doing, Turner? Uh, sure. Freezing to death, officer. It's a cold day, packing up. Yeah, I guess so. Not many people around my, uh, anymore. All heading home for dinner. How's the collection? Well, I don't need no armored car, but a few dozen kids are going to have something in their Christmas stockings. Your competition, the guy opposite the corner, he's already scrammed. <laughs> yeah, he's probably got low blood pressure. Well, uh, give me a handy to get the collection pot off the chain there. Sure, here you go. Oh, there. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just walk you down the block. Gotta phone in. Okay, fine. One Santa's still left. I wonder what he's waiting for. <laughs> Santa Claus. Well, watch yourself going down those chimneys tonight. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I'll uh, cut across the avenue here. Be seeing you. Hey, that car coming down the street. Got its lights out. Look out! Oh, hey, stop! Oh, ah! Hey, uh, Peg. Huh? Did I ever tell you I love you? Aw, it's not me you love. It's the hot soup. Aw, now you're not the only woman who can cook a hot dish of soup, you know. Uh-huh. It helps, though. I'm, I'm, I'm just beginning to thaw out. Yeah, that's a cold corner you play Santa Claus on. Well, it doesn't hurt to make a few bucks. I ain't done so good this past year, but, well, maybe the next year will be, uh, now oh, well. Besides, I kind of like it, you know, kids asking questions all day long. Yeah. You know, I wonder how they figure the other two Santas at that intersection. Uh, kids think of only one thing at a time. More soup? <laughs> sure, Peg. Y you know, uh, one of them Santas got hit by a car tonight. Oh? Yeah, he, he packed up a few minutes before I did and started crossing the avenue, then bang! You know, a hit-and-run driver. Gosh, that's that's too bad. Was he hurt? Yeah, he, he was killed. Here's your soup. With with the traffic the way it is nowadays, it Well, I better take a look at the stew. Hey, uh, somebody at the door. I'll, I'll go get a peg. Okay. <laughs> Yeah? What is it? Oh! Oh! Michael? Mike! 
Mr. Wolf? Yes, Archie? I've been thinking. Good heavens. Oh, I admit it won't be uh, about a national emergency or anything, but Mr. Wolf, uh, Christmas is only a couple of days away. If you're hinting about your present... Uh, No, no, no. I was just imagining you behind a team of reindeer. Your imagination is morbid. (laughs) You'd make a wonderful Santa Claus. Hooey! You've got the perfect build for it, of course. As for character... Archie? Yeah? Can you picture me scrambling down a chimney? (laughs) Well, they they might have to build a bigger chimney, but... uh, Ah! Well, there's that, too. However... That is the front door. True. I was thinking... You might see who it is. Well, if nobody's been lying to me on the phone, that'll be Santa Claus. Let him in. But I haven't decided what I want for Christmas yet, Mr. Wolf. For example... Should she be blonde or brunette? Tall or short? Archie. On my way. Uh, Good evening. I dislike dawdling on anyone's doorstep. Well, stop dawdling. Come in, please. Mr. Wolf has been warned of my arrival? He has. Uh, Through here, please. Uh, Mr. Wolf, this is, uh, well, Santa Claus? My name's Barton. John Barton. How do you do, sir? I have no time for social graces, Mr. Wolf. I'm about to be murdered. Not in my house. I have objections. I'm a frightened man, Mr. Wolf. Indeed? This... this costume you see me in, it's responsible for it all. Why are you in it? I had a notion it might be, well, entertaining to play Santa Claus in public. I'm a wealthy man, sir, and I can afford to have whims. Therefore, I have assumed this masquerade. However, it apparently (laughs) is going to be the death of me. Mr. Barton, you have adequately conveyed an atmosphere and an emotion. I suggest you concentrate on facts now. Very well. I have been acting as Santa Claus for the Tuberculosis Fund. My station is in the corner of 34th Street and Carlisle Avenue. I might add the northeast corner. Why? Because at that intersection, there have been two other Santa Clauses. One on the southeast corner and one on the southwest corner. Three Santa Clauses, then, on three corners. Yes. Now then, earlier tonight, the man on the southwest corner started home. He was crossing the avenue when he was run down and killed by an automobile. A regrettable accident. The car was running without lights. It deliberately ran the fellow down and then vanished. Not an accident, Mr. Wolf. You saw this yourself? I did. Once Santa Claus dead, the man on the southeast corner got home all right. According to the radio news flash, that was where he was killed. By bullets. Coincidence. Possibly. But I wouldn't want to risk my life on the chance. Very well, Mr. Barton. I'll write you a check as a retainer, then hurry along home. I'm late now. No. I beg your pardon? You will neither hurry home nor notify anyone at your home of your whereabouts. But... You'll remain here until such a time as I think it's safe for you to leave. The house is well guarded. I... can't do that. In which case, I cannot accept you as a client. I fail to understand. Mr. Barton, it is very easy to murder someone. Avoiding the consequences of such an action is something else again. However, I'm assuming that you're not primarily interested in what happens to your murderer after you're dead. Of course not. Therefore, you will remain here. Archie? Yeah? 
First, the corner of 34th and Carlisle. Complete report. But that's nonsense. The corner will be deserted now. Mr. Barton, you're hiring my intelligence. You will, therefore, permit me to use it as I see fit. A complete report, Archie. Right, sir. You'll then visit Inspector Kramer at headquarters. You will, in whatever manner you find effective, collect all the police information about the two already murdered Santas. Uh, fine. The manner, I think, will be applying a blowtorch to the inspector's toes. Your levity is ill-timed. The inspector is likely to throw me out of my ear. Your problem. My ear. And on your way home, you might stop in at Mr. Barton's place. I don't see any purpose in that. Mr. Barton, there is a basic problem to which we must find an answer. Whether those two men were murdered because they were Santa Clauses, or because their deaths were merely preliminaries to yours. Archie, I suggest haste. Yes, sir. And avoid blondes. Hmm. I would like you to be home in time for Christmas. Hey. Hey, bud. Huh? Yeah? You got a price for a cup of coffee? <laughs> you sure you mean coffee? Either you're going to dig it up or you ain't. Never mind the questions about my personal affairs, see? Oh, I apologize. Here you go. Two bits. Huh. Thanks. You're welcome. Don't let me keep you. Oh, you're not. 34th and Carlisle, huh? Uh, during the day, filled with milling throngs. Hey, that's a nice phrase. I'll have to remember it. Milling throngs. Anyway, now it's desolate and deserted. Well, that's life. Is that a fact? That's philosophy. Yeah? Well, for two bits, I don't gotta listen to no philosophy, see? Good night, bud. Inspector's got company. Just a moment. Hang on, just a moment. I'm coming, I'm coming. Now, if all you reporters will just shut up, ask your questions one at a time, I'll answer them. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Inspector Kramer, it's true a couple of Santa Clauses have been knocked off tonight? Uh, it's true that two men who have been employed as Santa Claus by charitable organizations have been murdered, yes. Any connection between those two guys, or does somebody just hate Santa Claus? Well, so far as we know, there is no connection. Maybe could be some kind of maniac who decided he doesn't like Christmas or Santa Clauses? Is that right? The department is investigating along those lines, yes. Like how? Well, we're checking all the local asylums for possible escaped lunatics. Yeah, but Inspector, suppose the nut has never been in an asylum. All right, that'll be all, folks. Come on, now clear out now. We got oh, work to go. Listen. Please, right that way, please. I was five. I said that'll be all. Anything new comes up, you'll get it. Understand? Hey, good one. Hello, Inspector. Yeah, I spotted you when you came in. What happened? You decided to reform and go to work on a newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a public-spirited citizen, that's all. Yeah, I can add a few things to that description with practically no strain at all. Well, Mr. Wolf and I are very sentimental about Christmas. We object to Santa Claus as being killed. Nuts. Oh, Inspector, aren't you in favor of Christmas? Uh, I'm in favor of Christmas. I'm in favor of motherhood. I'm in favor hey, of... Hey, leave motherhood out of this. Neither of us are mothers. Our chances of becoming mothers aren't too good either. And furthermore, well... Okay, okay. You're not giving. So get out. 
<laughs> Thank you, Inspector. Oh, but uh, uh, good one. Yeah. In case Wolf decides to send me something for Christmas, you know what I wish he'd send me? What? Your head. Well. Oh. <laughs> and now I know what I want for Christmas. What did you say? Well, I, uh, I, I said my name is Goodwin, and it's cold on your doorstep. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Come in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you didn't mention your name. Oh, I'm Laura Barton. Mrs. Laura Barton? No. Oh, fine, fine. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, what relation are you to John Barton? His niece. Why do you ask? Oh, you've got a beautiful voice. Uh, uh, hey, all this marble and no butler? I, I don't know where Pleasant is. He should be here. Well, have him shot at sunrise. Oh, Laura. Oh, Wayne, this is Mr. Goodwin. I've never heard of him. What does he want? Well, I, I don't know. But Wayne what? Stevens. Uh-huh. Friend of Mr. Barton's? Half-brother. Uh, but we seem to be doing all the answering. How about you answering some questions yourself, Goodwin? Now try. Come into the library. Well, uh, what do you want? For Christmas? Nah. <laughs> Erase that. I would like to see Mr. Barton. He's not home. Well, where is he? Don't you know? I wouldn't have come here asking for him if I did, would I? I suppose that's true. What did you want with him? Conversation. About? Anything. You see, I like to talk to rich men. Are you rich? <laughs> Oh, I, I can't play the piano, either. Well, you could always learn, but being rich is harder. I've found that it takes... Mr. Mr. Goodwin, you must have some reason for coming here. Some reason concerning Uncle. Laura, you're being imaginative. Well, Uncle is late. He's probably still on that street corner playing Santa Claus. He enjoys it. Why bother worrying about it? I don't know, except He's it's never just... been as late as this? Well, No. Not since he started this masquerade of his. Would you happen to know where the butler is? Oh, out getting drunk, I suspect. He was in the kitchen a little while ago, then disappeared. Peasant likes to look in on the wine when it's red. Or when it's white. Uh, no, I take that back. Oh, you do? He prefers Irish whiskey. We don't stock it, therefore it... Uh, too bad. Uh, well, I'd better run along. Good night, Mr. Stevens. Miss Barton. Good night. Uh, I'll see you out. Well, prettiest butler I ever saw. Blonde. Well, Dr. Titmouse said beware of blondes because, well... Mr. Goodwin, I... Well, I'm waiting. Well, I... Mr. Goodwin, you must know something about Uncle. Something you didn't want to tell us. Well, what makes you think so? Well, otherwise your visit was just pointless. Well, I suppose I know. Now, I might be a kidnapper or a... Oh, no. Well, my honest brown eyes... Your first name is Archie, isn't it? Archie? Archie Goodwin. Hmm. Goes together nicely, don't you think? You work for Nero Wolf. You're going back to him now? I might be. But then again, I might be going to the movies. I recognized you. Your pictures have been in the papers. Take me with you to see Mr. Wolf. You can trust me. Nah, I never trust blondes. Well, that's unfair. Well, no. I don't trust brunettes either. Furthermore, I'm not sure Mr. Wolf would want to see you, so I, uh, well... So... So, uh, 
why don't you, uh, you know, trail me home? Hmm? Yes, Archie. Hey, where's Santa Claus? Guest room. He was tired. What, uh... I've been trailed home. Indeed? By a blonde. Fooey. (laughs) All right, I'll admit I didn't make any strenuous effort to shake her off, but she trailed me, Where is she? Well, she's outside. Good. Your report. Oh, but she might freeze to death out there. That's her problem. Your report, Archie. Well, it's short and simple. It would be simple. Hey, I haven't got time to resent that. A blonde is dying... As for the report, corner of 34th and Carlisle is a very quiet spot at night. No one was around but a bum who got into me for a quarter. For coffee, he said. You will not put that quarter on the expense account. Ah, stop worrying. That was a private gesture. There were four corners. Corner number one had a dress shop on it. Corner number two, a drugstore with a beautiful redhead in the window making with a hair rinse. The ad said her name was Noreen, but didn't give her phone number. Archie. <laughs> yeah. Third corner was devoted to a shoe store, and the fourth corner had a bank on it. A bank? Hmm. Uh-huh. Kind of thought we'd have a pause at that point. Mean something to you? Inspector Kramer's information consisted of... Yeah, you're being coy. Kramer furnished the information the police could find no connection between the two murdered Santas. Except for the fact that they were both playing Santa Claus. Well, isn't that a little on the obvious side? This is an obvious case. The Barton home, Archie? Marble and old lace. A butler, his name was Pleasant, uh, was among those missing. Among those present, uh, well, Laura Barton, the old man's niece, and Wayne Stevens, his half-brother. Ah. Yeah. It was Laura Barton that followed you here? It was Laura. Archie, uh, go upstairs and... Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, now, wait a minute, the girl. The weather, common humanity demands that you have... Fully, you speak for yourself, not humanity. I'm human. On occasion, a debatable point. Very well, let her in. Oh, thanks. Laura? Yes? Uh, Come in. Laura Barton, Mr. Wolf. How do you do? How much money do you inherit on the death of your uncle? <gasps> what? It's known as shock treatment. However, I need an answer. Uncle isn't dead, is he? That, for the moment, is irrelevant. How much? Half his estate. The other half? To Wayne, uncle's half-brother. Very well. Archie, will you go upstairs and inform Mr. Barton that his niece is here? What? Uncle is here? On my way. Yes? Archie, Mr. Barton. Come in. Mr. Wolf would like you to come downstairs. I suppose he has a reason? Hmm, a blonde reason. Your niece. My niece? That's right, she's a... Hey, where'd you get that? A man of my wealth finds it safer to carry a revolver. Yeah, but it's not safe to point it at people, especially for the people. Turn around, good one. But, Mr. Barton, we're protecting you. By letting that girl into this house? If I had the time, I'd be amused. As it is...
Patsy, you're drunk. Good heavens. Oh. Uh-huh. Santa Claus came early. Your head. Which one are you referring to? My own or the one Santa gave me? You'd better sit. No, no. I've uh, had enough trouble getting up a little while ago. I'm staying out of any positions in which I might have to do that again. Mr. Barton is among the missing. Indeed. Uh-huh. Hit me on the head and use the back exit. I checked with Fritz in the kitchen on the way here. You offer a reason for this peculiar behavior? Uh, Laura Barton. So? I... I don't understand. Uncle wouldn't... Uncle apparently has. He also, it would appear, fancies himself in costume. Well, he used to be very much interested in the stage. He... he acted for a while. A long time ago. Till the family objected. Archie? Got it. Uh, Nero Wolf's office. Archie Goodwin speaking. Ah, uh, you recite very nicely, Goodwin. This is Kramer. Let me have Wolf, huh? Mr. Wolf? Inspector Kramer. Yes, Inspector. The papers haven't been carrying it, Wolf, but, uh, you're working on Santa Claus' case, aren't you? A possibility. You didn't send Goodwin to headquarters on a possibility. Oh, never mind. We're working on a line down here, Wolf. Now look, uh, doesn't strain your professional ethics, you might be able to help. How? There's a bank, corner of 34th Street and Carlisle. We got the thought that, uh, well, suppose a gang was preparing to take that bank tomorrow morning. Those Santa Clauses, they've been on those corners for nearly a week now. They might have noticed something about the bank's routine, guards or what have you. That could interfere with a gang's plan. A mighty ingenious and imaginative thought, Inspector. I noticed you didn't say yes or no. I have at the moment no opinion. That's all you're going to give us? At the moment. However, Inspector, in a very little while I shall give you... (laughs) the murderer. Archie, Miss Barton will remain here. As for you... Yeah? You will return to 34th Street and find our coffee-loving friend. Hmm. What? You'll persuade him in whatever manner you think best to return here with you. What? Yes. (laughs) You know, I think it's possible you might be able to put that quarter on the expense account after all. Why, I, hey, I seen you before. Yeah, I've learned to love the neighborhood. That's why it's going to break my heart. What is? Leaving it with you. With me? Tw- Wait, what are you? Stop that! Hey, what are you doing? Hey, hey, I'm sensitive about having guns pulled on me tonight. Let go of me, will you? Oh, not until I. Yeah, there. You're coming with me. Where? Mr. Wolf would like to see you. Nero Wolf? Yeah. Well, why? He's trying to salvage a quarter. <laughs> ah, Archie. Uh-huh. Complete with, uh... Well, he wouldn't give me his name. He did have a gun to it, though. This one. Yes, Archie. You know Miss Barton, of course. Hi. And Mr. Stevens. He joined us a moment ago. Miss Barton thought she'd be happy if he were here. Hello, Stevens. That's not the only reason I came. My brother is still missing. I'm I'm concerned. Yes. You, sir, will you sit down? Watching people stand makes me uncomfortable. I don't have to. You do. Archie is stronger than you are. Yeah. Oh, all right. That's better. 
if you don't mind, Mr. Wolf, I, I've never been here before, never met you. But you look as though you could handle things. I think my brother's been kidnapped. A possibility we shall have to consider. Miss Barton, perhaps you have a theory, too? Well, I don't know. Uncle's been behaving strangely for weeks now. In what way? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, Wayne? Well, of course. John's always been a little peculiar, but I'm afraid I saw nothing especially strange outside of this Santa Claus stunt, of course. I see. Miss Barton, your uncle played Santa Claus all week on one of the corners of 34th Street in Carlisle? I know. On two other corners, two other men indulged in the same activity. Those two other men are now dead. Oh, no. Well, wait, Mr. Wolf. You mean they were killed by mistake for Barton? It is true that one man made up as Santa Claus looks very much like any other man similarly costumed. But the answer is no. One of the two men was shot in his home after he had removed his costume. Well, then, what connection... Miss Barton... In the event that you wanted to hide a tree, where would you hide it? Hide a tree? Why, I wouldn't even begin to know. If you were very clever, you would hide it in a forest. If you wanted to hide a murder and were very clever, you'd adopt the same principle. Wait. You mean that if someone wanted to kill Uncle and didn't want to be suspected, he'd... Go about murdering several people with an ostensible, if lunatic, reason. You would let us say... Go about killing Santa Clauses. I get it. Then people would think the man he really wanted dead, for a special and private reason, had been killed for something that didn't point to him. True. That's why two Santa Clauses were murdered tonight. The third Santa Claus, however, the real object of the murderer's attention was luckier. Or suspicious. He fled. Uh, do I gotta hang around here and listen to all this? You do, my unwashed friend. Mr. Barton fled and the murderer was in a quandary. He had, so to speak, invested in two murders merely to make the third one confusing. But he found himself unable to commit that third murder. He couldn't find his victim. Could he ask the police to do so? Hardly. But he might try to inveigle a private detective, such as myself, onto the job. Uh, that makes sense, Mr. Wolf. But, uh, why would my brother have deliberately fled from your house? I mean, he was protected here, so what... Do I make myself clear? Very clear, Mr. Stevens. Archie, that gun you took from the dirty gentleman, you still have it? I still have it. Then would you mind pointing it at Mr. Stevens here until the police remove him? All right. Come along, Stevens. Well, that's the end of Mr. Stevens. Inspector Kramer will take good care of him from now on. But now Mr. Wolf, Laura, and me and the refugee from a washcloth over here would still like to know how and, and, and why and who was involved. I knew two people had a motive for John Barton's death, Laura Barton and Wayne Stevens. One of them proceeded to kill Santa Clauses in the hopes that the police would assume those killings to be the work of a lunatic. Now, the paper certainly hopped on that assumption. Yes. However, John Barton, aware that his life was in danger, escaped his murderer and hid. In this house? No. A man in a Santa Claus costume came here and said he was Barton. However, he was an obvious imposter. He proved that by his flight when his niece came here. You mean, he could fool you, but he knew he wouldn't be able to fool me, so... Precisely. Therefore, it was not Barton. Who was it? 
Who else had disappeared at the proprietor's moment? The butler. Pleasant. True. I distrust coincidence. Stevens needed an accomplice, hence he sent Pleasant here. And Pleasant would give you a song and dance about Barton's danger and then scram. You'd start investigating, discover Barton was missing, try to find him, and lead Stevens to his victim, huh? I frustrated that part of the plan by insisting on Pleasant's remaining here, which he did well, until... That, that, that part of it's fine, but how did you choose between Laura and Stevens? It was Stevens who knew without being told that Barton had been in this house and had fled from it. Yeah, yeah, you yourself had mentioned that Stevens had only been here a moment, so you hadn't told him. Obviously, the butler found him as soon as he had hit you over the head and escaped. Furthermore, the butler, masquerading as Barton, had attempted to throw suspicion on Miss Barton. That convinced me of her innocence. Well, you've done it again, Mr. Wolf, except for one minor detail. You're not very successful at irony, Archie. What minor detail? Where is Barton? In this house. Well, huh? Uh, when did that happen? When you arrived home with the gentleman sitting near you. The bum? Oh, wait. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This ought to be able to figure out myself. Laura said Barton used to be an actor. That's item one, huh? Yes, Archie. Yeah. Also, why is a supposed tramp hanging around a deserted intersection for handouts? The answer is he wasn't. He was keeping an eye out for trouble. He knew it was after him. Oh, 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 yes. Yeah. So it turns out I gave a quarter to a millionaire. Uncle, your uncle. Well, that is, I, 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 I know, my dear. Yes, I'm uncle. <gasps> oh. I did a rather decent job, didn't I? Oh, <laughs> indeed. No one recognized me, er, except, of course, you, Mr. Wolf. Not a recognition, Mr. Barton. Logic. Archie, open some beer for us. Uh, yes, sir. Logic, eh? Well, whatever it was, Mr. Wolf, I owe you a great deal. How can I ever repay you? Oddly enough, the answer is simplicity itself. <laughs> Make out a check. <laughs> have been listening to the new adventures of Nero Wolf, starring Sidney Greenstreet. This has been the case of the slaughtered Santas from the new adventures of Nero Wolf, originally broadcast December 22nd, 1950, produced by J. Donald Wilson, based on characters created by Rex Stout. Our production was directed by Jeffrey Adams, with Foley sound effects created by E.V. Conant. Our cast included Caleb Silvers as Unlucky Santa's Turner and Mike, as well as Wayne Stevens. Ian Hall played the cop, Reporter 1, and Barton. Carice Boyer was Peg and Reporter 2. Jeffrey Adams played Kramer and the real Mr. Barton. Ayla McIntosh was Laura. Diane Adams was Reporter 3. And our stars this evening, Jim Yunt as Archie and Justin Kapler as Nero Wolf. Nero Wolf and the New Adventures of Nero Wolf are the property of their copyright holders. This broadcast was tribute to them, and the Icebox Radio Theater makes no claim of ownership. Tonight's program is copyright 2022 by the Icebox Radio Theater, all rights reserved. Funded in part by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board. Thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For more information, our website, iceboxradio.org. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, James, for number 11 on our countdown. That was Nero Wolf and the Case of the Slaughtered Santas. 
Well, if you thought that was a departure from normal Christmas fare, try this one on for size. Next, we're going to go with the Super Happy Sugar Elves. And if you've never heard them before, uh, the whole idea behind this this uh, skit or series of skits is that there's a writer forced to write a, a terrible children's program that just sells cereal to kids. Um, but he sneaks in some dark humor. And this has some plenty of dark humor. It's the Super Happy Sugar Elves Christmas Special uh, from 2000. And actually, I don't know when it was. Uh, just looking through my notes, I'm not sure when we actually recorded this. But I'm going to say 2013, 14, something like that. So, get ready. Maybe uh, maybe distract the kids for the next 10 minutes or so as we have a short feature now. Steve Windles, myself, Vicki Olson, and Rachel Molassig, all of us with our voices sped up, present to you now the Super Happy Sugar Elves, number 10 on our 12 Plays of Christmas countdown. This is Barry. Leave it. Barry, I know you're not taking my calls, but this is important. Please pick up. I also know you're in your apartment because I had it staked out, so you might as well pick up right now. Okay, we'll do it the hard way. As long as I don't hang up, this connection stays open. So allow me to take this opportunity to read the entire Affordable Care Act out loud to you. Okay, page one of 2,409. Ordered to be printed as passed in the Senate of the United States, December 24th, 2009. Resolved. Okay, okay, I'm here, I'm here. I thought you might be. But I know what you want, and the answer is no. Kid, darling, you don't even know what I want yet. Let me get a word in, would you? You want me to write another one of those stupid cartoons, don't you? Uh, perish the thought, kid. Wouldn't dream of it. Look, I will admit to being a little pushy in the past. Pushy? You, you crashed my nephew's graduation to show me contracts. Yeah, that was out of line. During the ceremony. Yeah, well... While I was speaking. Well, can you blame me, kid? The super happy sugar elves are the most lucrative creation you've ever dreamed up. They are an abomination designed to sell candy. You talk like candy's a bad thing. Have you seen the stats on childhood obesity? On diabetes? Have you seen stats on your bank account? Not to mention mine. <sighs> 30 pieces of silver. I'm glad to hear you're in a biblical mood because... No, no. Just hear the pitch. I've said it before, Ira. No Christmas special. Ever. Look, the toy company's offering a mint. I don't care. You don't understand. They're offering a literal mint. It's on a tiny island in the South Pacific where they're prepared to install you as king if you write one more super happy sugar elf special. Very funny. Wait, are you serious? That's the grave. Believe me, kid. Write this one Christmas special and you can buy every kid in America a salad. Well... Okay, just this once. Yay, I get a new boat. And I get to write whatever I want, right? Sure, kid, sure. Just make it inclusive. Dreidels and Santa Claus, not either or. And not too dark. Oh. Oh, I won't get too dark, Barry. I won't get dark. At all. <laughs> so we're agreed, then. Good Time Foods, makers of Maple Frosted Chocolate Bomb Cereal, in cooperation with the Super Happy Sugar Elf Toy Company, a division of the People's Republic of China, are proud to present the Super Happy Sugar Elves Chocolatey Frosted Winter Wonder Happy Birthday Jesus Solstice Festival! We're the happy little elves, dancing through the glade. Give us some sugar right, right now, or we'll have to fade away! Well, it's that special time of year in Super Happy Sugar Elf Land. Sugary frosted snow coats the wintergreen forest, 
The candy cane crop is just about ready for harvest, and all the super happy sugar elves are decorating the village and looking forward to that very special super happy sugary sweet gift-giving day. As we join our story, all the elves are gathered in the Pudding City Town Square getting ready for their annual non-denominational all-inclusive winter holiday festival. Extra special sugary sweet bonbon city attorney and holiday festival chairwoman Pipsweet stands on the gingerbread stage and addresses the crowd. Okay, everyone. It looks as if we're just about ready for our big holiday party. Yay! Unless, of course, you're just marking the changing of seasons and not participating in any activity that could be classified as a celebration. We celebrate your lack of celebrating. Yay! Now, let's go down the checklist for this all-inclusive event, which everyone is free to join in or not. Wintergreen forest decorated? Done. Smoothie icy skating rink festooned with red ribbons and a wash in romantic organ music? Done. Toyland Express train polished up for the big express run to Santa's workshop? Um, Well, is the Toyland Express ready or not? Pipsweet, Pipsweet. What is it, Sugar Plum? The Toyland Express, the special train that brings all the extra special boys and girls whose family recognized the Judeo-Christian tradition to Santa's workshop? Yes. It's missing. <gasps> oh, oh, my no. oh, my goodness gracious, gumdrops. This is a terrible thing for everyone in Super Happy Sugarland. What happened? We don't know. The train left Santa's workshop last week with his best crew of gingerbread engineers and Santa's reindeer in charge of interstate commerce, Donder, on board. They were last seen heading up into the whipped cream mountains towards Cavity Pass. But they never came down out of the mountains. Wait a minute. What day was this? It was sugary happy bonbon frosted. Just get on with it. Tuesday. It was Tuesday. Tuesday? Oh, no. That was the day the frosted sugar flake blizzard blew in and knocked out power to most of the valley. Do you think the train didn't make it through Cavity Pass? I don't know, but I think it's up to us to find out. Candy corn. Candy corn. Uh, right here, Pipsweet. Organize a super happy chocolatey wonderful search party to go find those gingerbread men and their brave leader, Donder. Yes, sir, Pipsweet. We will go into those snowbound mountains and search for the Donder Party. Well, boys and girls, what do you think about that? A group of gingerbread men and one reindeer are trapped in a snowbound pass with only a forlorn hope of ever getting out. Whatever will they eat to stay alive? Let's hope that the super happy sugar elves can find the missing train before the gingerbread men, with their sweet, tasty flesh made of pure gingerbread, resort to something terrible to survive. It's a few hours later now, and Candy Corn, Sugar Plum, and Pip Sweet are climbing up the Pudding Mountains towards Cavity Pass, the blizzard raging all around them. They know they only have a few hours to find the Toyland train and save Christmas. How much farther to the pass, Candy Corn? Uh, just another hundred honey nut meters up the hill. We should see the train any second now. Pipsweet, Pipsweet, over here. What is it, Sugar Plum? I found someone. Oh, it's a poor gingerbread man stuck in the snow. Is he alive? I don't know, but... Oh, no. Oh, no. What is it? What is it? He's missing both his legs. <laughs> Sugary, frosted. <laughs> oh, no, Pipsweet. You super happy sugar hurl. Oh, don't you think I know that? I'm living it. <laughs> Well, I guess we have to keep going to see if there's any more gingerbread men like this one. Hello. Oh, he's alive! Of course I'm alive. Have you ever known a gingerbread man who couldn't take a little nibbling? What on earth happened to you? Oh, it was horrible. All we had to eat was one little fruitcake and a half gallon of hot chocolate, and that was gone days ago. Oh, no! Yes, we didn't know if a rescue party was ever going to come. It was looking desperate. Wow, how did you ever survive? We found something to eat. What? What did you find? Oh, just some supplies. 
I thought you said you were out of supplies. Crops. I meant crops. There's a uh, candy apple forest right over that ridge. Candy apples don't grow at this altitude. Sure they do. Just face that way and look while I pick up this rock. I don't see any candy apples. Just keep looking that way. Could you get down on your knees? I can't quite reach your skull from this angle. I don't understand. Neither do I. They're eating each other, you idiots. Why? What? No, no. That's ridiculous. Oh, really? Then how did you lose your legs? Boating accident? Say, are elves made of sugar or meat? A boating accident on top of a mountain? There could be lakes. I don't understand, Pipsweet. Are you saying that Santa's best gingerbread engineers have resorted to cannibalism? Thank you, Captain Exposition. Come on, let's get out of here. Uh, but what about the gingerbread men? What about Donder? Oh, you want to steer clear of him. He's been eating nothing but gingerbread all week, and I think he's gone feral. Pipsweet, I'm scared. It's all right. We'll head down the mountain, and in a couple of weeks, there will only be one gingerbread man left. And after that, probably only Donder. <laughs> That's the thing, elves. What? What's the thing? Donder is a flying reindeer. He could have flown out of here days ago, but he stayed. He stayed because he likes it. I think Pipsweet is right. We should get out of here. Yeah. Too late. Too late? Yes. He is a creature of the forest now, and he smells elf blood. Oh, this is an especially unsugary happenstance. Run! Run if you can, sugar elves. I tried to run, and look what Donder did to me. <laughs> and so we leave our friends traipsing down the snowy side of Pudding Mountain, a starving, murderous reindeer hot on their heels. This promises to be the most memorable Hanukkah Christmas solstice ever. Tune in next time to learn which elves lose what body parts and who gets off with lots and lots of therapy. So until then... We're the happy little elves Dancing through the glade Give us some sugar right, right now Or we'll have to fade Away! Okay, I promise you if you continue listening to this, 12 plays of Christmas from the Icebox Radio Theater, we will not go down that road ever again. (laughs) That was the Super Happy Sugar Elves with their Christmas special number 10 on the countdown. Uh, So moving on to number 9 now is a fairly recent production and the only one in the countdown starring one of our most popular characters, Lance Manley, library detective kind of a noir figure who solves mysteries at the local public library, starring uh, Caleb Silvers, who originated the character uh, during our comedy podcast, Funny in a Small Town. And of course, sooner or later, Lance had to have himself a Christmas adventure, which he did in December of 2022. Here then is Caleb Silvers, along with myself and Diane Adams, and, uh, and Lance's sidekick, Nora Diamond, girl cataloger played by Ayla McIntosh. In their adventure, Lance Manley and the Case of the Sorrowful Santa. Too Bright, the only book-like guarantee to outshine a reindeer snout presents Lance Manley, Library Detective. Most days in the tough, seedy world of public library security are more or less the same. You clock in, save the world a couple of times, then clock out and go home to whatever little cold water flat you can afford. You pour yourself a stiff drink and wait for the sun to rise so you can go back and do it all again. Most days are like that, but there are days, 
or more to the point times of year, that do offer a respite from the ongoing struggle against bibliographic monotony. Take, for example, this time of year. That's right. December comes to the library world just like it does everywhere else. And while the world goes a little crazy with the charge plates for a week or three, we at the local public tend to keep things simple. We put up a modest tree, endure the endless parade of cookies in the break room, and generally make merry in a nearly silent fashion. But it's no secret that the holidays come prepackaged with a gift of the blues for some folks, and every year a Scrooge or three finds his way into our stacks. Well, not always Scrooge. One year it was Santa Claus got hit by the seasonal blahs. Pour yourself a cup of eggnog, and I'll tell you all about it. We'll be back to Lance Manley in just a moment. But first, friends, does the chore of holiday gift-giving get you down? Does that special someone on your list vex you with his elusive taste and disappointed stare on Christmas morning? Well, blow that frown out of the water with a new book light from Too Bright. Yes, a Too Bright book light is just the thing to cheer up your man during this dark, dreary season of goodwill and happiness. With a book light this powerful, your hubby can not only easily read the Old Testament aloud for the family's moral instruction, but with the new Too Powerful battery pack, he can take his book light into every corner of the house searching for contraband. Weighing in at just 40 pounds, the Too Powerful battery pack comes complete with olive drab carrying straps that will surely put a smile on his face as he thinks back to those carefree days of basic training. And with over 25 minutes of battery life, your better half can do a thorough search of both Billy and Susie's rooms, looking for horror comics and sensen. So move over, Star of Bethlehem. There's a new battery-powered light to guide us by. Too bright! Available at finer ammo dumps and war surplus stores. And now we return to Lance Manley, Library Detective. The holidays can be a surprisingly busy time at the library. The kids are out of school and full of energy for the coming gift orgy. The holiday books circulate so fast you worry the paper will catch fire. And a lot of the seasonal problems from outside these hallowed halls of knowledge find their way inside. Holiday depression, for example. For every patron checking out with a smile on her face, there seem to be two making with the bah humbug. And all that had nothing to do with the fact that a long, hard winter had just begun. And there were more than a few folks in need of the heated, publicly funded comfort the public library could provide. Some folks needed to break away from the cold before returning home. And some folks had no home to return to. That's where this story begins, with one such character who'd staked out a couch in the periodicals room and curled up for a long winter's nap. That was two days ago. Head librarian Effie Perrine's patience was not going to last until Christmas, which is how we came to be standing together at the checkout desk, gazing over at said character, trying to keep our yuletide spirits intact. I hate to do it, Lance. Well, we could always just leave him be. He's been there two days, and he hasn't checked out or read anything. Has he bothered anyone, caused a ruckus? No. Closing time comes, and he rises from that spot when I tell him to. He's the last one out the door, then reappears the next morning the moment we open. Well, it's a clear-cut case of loitering. I could arrange for accommodation over at County Lockup for a couple of days. Uh, I would, but... Well, what is it, boss? Well, look at him. He's a dead ringer for Santa Claus. 
is at that. A little on the thin side, but then things are tough all over. Don't joke, Lance. This has got me all worked up. Just relax, so illustrious leader. I'll have a chat with our Chris Kringle and see if I can't get him to find another library. Gently, though. I don't want a scene. Oh, don't worry, boss. This will be one silent night. Excuse me. Hey, uh, old-timer? Hmm? Oh. Terribly sorry. I appear to have dozed off. (laughs) Say, this, uh, couch is for library patrons only, you know? I know. I suppose you're here to throw me out, aren't you, Lance? No, sir. I just wanted to... Wait, what? Yes, I know who you are. You're Lance Manley, a 7-3 ratio who'd like a new holster. What was that about a ratio? Nice to naughty ratio. Everyone has one. You know, you could be an 8-2 with very little effort, Lance. I get it, and I bet you think a new holster is what I want for Christmas. No, that's just what I can give you for Christmas. What you want can't be put into stockings. That's what you think. She looks fantastic in them. But for right now, what I want, Pops, is for you to maybe move along. I see. Son, do you think you could give me five more minutes just until the snow stops? Uh, sure. Hey, have you got some place to go? I know Father Flanagan real well. He's usually booked all this time of year, but I bet he could find a cot for Santa Claus. Oh, don't worry about me, son. I'll be fine. The cold never bothered me. Yeah? Well, for someone who doesn't mind the cold, he sure stay out of it enough. Oh, I'm not in here to avoid the cold, Lance. I'm in here to avoid, well, all the rest of it. Which is how it all started. After five minutes or so, the old guy got up, gathered his belongings, which consisted of a plastic trash bag full of heaven knows what, and slowly trudged out of the library without so much as a glance at Effie or me. I don't know that I ever felt so low. And from the look on Boss Lady's face, she felt the same. Without a word, we both went back to whatever we'd been doing and tried to put the old guy out of mind. The next day, Chris Kringle was nowhere to be seen. The day after that, more of the same. I'd just about forgotten him when, late in the afternoon, just as the blizzard that promised eight new inches of white stuff was blowing in, my cohort and sometime partner in crime, Doghouse Riley, knocked on my door. Hey, uh, Lance, you got a minute you got? For you? Always, Doghouse. What's up? You need a hand clearing the walks? Well, it, it ain't about that, it ain't. But I'll take some help once the snow falls. It's about Santa Claus, it is. I keep telling you, Doghouse, just address the letter to the North Pole, and you'll get it. Don't joke, this is serious. He's here, Lance, he's at the library. Is this about the old fellow in the periodicals room? I thought I gave him the air. You did. That's why I went and got him. You did what now? Oh, I I know I probably shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have. But when I seen you kick that guy out, I, I stopped him before he got out of the parking lot. I invited him to join me down in my place, join me there. Doghouse. I know, I know. I knew you and Miss Perrine wouldn't like it. But what was I going to do? It was Christmas, Lance. Seeing Chris walk out of here all depressed and all, I had to do something. Chris? You on a first-name basis now. Oh, sure. He's been down there two days. He's been sleeping on that little cot I got in my room for after-lunch naps. You mean he's been in the building overnight? I know. That's why I didn't tell you. You can get into big trouble for this doghouse. I'll take that chance, but there's something you gotta know. You gotta. I think Chris might be the real thing. What real thing? You know, him. 
Santa Claus. Doghouse. I know, all. I know, but you gotta hear him talk. You gotta. He's all depressed about the state of the world. War, pandemics, people down on Christmas, down on everything. And this makes him Santa Claus. He just sounds like any three guys you might find on the street this time of year. I don't know, Lance. There's something about him there is. Something that seems authentic-like. Okay, let's say you're right. What do you want me to do about it? Well, I was thinking, you're smart. You work things out all the time. Maybe if you just talk to him, you could help him get, I don't know, the Christmas spirit back. And I strike you as the holly jolly sort, do I? You know what I mean. If anyone can come up with a solution, you can, Lance. <sighs> All right, I'll talk to him. But only because I have to kick him out again. But you'll talk to him first, right? Of course. We'll have a nice chat. But after that, out he goes. Capiche? Sure, sure. Whatever you say. I couldn't always figure Doghouse, and this was a time I definitely thought he was screwy. Could a grown man believe in Santa Claus? A grown man who, incidentally, was in charge of the library's boiler, which would blow up without proper care. I decided to think about something else, namely how to get Chris Kringle, real or not, out of the building without Effie knowing he'd been shacking up in our basement for two days. Something like that would be bad news for Doghouse and me both. I descended to Doghouse's room. I noticed he had decided to conveniently be someplace else just then, and found the bearded man in a heavy coat reclining on the cot Doghouse used for afternoon naps. He lay on top of the old army blanket that passed for bedding, and clutched his big plastic garbage sack to his chest. His eyes gazed up at the ceiling with a faraway look, and he didn't even glance my way when I came in. So you're a hard guy to get rid of. Hello, Lance. What do I call you, anyway? Our custodian thinks you're Chris Kringle. Well, that would be as good a name as any. Doesn't matter much now, since you're here to remove me from the premises. We'll get to that. How about you and I have a little chat first? As you wish. Doghouse is quite taken with you. He's a good man. A 9-1, as a matter of fact. And, uh, he seems to think you're, uh, well, who you pretend to be. And who do you think I'm pretending to be, Lance? Santa Claus, of course. <laughs> Do you think I look like Santa Claus? The beard and the build fit. You seem to be short a red suit, though. Mm. Oh, and there is that one other thing. Mm, what's that? Oh, that certain holly jolly spirit the real Saint Nick is known for. Ah, yes. I do like that. You're right. It's got Doghouse very concerned. He thinks the kiddies are going to miss out unless you make with the ho-ho-ho. Oh, Doghouse has a child's faith. It's done me good to be near him these past few days. But alas, I fear I am beyond hope. Look, the, the holidays get a lot of people down. There's people you can see, get some help. No shame in it. I'm afraid those options aren't open to me. Why not? Well, do you know what happens when you go into a counselor's office or a hospital and tell them you're Santa Claus? They put you in a ward with all the other Santa Clauses, along with three Napoleons, Jesus Christ, and the Easter Bunny. No, this is a burden I must bear alone. Not necessarily. Talking is a good fix for most things, and I'm a pretty good listener. Except you don't believe in me, do you, Lance? Is that what this is about? No one believes in Santa anymore, so you figure your usefulness is done. Usefulness. Hmm. When was I ever really useful? I was a symbol, Lance. I represented something to people, something good and wholesome. But symbols are only good so long as people agree what they mean. 
I'm afraid there's just as many anti-Christmas folks as pro these days. There's always been folks struck blue by Christmas. You must know that. Yes, and I understand, but it seems different now. This internet, it lets everyone say their piece, but it, it doesn't give you what you need. It doesn't teach you what's right or wrong. It just gives you what you want on a continuous loop. And if a person is a bit blue, as you say, around Christmas, well, then that's the message they'll see on their phones over and over again until they think that is the holidays. I used to think commercialism was the biggest challenge, but at least that had a, a gift-giving spirit at its center. But now, oh, people see darkness within themselves and nothing else. So you just decided to hide out this year? <sighs> I guess that's so. The task is just so monumental, Lance. It was never about giving gifts, you know. It was about giving a spirit, a feeling. That's harder than ever now. It just seems like everyone wants to complain all the time about everything. Where is there room for Christmas and all that? I don't have an answer for you. But I am afraid I do have to ask you to leave. Yes. Yes, you do. Where will you go? You mentioned Father Flanagan. Perhaps his church is a good place to start. Doghouse is going to be disappointed. He was hoping I could talk into going back to work. Yes, I imagine he was. Walk me out, Lance? Sure. We'll be sure to go by Effie. It'll impress her to see you escorting the vagrant from the building. It didn't, though, because I never saw Effie when me and the old gentleman went out together. I took him to the door, he shook my hand, and wished me a Merry Christmas, and then headed out into the snow. It was coming down so hard, I lost sight of him before he even left the parking lot, and I felt lower than I ever had. I was just staring out the window at the last spot I saw him, when suddenly... Chris! Chris, wait up! Hold it, doghouse. He's gone. Aw, oh, man. I knew I should have gone with you, I should have. Look, he left his sack. He did? That's funny, I've never seen him without it. Me neither. That's what's got me worried. Maybe I should go out looking. No way. A dozen Rudolphs couldn't cut through this blizzard doghouse. Wouldn't surprise me if Effie closed the library early today. Oh, jeez. He's gonna need this. What? What's in his sack? Take a look. It's his suit. So it is. Bells and all. Hey, look at this. What? The label. This suit is the property of Coburg's department store. You mean that old store downtown that went out of business last year out of business? Yeah. Hey, I bet that's who our friend Chris Kringle was, the Coburg Santa Claus. That poor guy's out of a job. Oh, you, uh, you think that's what it was? Doghouse, you really didn't think. No, no, of course not. There ain't no such thing as Santa Claus. I ain't a kid, Lance. I was just, you know, feeling for the guy. Out of a job at Christmas time. Must be rough, must be. Must be. Hey, I know that look. You're thinking on something, ain't you, Lance? What? That's okay. I'll leave you to it. But I believe in you, Lance. I know you'll come up with something. And at that moment, Doghouse hit me with the brightest smile I'd ever seen. Childlike faith? He had it in spades. But after only five minutes, and one bourbon, of rumination, I did indeed come up with a pretty good plan. I cleared said plan with Effie, gathered up the old man's plastic bag, and headed out into the snow, which had settled down into winter wonderland mode by then. Steady flakes, but no wind or bitter cold. 
I found him inside five minutes, sitting on a bench in the city park less than a block away. Chris Kringle, I presume? You should be inside, Lance. It's not a fit night out for man nor beast. Yeah, since I'm somewhere in between those two, I'll do fine. Here. Goodness, did I leave that behind? Yeah. Interesting contents in there. Did you look into my personal property, Lance? That's very naughty, you know. Well, personal property left at the public library becomes the property of the lost and found until reclaimed. I was well within my rights to see you had a Santa suit in there. Hmm. And you came out into a storm to give it back to me. Well, maybe I just wanted it out of the library. Or maybe I had another idea in mind. What's that? Well, I've been talking to Ms. Perrine, and we have an opening at the library this season. Oh, what sort of opening? We do story time for the kids on Thursdays. It's fun in the winter to change it up a bit and give the kids something special. Something like, say, uh, story time with Santa Claus? You'd... you'd want me to read to the children? That's right. She'd even let you choose the books. And if some of the kids wanted to sit on your lap and make with the present requests after the stories, we figure there's no harm in that. Well, this... this is a wonderful offer, lads, but, uh... No buts. We both know you got nothing going on at the moment, Chris. The next story time is tomorrow afternoon. Just think about it until then. He showed, of course, but not in a heavy gray coat. Our own Chris Kringle showed up in the junior room, boots and buckles gleaming, and his beard suddenly snow white. And did he have a twinkle in his eye? You bet he did. I barely recognized the guy, he was so transformed. The kids took to him right away, and after the reading of a few classics, including a poem by one Clement Clark Moore, they lined up to sit on the old guy's lap and whisper their fondest wishes into his ear. Effie and I stood at the back of the room and took it all in, not quite able to believe what we were seeing. Here was Santa Claus, the one and only, in our library. It seemed too good to be true, because as both of us knew, it was. Goodbye, little one. Bye-bye now. <laughs> Ooh, well, that's a wrap, Chris. Nice job. It was a pleasure, Lance. I'd forgotten what a simple pleasure it was to read to children. Their little minds are so nimble and quick. Well, it's pretty much what we're all about here. Effie said she wanted to add a special story time tomorrow. You up for it? I think I could be persuaded. For some cookies and milk. <laughs> hey, do you have a place to stay until then? Doghouse's cot is probably still available. Thank you, Lance, but I have a lot of work to do and not much time to do it in. Sure, but you have a place to stay, right? Now I said don't worry about me. I won't be sleeping much between now and Christmas anyway. Well, there is a place for you here if you need it. Thank you, Lance. Tomorrow? Tomorrow. Same time. That's fine. And with that, the old guy laid a finger alongside his nose, turned, and strode out of the room. He came back the next day for story time, and the day after that. By then, it was about the 23rd of December, and Chris claimed he had too much work to take an hour off for story time, much to the despair of a rather large crowd of regulars that had been growing ever since Chris became our designated reader. Finally, Effie, Doghouse, and I found ourselves outside the library on Christmas Eve. Effie hanging a sign on the door that we would be closed to the public until the 26th. That's it. 
Another holiday in the books. Well, practically another. Christmas ain't over until you sleepwalk through next week. I never get anything done in between the holidays. Don't remind me, Lance. One of these years, I'm just going to go lay on a beach until January 10th and let you do the yearly budget. Hmm, good. Then maybe I'll finally get that infrared sensing equipment I've been asking for. Well, if you've been very good this year, maybe our good friend Chris will bring it to you. I don't think I've been that good. Hey, Doghouse, why the long face? What? Oh, uh, sorry, Lance. I was just thinking I was. What about? Well, do we know Chris is okay? I mean, he was homeless, he was. How do we know he's not out on the street somewhere at the street? Oh, I'm sure he found a place at Father Flanagan's or somewhere. He certainly hasn't looked homeless since coming in with his costume on. Yeah, that's right. If he found a place to clean up that good, he surely has a place to sleep now. I know. It's just, I worry is all I worry. It's funny, Doghouse. But I had half a notion you thought he was the real thing. Who, me? Uh, don't, don't be silly, boss. I know there ain't no such thing as... Uh, anyone else hear that? Well... Yeah, it's a sleigh bell. They're everywhere this time of year, ain't they? Yeah, but that one sounds like it's coming from above us. Right above us. <laughs> that silly doghouse. It's just a trick of the sound. A, a sonic anomaly. But I feel if it weren't so cloudy out, I'd be able to look up and see... Don't say it. <laughs> did, did you hear that? Well, I'll tell you, Doghouse, I don't know what I heard, but you know what I'm going to do? What's that? I'm going home and hanging up my stocking. Seems like a smart move. This ain't the year to stop believing in Santa Claus. This has been another adventure of Lance Manley, Library Detective, brought to you by Too Bright, the book light that recognizes only one holiday in December, so you'd better too. And from all of us here at Icebox Radio, Happy, Happy Holidays! holidays. This has been Lance Manley and the Case of the Sorrowful Santa, starring Caleb Silvers as Lance Manley. The cast featured Diane Adams as Effie Perrine, Justin Kapla as Doghouse Riley, and Jeffrey Adams as Chris. Script, direction, and post-production by Jeffrey Adams. Some music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. For a complete song list, see the show notes of this episode. This program copyright 2022 by the Icebox Radio Theater, which is solely responsible for its content. Partial funding made possible in part by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And from all of us here once again, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from Icebox Radio. Number nine on the Countdown 12 Plays of Christmas here from the Icebox Radio Theater. Once again, this is Jeff. 
Hope you're listening to this on or about Christmas, enjoying your holiday traditions and gift opening and turkey and what have you. And we're just there providing the background noise, which is something we do extremely well. Well, the next play we have uh, in line number eight on the countdown goes back a little ways, 2010, as a matter of fact. And it's entitled Yens and Dougie's Christmas on Main Street. Yens and Dougie were uh, characters that appeared in, I think, about three plays here at the IBRT. Now, you'll notice some interesting things about the format of this show, uh, because originally it was presented serialized as part of the Calls to Santa program. Uh, That was a fundraiser that we did for several years here in International Falls, where we broadcast on a local radio station, and kids got a chance to call in and talk to Santa Claus directly, who was played by guess who? (laughs) Yes, that's true. But whenever we did that, we always had a lot of Christmas music to play, and every year we would have an original Christmas story to broadcast as part of the show. And in 2010, it was Jens and Dougie. It stars Harley Droba and Tom Vement. Interesting to note, Harley Droba hasn't acted with us for a while because he is uh, kind of busy. He's the mayor of International Falls and has been for several years. He's the really goofy one in this story. Uh, so here is number eight on the countdown. It's Jens and Dougie's Christmas on Main Street. Hey, Zizi, how about a refill? Don't you think you've had enough, Dougie? Oh, what are you talking about? This ain't a bar. Yeah, but you start to yell when you've had too much caffeine. What are you talking about, Jens? Maybe you've had enough. Oh, maybe I've had enough. Enough, yes. (laughs) Hey, what's wrong there, Cece? Oh, nothing. Oh, what's wrong there, Cece? Dougie, Dougie, take her down a notch. Oh, all right. Uh, What's wrong there, uh, Cece? Nothing. Here's your refill, guys. Oh, thanks, Cece. Oh, what do you got planned for Christmas? I don't know. I guess I'll go play in the snow or something. Oh, yeah. Hey, I remember this one time I made a huge snowfall for Christmas. Me and my cousin caught Jens in a crossfire and he had to go to the hospital. terrible. (laughs) Oh, we were just kids and Jens went to the hospital a lot in those days. Hey, it weren't my fault. I was scrawny. You scrawny? You must weigh 300 pounds. Well, I didn't then. Besides, Dougie is just jealous because I got to play hockey and his mommy wouldn't let him. Oh, that's how I got half those injuries. Oh, I got more injuries sledding at Rainier Hill than you ever did at hockey. I snow injuries. It's a miracle anyone lives through childhood in this town. Oh, it was nothing to worry about. Just a scrape here, bruise there. It is something to worry about. It's not safe living here all winter. It is not safe. Well, what do you mean, Cece? We grow up here and we come out okay. Well, you sound like you grew up in a barn. Well, what's wrong with her? You mean you two don't know? What? You spend all your time in this coffee shop and you can't see what's up with Cece? She's this way every Christmas. Well, come on, Bill. We ain't mind readers. You sure aren't. Look, it's Christmas Eve, right? 
And Cece is from the Philippines, way down south in the Pacific, where it's warm all year, including Christmas. Oh, what a shame. Christmas is all about snow and Santa and the North Pole and stuff. Christmas is about being at home with your family. And that poor woman's family is about 10,000 miles away. And I'll bet every time winter comes on, she thinks about that. You mean Cece don't have any family closer than the Philippines? You spend hours in here every day. Haven't you ever asked her about the, her family? Well, we didn't want to pry. Yeah, right. You know, boys, you spend so much time in here, you might be the closest thing to family Cece has in this town. I'd remember that if I were you. Wow. Oh, don't listen to old Bill. He's always trying to make me feel guilty about something. He is? Oh, sure. One time when I ran into his car in an accident, he tried to guilt me into giving him the name of my insurance company. Oh, can you believe that? Oh, well, I don't know. He, he seems like a pretty smart guy. Totally wasn't my fault. Hey, they shouldn't put the fries in the bottom of the bag where you can't reach them. But, Jens, think about this. What if she really doesn't have any family in town? Well, I, I think she... Doesn't she have a sister? No, that one was here last summer, just came for a visit. Well, then, uh, oh, don't worry so much. She's fine. But look at this sign. She's keeping the Busy Bee Cafe open on Christmas. Oh, sure she is. Uh, I'll probably come down for lunch about noon. Uh, the wife said we ain't having the turkey till three this year. Oh, nobody's open on Christmas, Yens. Nobody that has a place to go. Ah, oh, well... What do you want me to do about it? Oh, I got it! Oh, no. You have an idea, don't oh, you? it's a beaut, too. Oh, Dougie, whenever you have an idea, we always end up talking to a judge. No, no, this is good. Oh, I don't like judges, Dougie. Oh, this is the best idea I've oh, ever had. They sure don't like me. Quite a second. Remember what Bill said about us being Cece's only family in town? Oh, you're going to suggest we pay off our tabs, aren't you? No, that'd be crazy. But we're going to do something better. What? We're going to get her a Christmas present. Well, I suppose that would be nice. Oh, my wife's sister makes these really nice potholders. No. Oh, wait till you see them. She takes pictures from magazines, irons them on these pre-made potholders she buys from some catalog. Oh, she's got one with baby Jesus. And one with Santa, and even Brett Favre and Barack Obama. Oh, and they're only 98 cents. No, no, that ain't it. Oh, we just can't get her any old Christmas present. We have to get her the perfect Christmas gift. Why? Oh, don't argue. Come on. Oh, but it's snowing out. This is the icebox, Jens. If it's snowing, that means it's warming up. Oof, What great idea does Dougie have in mind? Tune in tomorrow at this time to find out on Jens and Dougie in Christmas on Main Street. Jens and Doggy, two of the funniest characters in Icebox, Minnesota, have decided to get their local coffee maven, Cece, the perfect Christmas gift. Out on a snowy Christmas Eve, Jens and Doggy come to the first store along Icebox's brightly lit main street. 
Come on, Jens. Oh, calm down. I'm right behind you. What are we doing here? First stop on Main Street is the Icebox Tone Town. I can see what it is. It's the old music shop. Oh, boy, I haven't been in here since I had to buy reeds for junior high band. Oh, I did. I didn't know you played in the band. Oh, third chair alto sax for five straight years. Oh, boy, I hated that band teacher. Oh, what was her name? Uh, Mrs. Crochet. Uh, that that was it. wonder whatever happened to that old bat. She retired and bought the music store. Oh, yeah. What? Well, oh, no. Hello, Arthur. It's nice <laughs> to see you again. <laughs> Arthur? <laughs> you, you remember me, Mrs. Crochet? Of course. Oh, but that was 30 years ago. Well, changed a bit. Well, the faces slipped my mind, Arthur, but I never forget an embouchure. Oh, were you a fancier dresser then, Jens? Quiet. Uh, it's good to see you again, Mrs. Crochet. It's good to see you. I assumed you'd given up the saxophone since you haven't been in for reeds in 30 years. Oh, I ain't given it up. You haven't? You haven't? Uh, no, it, it, still, uh, it still plays a very important part in my life. Yeah, his uh, wife planted daisies in it three summers ago. <laughs> quiet! Ow! Hey, quit elbowing me. Just be quiet. You just made me. Boys? Yes, yes ma'am. Ma That's better. Now, what can I do for you, Arthur? Ask him. He started it. Well, we're, we're looking for a present. I see. Does the party in question play an instrument? Oh, I don't know about that. But she can sure make one of them espresso machines sing. I don't understand. Oh, Mrs. Crochet, uh, uh, we're just looking for uh, a nice gift for Cece down at the Busy Bee. Uh, Dougie here figures she's a lonely for home at Christmas and wanted to cheer her up. Oh, I see. Well, that's very thoughtful, Dougie. Oh, th thank you, ma'am. But I'm afraid that without knowing Cece well, I, I cannot recommend a suitable gift for her. Mm, unless... Oh, do you think of something? Perhaps. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you gave the gift of song? Uh, the gift of what now? Well, everyone appreciates music. You should regale your friend with carols. Arthur could play alto saxophone, and you young men could sing. Sing? Uh, that's a nice idea, Mrs. Crochet. Miss Sax really is pushing up daisies. Well, no matter. We have several fine instruments for sale or rent right here. Oh, now you see what you got us into. Oh, what do you mean? This is going to be great. Oh, yeah? Oh, why don't you give us a song, Dougie? Oh, okay. How about uh, Jingle Bells? Oh, sounds great. Okay. <coughs> jingle bells, jingle bells, Stop. jingle all Stop. the way. Stop! Oh, Please, in the name of oh. John Philip Sousa, desist. Oh. Arthur, I begin to see your point about the validity of my suggested gift. Yes, ma'am. Perhaps, well, perhaps there is another possibility. <laughs> What does Mrs. Crochet have in mind? Tuned in tomorrow at this time to find out on Jens and Dougie in Christmas on Main Street.
It's Jens and Dougie's Christmas on Main Street. In this episode, we find Jens and Dougie in the local music shop, where the shop owner and Jens's former music teacher has just thought of a good gift idea for Cece, the woman the boys are shopping for. Arthur, I think I've thought of an excellent gift. Ayla, oh Ayla, you called me, Mrs. Crochet. Hey, it's Ayla Macintosh. Oh, you're working here now, Ayla. Oh, just part-time. What's happening, fellas? Ayla, Arthur and his friend here have need of a song. I believe a Christmas song, correct, gentlemen? Oh, that's the idea. It's to be a gift for a friend. I thought perhaps you might be able to help them. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I might be able to come up with something. Who's the friend? Is Cece down at the Busy Bee? Oh, sure, I know Cece. I think I know just the one. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a Merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay From now on Our troubles will be miles away Here we are As in olden days Happy golden days of yore Faithful friends Who are dear to us Gather near to us Once more be together if the fates allow hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas Mrs. Crochet. Oh, sure was, Ayla. Thanks. Hey, Jens. What is it, Dougie? Oh, I just thought of something. Uh, how are we going to wrap up a song? Oh, well, uh, I suppose we could wrap up Ayla. Oh, no. I promised myself I'd never take a job where I got gift wrapped. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Oh, maybe we should just keep shopping. Oh, maybe you're right. Oh, thanks there, Ayla. We, we'll see you later. Oh, and, and Merry Christmas. Well, that was a bust. Oh, nice song, though. Oh, sure was. But there's still more stores, Jens. Oh, there better be. Oh, Christmas is getting closer and closer. (laughs) 
What's next for Jens and Dougie? Find out tomorrow at this time on Jens and Dougie in Christmas on Main Street. Jens and Dougie have been searching for the perfect Christmas gift for their best friend, coffee shop owner Cece, who's feeling a little homesick this Christmas. Yesterday's stop was the local music store. Where will Jens and Dougie stop next? Can't believe you talked me into this. Oh, come on. We'll get out of the storm and you'll feel better. Oh, now what are we doing in here? Oh, wow. I haven't been in this shop in years. Oh, it's the toy store, Dougie. I used to spend hours in here when I was a kid. Look, they got the Tower of Rubber Ducks. (laughs) And Robot Town. (laughs) And the Teddy Bear House of Representatives. Hey, it doesn't make any noise, see? Yeah, I get it, yeah. Teddy Bear what? House of Representatives. Old Mr. Wilson, the store owner, used to make sure that there were bear for every member of Congress. And when he got one sold, he'd hold a special election to replace him. (laughs) Oh, wasn't that the guy? He was arrested for... um... Oh, racketeering, yeah, but uh, he said the bears led him down the wrong path. Well, I suppose C.C. would like one of those here bears. Uh... Oh, how about this big group over there in the corner having a tea party? Nah, that would break up a set. Besides, I don't think she's the stuffed bear type. Okay, uh... Oh, well, how about a board game? Oh, look, look, they got Parcheesi, uh, Monopoly, Snakes and Ladders... Oh, I hate that game. Sorry. Oh, it's alright. I just never liked the idea of snakes on a board game. What? Oh, you apologized to me for hating that game, so I was explaining why I did. Oh, no, no, I I wasn't apologizing. I was saying the name of a game. Oh, Snakes and Ladders. Sorry. I said Snakes and Ladders. Sorry. Is your hearing going bad, Jens? I said sorry. You don't need to apologize for it. Everyone loses their hearing at your age. Oh, no, I'm saying the name of the game. It's Sorry. I agree. I was really glad when it came out with the newer version called Shoots and Ladders. It was a whole lot better. Oh, Dougie, I don't even know what you're talking about. Sorry? No. Oh, on second thought, I don't think CC would like that. She won't like what? She won't like sorry. Oh, I don't know. I've apologized to her a lot, and she's always seemed to appreciate that. <sighs> Never mind. Uh, what else they got? Well, they got Scrabble, one of them checkers and chess combo sets. Hey, look at this! What is that thing? It's the new Box Station X Wii Edition. Oh, I didn't think these things were even out yet. Oh, I really don't think CC would like that. All right. They got Morton Anderson football with the Freddy Krueger graphics engine. The injuries are now 23% more realistic, you know? Oh, we got to get moving, Dougie. Here, take the other controller. It'll be fun. I never know how to use these things. That's why it's going to be fun. Come on. Oh, Dougie. Oh, now you kick off. You just hold down the A, B, and wiggle your joystick to the right. To what now? That thing on the controller. Oh, like this. No! You just kicked it out of bounds. Five-yard penalty. Okay, okay. Like this. 
Right, I said right. Oh, when you hold down the A, B, and go left, you vote no on the collective bargaining agreement. See how your team's walking off the field now? Oh. Oh, and now they're coming back with a bunch of picket signs. Oh, so you win. Oh, good game, Dougie. Oh, let's play another game. We don't got time. We got to get moving. Look at this one. It's Attack of the Zombie Astronauts from the Planet Swine and Flu. Oh, I really don't think CC would like one. Wow, look at the box. It's rated N for nobody. Here, take that controller. Oh, all right. What do I do? Well, first thing you got to do is get some ammo. You got to do that by shooting that box. You shoot something to get ammo? Uh, you pretty much shoot everything in this game. Next, we need food. Shoot that turkey lying on the ground. Why is there a turkey lying on the ground? Well, you need to eat for strength, so shoot it. You want me to shoot it or eat it? Well, you eat it by shooting it, see? There. Oh, look, a pretty girl wants to join her zombie hunting team. Shoot her to tell her she can. I'm not shooting her. She only looks to be about 13. Oh, I know. That's what makes her so dangerous. Oh, no. Here comes the zombies. Oh, should I shoot them? No, save your ammo. We got to use the chainsaw. I really don't think CC is going to like this game, Dougie. Pew, pew. Got you, you living dead fiend from another world. Come on, Yen. Oh, we got to find her a present. Oh, no, this is fun. Oh, Dougie, this was all your idea. Just a few more minutes. Oh, I knew it was going to be like this. You're all raring to go until something like that game comes along. Oh, then it's up to Yens. Fine. Oh, wait, Yens. Yens. Don't go away! Wait, yes! Please, wait! Uh Uh-oh, the boys are having a fight. Will they get it together in time to find Cece the perfect Christmas gift? Tune in tomorrow for the exciting conclusion to Yens and Dougie in Christmas on Main Street. Jens and Dougie are searching for the perfect Christmas gift for their best friend, coffee shop owner Cece, who's feeling a little homesick this Christmas. But after the last episode, the boys had a fight, and we find them now back on the street, snow falling all around. Jens, Jens, wait up, Jens! ain't talking to you. Oh, wait up a second. Oh, just don't talk to me. Oh, Jens, Jens, what would you run off for? Oh, like you don't know. You're always coming up with these crazy ideas, leaving me holding the bag. Oh, getting Cece a Christmas present is not a crazy idea, Jens. Oh, it is when you go to work on it. Oh, face it, Dougie. We don't got no idea what Cece would like for Christmas. Uh, she's just a gal that pours our coffee every day. No, she isn't. She's our friend. Well, if you're such a great friend, how come you got no idea what she'd like? We've been up and down the street. We got no better idea what to get her now than when we started. What well, well, was that? Well, we're all the way down to the end of the street. There's the church, of course. Wow. Yeah, I didn't think we came this far. Must be the candlelight service, huh? Yeah, sure. About that time. I, I wouldn't mind getting out of the cold yet. Yeah, yeah, well, all right.
were shepherds living out in fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news and tidings of great joy. For today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah of the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Jens? Yeah, doggy. I got another idea. Oh, yeah? Oh, come on. We got, we got one more stop. And then we went to the toy shop. Video game shop, more like it. And then I thought for sure we weren't going to find anything. But then, well, we got a little inspiration. And we finally got an idea. Merry Christmas, Cece. This boy this is a plane ticket. Oh, you bet. You won't be home for Christmas, of course. Oh, it being Christmas Eve and all. Hey, but we figure, you know, hey, New Year's. Oh, boys. Thank you so much. She's crying. I know. Is that because uh, the present that we oh, gave her? Oh, it's fine, Dougie. She's happy. Oh, it's hard to tell sometimes. I know. Oh, Happy New Year, Cece. Happy New Year, boys. Oh, how was your trip? Oh, it was wonderful. We all got together. I saw cousins I haven't seen in years. Oh, I bet they were surprised to see you. Oh, you oh, just yeah. can't your family. imagine. That's cool. Oh, it was wonderful to see them. My mama looked so good and my papa was so surprised. I had Jens and Dougie's Christmas on Main Street starred Harley Droba as Dougie. Tom Bement as Gans, Victoria Olson as Cece and Mrs. Crochet, and featured the singing talents of Ayla McIntosh. And introducing in our production, Ellie Nelson as the Bible Reader. Jens and Dougie's Christmas on Main Street was written and directed by Jeffrey Adams. Sound effects by Dave Irwin. This program copyright 2010 by the Icebox Radio Theater. All rights reserved. For more information, visit their website, iceboxradio.org. Oh boy, it was Harley Droba, Tom Bement, Vicki Olson, and a song by Ayla McIntosh, and in one of her very few appearances, the young Ellie Nelson gives you an idea how long ago that version of Jens and Dougie was recorded. Ellie has now graduated college, I believe. That's what happens when you have kids in your radio shows. They just grow up. Well, moving on with our countdown, it's number seven up next. Another live recording. This of the classic O. Henry story, The Gift of the Magi, that was recorded in 2018 at the Evangelical Covenant Church here in the Falls. At a social event, they asked us to come be the entertainment for the evening, and we provided uh, this brief a Christmas story that I think is very familiar to most of us. It stars Cody Boyer, Jessica Kulink, and Diane Adams, along with myself doing the Foley sound effects. So here is number seven on our countdown. It's The Gift of the Magi, recorded before a live audience on the 12 Plays of Christmas. The 
$1.87. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time. Della counted it for the third time. It was still the same. And the next day would be Christmas. One dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. While Della's sniffles are gradually subsiding, take a look at the vestibule below, where you will see on the letterbox a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young. That's Della. She has now finished her cry and is looking into the pier glass, attending to her cheeks with the powder rag. Suddenly, oh, as she stands before the glass, she pulls down her hair and lets it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair, which now ripples about her, shining like a cascade of brown waters and reaching below her knees. Her eyes are brilliant, but her face has lost its color. Nervously and quickly, she does her hair up again, slips into her old brown jacket, puts on her old brown hat, and in the twinkling of an eye, she is halfway down the stairs and out on the street. Della has a determined, almost desperate look as she cites a sign reading, Madame Saffroni, hair goods of all kinds. She stops quickly, then opens the door, which leads to a flight of stairs. Della rushes, panting up the stairs, and plump into the portly figure of Madame Saffroni. Will you buy my hair? I buy hair. Take your hat off. Let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down ripples the brown cascade. Mm-hmm. Twenty dollars. All right. Only quickly, please. In a few moments, the implacable Madame Saffroni and her scissors have done the job, and Della, minus her hair, but richer by twenty dollars, flees from the store into the street again. This time, she's looking for a different store, a store in which to buy, not to sell. At last, she finds herself in a department store in the midst of a gay holiday throng. At the jewelry counter, as she longingly handles a platinum chain, she hesitantly asks, You did say $21, didn't you? 
Yes. Yes, that's what I thought. This is it. This is the present just made for Jim and no one else. There's no other like it in any of the stores. She knows, for she turned all of them inside out. It's a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design. Della has made her mind up. I'll take it. With the chain wrapped in a holiday box and clutched in her eager hand, Della finds herself out again in the street. But this time, she's in such a rosy glow, she hardly notices the other last-minute shoppers hurrying by. The street trio playing Christmas carols, the old gentleman who tries to sell her a holly wreath, it seems but seconds until she is back in the little furnished flat again. There's a sudden shock as the pier glass confronts her, this time accusingly. Now comes the moment of reckoning, as she gazes with dismay at the short ends of her hair. The rosy glow gives way to prudence and reason. Out comes the curling iron, on with the gas jet, as she sets to work repairing the ravages made by generosity and love. In 40 minutes, she finishes with the last curl lying tiny and close to her head, making her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. But to Della, gazing critically at herself in the pier glass, the result is anything but wonderful. If Jim doesn't kill me first, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But no more time for reflections, physical or mental. It's nearly seven, and Jim is never late. She sits nervously, waiting for Jim. Now she hears his steps on the stairway down on the first flight. She has a habit of saying silent little prayers about the simplest everyday things. And now she whispers, Oh, please, God, make him not mind my hair so much. Make him think I'm still pretty. The door opens, and Jim steps in and closes it. He has a smile of welcome on his face as he glances around the room for Della. But the smile freezes on his lips as he sees Suddenly, her sitting on the corner of the table. An expression comes into his eyes as immovable as a setter dog at the scent of quail. The expression terrifies Della, who is expecting anger, surprise, disapproval, or even horror. But not this look of... of... Della wriggles off the table and goes to him. Jim, darling, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Oh, just say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. And wait till you see the beautiful gift I got for you. Della rattled on like that. But after she was all through, all Jim could ask laboriously was... You've cut off your hair? Della tried again, this time more patiently. Sold, I tell you. Sold and gone. And it went for you, Jim. Maybe the hairs on my head were numbered, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Now shall we have supper? At last, Jim seemed to wake out of his trance. 
He enfolded Della in his arms, and then he carefully draws a package from his overcoat pocket and tosses it on the table. Nimble fingers quickly tear open the string paper, and then... Oh, Jim, they're beautiful! How did you know? They're they're what I've always wanted! Oh, no, my hair, my hair! Oh, Jim, how can I wear them? There they lay, the combs, the set Della had worshipped for so long in an exclusive shop window, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful and vanished hair. They were expensive combs, Della knew, and her heart had craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now, Della hugs them to her and looks up at Jim with dim eyes and a smile. My hair does grow fast, Jim. Then Della puts the combs down carefully, lovingly, and with even more radiantly prepares to show Jim his gift. She holds it out to him eagerly on outstretched palm. The dull, precious metal gleams and glows, entirely satisfied with its own value. Isn't it a beauty, Jim? Now you have to look at the time every 15 minutes. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks with the chain. For answer, Jim sits down suddenly on the couch. Del, he says. Uh, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. I... I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, how about supper? The Magi, as you know, were wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, these foolish ones were the wisest. They are the Magi. Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Thank you very much. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Star Jessica Kulig as Della, Cody Boyer as Jim, and Diane Adams as the Storyteller. Sound effects by Jeffrey Adams. The script was originally developed for the Coronet Little Show, a syndicated radio program. This episode premiered on December 19th, 1943. Tonight's play was recorded before a live audience at the Evangelical Covenant Church of International Falls, Minnesota, on December 2nd, 2018. It is copyright 2018 by the Icebox Radio Theater, all rights reserved. More information at iceboxradio.org.
Gift of the Magi there. On the Icebox Radio Theater's 12 Plays of Christmas. Well, we're halfway because we're going to enjoy number six now. It's another old-time radio recreation. And it's another story that was recorded and broadcast on November of 2022 when we did a live show of old-time radio mysteries here in uh, here at the house at Studio 908. Earlier, you heard Nero Wolf, who was part of the evening, and now we're going to enjoy Candy Matson, starring Ayla McIntosh. Candy Matson uh, actually is a mystery series that's just recently come into some fame because a, a lot more women are participating in old-time radio recreations. And when they went looking for a OTR detective who happened to be female, there just weren't that many. And Candy Matson is an excellent example. Uh, this series was uh, broadcast in the late 40s from a station in San Francisco. Unfortunately, never got a national run, uh, but it is developing quite the, the cult following right now. So here is... Starring Ayla McIntosh, Justin Kapla, Diane Adams, Ian Hall, James Yunt, myself, and Carice Boyer, with live sound effects from Evie Conat. Here is the Candy Manson episode, Jack Frost, on the Icebox Radio Theater's 12 Plays of Christmas. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Manson. The National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Candy! Candy, over here! What? Why, Myra Fisher, what are you doing here in a department store with your work clothes on? I work here, dear. I'm a wage slave. <laughs> well, I must say it looks good on you. What do you slave at? I'm head of advertising and promotion. Well, quite a spot, eh, girl? Well, it was until this morning. Oh? Now my neck is in the fire. Oh, what'd you do? Forget to proofread one of your ads? <sighs> Nothing so trivial, dear, believe me. But I am glad to have bumped into you. Well, maybe you'll change your mind when I tell you I've been shoplifting. No, I'm serious, Candy. Could you spare a moment and come up to my office? Why, sure. And wipe that frown off your fr- off your brow. It's wrinkling your makeup. Well, yours would wrinkle too if you had a missing Santa Claus helper on your hands. Well, well. Now there's a situation. And it almost broke Candy Matson's heart when someone told her there was no Santa Claus's helper, one Jack Frost. Listen, here she is now to tell you all about it. That's right, what the man said. I ran into a deal where we had a missing Santa Claus helper, Jack Frost. The gent with the icicles was supposed to talk to the tiny tots at the Brownstone, one of San Francisco's larger and classier department stores. I'd gone down there that afternoon shopping. I wanted a bow tie for my old pal, Inspector Ray Mallard of the San Francisco Police Department. A bow tie that lit up and spelled Cossack when you pressed the button on the battery. That was when I bumped into this gal, Myra Fisher. We went up to her office on the sixth floor, and she sat me down. Cigaretted me, too. You think I'm fooling about this Jack Frost thing, Candy, don't you? Well, now look, dear, we all have our little peccadilloes. Yours just merely happens to be a missing Jack Frost. You'll get over it. I refrain from hurling this ashtray at you, Candy, only because of our long acquaintance. Well, good. Now listen to me. We've had a Santa Claus helper here for almost a month, and a darn good one. 
The kids were crazy about him. This morning, he didn't show. Well, you don't suppose Jackie boy got in the mood and caught the Christmas spirit, do you? You know, the kind that comes in pints? No, he wasn't that sort of Joe. Well, your answer is simple. Hire a new one. They're hired through an agency. I called the one we do business with, and they're fresh out of Jack Frost. And I've got to get one, Candy. Otherwise, I come down ten notches in the opinion of the brass. I don't want you to think I'm unsympathetic, Myra, but what can I do? Well, you get around. You know people. Find me somebody, anybody, who will take over the job. Hmm. Well, okay. I'll do the best I can, Myra. Oh, Candy, you're a dear. Yeah, one of Santa's dears. Okay, I'll try and find you a Jack Frost, Myra, but don't hold it against me if he turns out to look more like Humpty Dumpty. I went home and looked up the Webster's definition of soft. It said, soft, easily yielding to pressure. That was me, Candy Matson, girl dope. Here I had all my Christmas shopping to do and I agreed to find a substitute Jack Frost. I had no idea where to start, so I changed into something red and green for a stop and go, also for Christmas, and went over to see my friendly advisor, Rembrandt Watson. Rembrandt is a photographer and an excellent one, too, now that he doesn't have the sherry shivers or the port palsies. He lives on California Street, just kitten rompers from Old St. Mary's, with a statue of Sun Yat-sen for company at a park next door. Oh, Candy Dove, how delightful. Do come in, won't you? Thanks, Rembrandt. Oh, Pet, you're acquainted with my friend Diogenes Murphy, aren't you? Oh, yes. Hello again, Mr. Murphy. Why, good afternoon, lass. You look prettier than ever the last time I saw you. Uh-oh. Here comes the blarney. Young lady Diogenes Murphy, the honest Irishman, never says a word he doesn't mean. How do you think I managed to sell so many used cars at my place on Van Ness Avenue? Because you're an honest Irishman? Ah, but you're so right, lass. Incidentally, if you need a good car, I can get you one at a very reasonable Diogenes. price. Diogenes. Oh, I'm sorry. I got carried away. <laughs> I didn't mean to barge in on you like this, Rembrandt. Oh, don't be ridiculous, dear. No, don't be. Think nothing of it, lass. I'm on me way now. Rembrandt and I were only discussing the situation of the wharf. And to what conclusion did you come? Uh, it stinks. The bottom of the afternoon to the both of ye. <laughs> Oh, he's quite a boy. Yes, I'm very fond of Diogenes. What brings you around this way, dear? Jack Frost. Ah, yes. Now, getting on with our conversation, what brings you this way, dear? Jack Frost. Maybe the needle is bad. Should we try again? I know how you feel. I reacted the same way myself. I'll give you the pocket-sized edition. The Brownstone Department Store is without a Santa's helper, Jack Frost. He didn't show up for work this morning. Said I'd find him a new one. Oh, that's very sweet of you, Dove. It's very dumb of me. I only know of one character who even remotely looks like Jack Frost. I met him up in Alaska when I was traveling with the USO. Won't do you much good down here, will he? No. That's why I came to see you, Rembrandt. Don't you keep a cross-file on models you've used in photography? As a matter of fact, I do. Here, in this little book, let's see. Men... Thin, extremely, I have just one. Pietro Tarantello, would you care for a Sicilian Jack Frost? In Sicily, yes. Hey, what's that? Where? 
on that chair next to you. Oh, that's the afternoon paper, dear. Diogenes left it, I imagine. Yes, but on the front page. Why, here's the whole story about the missing Jack Frost on the front page. Oh, the, the brownstone is Santa's helpers are missing. Hmm, what he got in his Christmas stocking. A slug through the head. That is no way to treat a Jack Frost. Well, and here's a picture of the guy, without his false icicles. Ugh, what a ham. Looks like he stepped right out of an 1890 Shakespearean play. <laughs> I hate to say this, Rembrandt, but he resembles you. I take back what I said. <gasps> Rembrandt! Divorce yourself from that tone of voice, Candy. I don't like it. Rembrandt, I've got an idea. You usually do. You like little children. Can't stand them. You like to talk to people. I abhor conversation. You like to be charming. Lost my charm. Gay. Lost my gay. With the help of a few icicles, Ducky, you're going to be Jack Frost. Rembrandt fought. He argued. He paced the floor. He had the vapors. He fainted. I brought him to. I won the argument. I got my friend Myra Fisher on the phone and informed her that one R. Watson would assume the role of Jolly Jack Frost on the morrow. She was delighted. I couldn't say the same for Rembrandt. Then I went home. I was greeted by a sound very much like that of a phone ringing. Using my keen instincts, I figured it was the phone. It was. Hello, Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. How do you do, Miss Manson? Allow me to introduce myself? Allowed. My name is Burke, Prentice Burke. I'm the first assistant vice president of the Brownstone. Brownstone? Oh, yes, that's a store of some kind, isn't it? Uh, yes. Now, the reason for my call. There has been, shall I say, a rather unfortunate occurrence in the store today. So I read. I need the help of a professional sleuth. You were highly recommended by head of our advertising department, Miss Myra Fisher. Aha, the thick plottons. I beg your pardon? Oh, no need to. You didn't do anything. Okay. Care to talk to me now, Mr. Burke? Oh, I'd... I'd much rather have you come down to my office, Miss Matson. Very well. I'll be there in half an hour if I can find a place to park. I only had time for a fast change, so I made it. Then I climbed in my car, drove down Kearney Street, waved a crisp single under the nose of a hotel doorman, and had my car taken care of. Then into the brownstone and up to Mr. Prentice Burke's office. I flipped a hip past the girl's secretary and walked on in. Burke was waiting for me. That was obvious. I could tell by the expression on his face. It was worried look number 12B. How do you do, Mr. Burke? I'm Candy Madsen. Uh, sit down, won't you? Thank you. Uh, now our subject is what? Uh, a man named Jordan. Well, that's on another network. I beg your pardon? Oh, that's all right. Now about this Jordan? Uh, yes, Ralph Jordan to be exact. Well, that's a relief. For a moment, I thought you wanted to talk about Jack Frost. That's just it. He was Jack Frost. Oh, me and my big mouth. He was working here up until yesterday afternoon. Maybe you read about it. Uh, he was found shot today. Yes, yes, uh, I read about it. That's the reason I've called you. Why didn't you have your own store detectives take over, Mr. Burke? No, no, that would never do. I want no one in the store to know about what's going on. Ah, intrigue. Quite possibly. I have reason to suspect that Jordan was killed by someone in our employ. 
I want to find out who that someone was before the police do and splash it all over the front pages. Hmm, publicity conscious, eh? Well, business has been off for the whole year, and any bad breaks in the press would hurt us that much more. Well, maybe you've got a point there. I know I have. Okay, I'll take the job. You say you have a suspicion. What is it? Well, nothing tangible. It's just a feeling I have. Oh, well, that's a big help. Well, I'll mush around and see what I can pick up. I'll bill you tomorrow for my first day's work. It's much easier to sustain a friendship on a daily basis. I left Burke looking as though someone had just called his store a bazaar. It was closing time, so I hefted my way through the crush and retrieved my car from the doorman. The Hall of Justice is right on my way home, so I decided to drop in on my old pal Mallard. Inspector Ray Mallard of San Francisco Homicide. Nice guy to serve coffee to on Sunday mornings if you could ever lasso him. I could never find strong enough rope. Candy, what brings you around here? I hate to have my Christmas ruined so early. What about that Jack Frost character? Oh yeah, that poor guy got it good. Where'd you find him? In his apartment over on 17th. You live near Seal Stadium? Why are you so interested, Candy? Well, Rembrandt's a dead ringer for the guy. I still don't get the connection. Well, the gal who's head of advertising for the Brownstone was going out of her head for another Jack Frost. I talked Rembrandt into taking the job. <laughs> mm, it does sound funny, doesn't it? Bring me up to date, Mr. Mallard. Did you get any dope on the killing? Well, nothing but a forty-five slug out of the guy's wall. Ballistics is checking that now. Nothing else? Uh, if I did, I should tell you. <laughs> no. No, I guess not. Well, this goes beyond the no curiosity, Candy. What are you drilling for? Oh, only that I'm worried about Rembrandt. I got him the job. I'm responsible. I wouldn't want anything to happen to him. I'll ask a silly question, Mallard, and you get a silly answer. Okay, let's forget it. Say, how's about dinner tonight? Oh, I've fought this thing long enough. Okay. Uh, Candy? Y yes, Mallard? We've known each other a good long time, haven't we? Well, that's right. Ever since the fair on Treasure Island. We've had our little quarrels, little misunderstandings. Oh, but they never seem to last long, though, do they? No, and that's why I feel I have every right to ask you a question. Why, yes. I'd say you do, Mallard. Maybe I'll ask you tonight. No, no, no. No, go ahead. Now's as good a time as any. Perhaps it is, Candy. Hmm? You get around a lot. You meet people. Do you know where I can get a couple of tickets to the Rose Bowl game? My brain lit up like a Roman candle. I stormed for the door, turned back, stood there, my jaw waggling helplessly. Then I stuck my tongue out at Mallard and left. Was the only thing I could think of doing. Oh, he can make me so mad. But inside half an hour after I got home, I, I started to laugh. <laughs> I felt much better. Just as I was puttering around getting ready, the apartment's buzzer buzzed. Was that Mallard? Oh, much too early. But I was wrong. It wasn't Mallard. Well, Myra. What a surprise. Do come in, won't you? No, thanks, Candy. 
A friend of mine's waiting in his car outside. He's driving me home. Oh, I'm sorry you can't stay for a moment. So am I, dear. I just dropped by to leave this. Merely a little token of thanks for getting me off the hook. Oh, Myra, there wasn't any need to do that. Just a few pair of old stockings, dear. Getting me my new Jack Frost means more than you know. Here, please take them. Oh. Along with my very deepest thanks. Well, thank you so much. A girl can always use them. Are you all set with my friend Mr. Watson? Oh, yes. He came in this afternoon and filled out his withholding tax and so on. So very nice. I think you'll find him very efficient, Myra. Oh, What's the matter? Oh, well, pardon me, I didn't mean to frighten you. Oh, Mallard! Oh, silly of me. I must have jumped a foot. Oh, that's all right, he frightens me too. Myra, I'd like to have you meet Inspector Mallard. Inspector, Miss Fisher. How do you do? Well, fine, thank you. Now that I've caught my breath. Do forgive me, Candy, but I must rush off. See you soon, I hope. Oh, tomorrow, Myra. I'll be down to see how my lad's doing as Jack Frost. Thanks for the stockings. Well, uh, aren't you going to invite me in? <laughs> no, I'm not. Here's my coat right here. What's our hurry? Come on, let's go. I'm starved. I uh, thought we could at least have a cocktail before we left. You thought wrong. Two tickets to the Rose Bowl. From now on, you earn your cocktails, Mr. Mallard. We went downstairs, and as I locked the front door, a car was just driving off. It was Myra, and she waved. And driving, if these tired old eyes hadn't deceived me, was Mr. Prentice Burke, vice president of the Brownstone. Well. Oh well. Mallard and I climbed into our car and drove out to the cliff house. It was that kind of an evening. We had dinner, and after, I suggested we walk a bit. The night was crisp and clear, and the evening star was hanging out above the dark waters of the Pacific like an iridescent Japanese lantern. It cut across a little road above Sutro Baths, where an old car barn had once stood, and worked our way over to the cliffs and stood high above Land's End. It was exhilarating. Well, uh, penny for your thoughts, Candy? Well, inflation is still here. All right, let's make it two pennies. Well, I was just thinking, Mallard dear, when you see a star in the sky, soft water below, feel Christmas in the air, how can there be violence in the world? An age-old question, pal, one I can't answer. I'm too small. Hey, you're cold. I better put my arm around you. Uh, Mallard, no. What's the matter? Well, the headlights from that automobile are shining right down on us, and we... <gasps> Mallard! Can't, Candy, what's wrong? You got your flashlight with you? <laughs> sure, I also got my gun and my handcuffs. Anything else you need? A bazooka, perhaps. Well, the lights from that car. They shone on something. Down there, under that tree. <sighs> oh, Candy, just for once, can't you stop digging up a mystery? And be human. I am being human. Come on, Mallard, I want to see what's under that tree. We scrambled around through the brush, slipped into some sliding sand, and rode the crest down to the tree. It wasn't easy to get around some of those brambles, but get there I fully intended doing, because what I saw was red. Bright red.
You, uh, you okay, Candy? Uh, nothing that a new pair of nylons won't fix. Shoot the flashlight over this way a bit, Mallard. Uh... There. That's it. Now, do you think I'm dreaming things up? Uh, what is it? Uh, wait till I hold it up. Well, it looks like some kind of costume. Right. And look, if those aren't bloodstains, I'm a Labrador Retriever. No, you're Candy Matson. Those are bloodstains. How was your boy dressed when you found him? Torn slacks, sweater, shoes, but no socks. Well, this was most likely his costume then. Yeah. yeah don't move it around too much, Candy. I want a good look on the ground. Hey! What are you doing down there? Who's that? The police! Now get up here and don't try any tricks. That's all right, officer. This is Inspector Mallard. Homicide. Oh, sorry, Inspector. Well, that's all right. Uh, Stay right where you are. We'll be right up. Well, this was a break, Candy. I want you to drive me to a phone. I'll leave the officer here to guard the place. You can go home. I've got work to do here, okay? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, for once we had dinner before you had a chance to break the date. This baby was hard to reconstruct. Was the guy knocked off out there at Land's End, or was he bumped off at his apartment, the killer driving way out to the beach and hiding the costume? Only time would tell. I went home, climbed into bed, and logged about eight hours. Enough to give me fuel for the next day. In the morning, I went down to the brownstone. The shoppers were already swarming through the place. I spotted a floor walker and strolled over to him. Pardon me, sir. Uh, I... I said, pardon me, sir. I'm very busy, young lady. Make it as brief as possible. Uh, You do work here, don't you? Of course. You are the floor walker assigned to this section. That is correct. Come to the point, please. I have a good mind to report you. As I wish. uh, As I said, I'm very busy now. What is it you wanted to know? The words are like a gall in my mouth now, but where do I find Jack Frost? Right over there in the back, two aisles over. Thank you. Not at all. Very much. Of all the high-handed characters, people like that make me steam. I was getting up a full head of dander, but it simmered out before I had a chance to boil over because as I rounded the corner, I saw Frosty Boy, or Rembrandt if you choose, up on his platform with the cutest little blonde kid sitting on his lap. Well, well, well. Look who we have here, a great big boy. Hello there, son. Hello, Jack Frost. What is your name? Topper. Topper. My, what a fine name. How old are you, Topper? Five and a half. Five and a half? Well, you must go to school, Topper. Which one? Garfield. Garfield, that's a good school. Now tell me, what would you have me tell Santa Claus to bring you for Christmas, Topper? An electric train and a baseball bat, and I like to play ball for the Giants. (laughs) Well, I'll see what I can do to arrange that, Topper. I'll tell Santa Claus. Bye now. Goodbye, and thank you, and Merry Christmas. (laughs) I hope he can make the boy's wish come true. The Giants could use him. Candy, oh, I'm so glad you're here, Dove. Duck around into the back room for a moment. I've got to talk to you. Aren't you working, Frosty Boy? I've got ten minutes off every hour. I'll take the break now right around there, Candy. Okay, I'll see you in a moment. What's the matter, Rembrandt? Even under those icicles, you look warm under the collar. Here, look at this. 
Every now and then, one of these little moppets toddles up to me with a Christmas letter in its hand. A little red-headed girl handed me this about half an hour ago, and I've been shaking ever since. Well, let me see. Dear Jack Frost, a word to the wise is sufficient. When you take your lunch hour, keep on going. Don't come back. Otherwise, you'll meet the same fate as your predecessor. Mm-hmm. Just about what I expected. Candy! Do you mean to tell me you've been deliberately using me as a sacrificial lamb? Oh, by no means, Ducky. Go ahead, take your lunch. Then do as the note says. Keep on going. As a matter of fact, why don't you take off now? I'll meet you at your place in about an hour. <sighs> the best news I've heard since Nelson's victory at Trafalgar. I whipped upstairs, reported to Prentice Burke, got my first day's check, and on my way out, I told his secretary she better get Burke some smelling salts. Then I went back down on the floor again. Sure enough, there was my boy, the floorwalker. I wanted to have a few more words with him. Ah, uh, you again. If you don't mind, I was just up to see Miss Myra Fisher. She wasn't in. Have you seen her down here? No. And what's more, I won't see her all day. She phoned in saying she was feeling ill. Most inconsiderate, I must say, during the holiday rush. Yes, I must say. Could you give me her address? She's a friend of mine. I've got to see her. Her address? Why, yes, I'll write it down here on one of my cards for you. Myra Fisher. 227F Union Street. There. Thank you. You're so kind. Uh, not at all. I had all the ammunition I wanted. A check signed by Burke and a card signed by the Forewalker. His name was Simon Liggett. With that, I ducked into a phone booth and called Mallard. I'm aside. Mallard speaking. Oh, good boy. This is Candy. What did you find out at Land's End last night? Well, we got a couple of juicy footprints that gave us nothing. Did you make any casts of them? Why, sure. Mind if I borrow a couple of them for a few hours, Mallard? Well, I don't see how it'll hurt. Sure. All right. Thanks, Mallard, dear. I'll be by in a moment, and uh, I want to borrow you, too. I stopped by the Hall of Justice, got the casts of the footprints, shoved Mallard into the car, and then picked up Rembrandt. I had just a hunch, but my hunches have paid off before, so I never ignore them. First, we went out to an address on Fifth Avenue near Clement. We got in the back door and went to work. Nothing made sense there. So we drove out to Reseda Way in the marina. Again, we got in and did some sleuthing. This time we hit the jackpot. A pair of shoes in the closet matched the cast we had brought with us. Rembrandt, go out in the kitchen and see if this place has any ketchup, huh? I'm not hungry, Dove, but I'll look. What are you up to, Candy? We've got enough to swing a case here. I'm looking for a voluntary confession, Mallard. Tell me... What was the position that Jack Frost was in when you found him dead? In a chair, like that one. His head slumped down on his chest. Good. Here's the ketchup, Dove. What are you putting it on? You. What? Without the bun or relish, Ducky. Sit down there, will you, Rembrandt? Now, just go limp and let your head hang down. That's it. Now, for a little seasoning. Ugh, Candy, you're smearing me with this sticky stuff. And all for the sake of art. Hold still. There. How does he look, Mallard? 
Why, of all the... Candy, it looks like the same guy, the real thing. Good. Now, Rembrandt, you just sit just like that. Don't move. Mallard, you duck into that closet over there, and I'll hide in here. We've got a good view of the front door from both places, okay? Okay. There are times, Candy, when I admit I admire your genius. Genius, schmenius. Come on, let's hide. The golden shafts of sun splashing in through the window from the ocean slowly turned pink, and then purple, then into twilight. The minutes ticked on. Once... <laughs> Bless you. But quiet, though, Rembrandt. You'll mess up your ketchup. Five minutes, ten. Then we heard muffled footsteps coming down the hall, and a key inserted in the lock of the apartment door. No. Oh, oh no. It can't be. The old fool I killed. No. No. Okay, buddy. That'll be about enough. Oh, no. Well, get him, Mallard. He's ducking. Oh, I'll get him. Oh, no. Oh, no. Ooh, nice tackle, Mallard. All right, Mac, you're going to remain peaceful, or do I have to give you a little tap? No, no. no I'll, I'll be quiet. You got me. I did it. I did it to both of them. I killed them. I killed them. I killed both of them. Both of them? <laughs> yeah. I look behind the sofa. The sofa. The girl. Wait a minute. Mallard? Oh! Oh! Oh, Mallard. More trouble, Candy? Yes. An old friend of mine. The late Myra Fisher. The whole thing was jealousy. Not the jealousy of a man for a woman, but the jealousy of a man for her job. Simon Liggett had been with the Brownstone for almost 20 years. He'd worked himself up from the stock boy to a place where he'd been promised the job of head of advertising and promotion. He almost got it. Except at the last moment, Prentice Burke gave the position to Myra Fisher. That had only been two weeks before. He knew that Myra was on a probationary term, so he did everything he could to undermine her. Little things like changing ad copy, sending out false stories to newspapers... He'd figured that if he could keep the store without a Santa Claus helper, he'd break Myra's back and get the job by the first of the year. He'd paid a visit to the first Jack Frost and tried to bribe him into quitting, but the guy would have none of it. There was a struggle. Liggett lost his head and whipped out a gun and shot him. He was still in his costume, so Liggett stripped him, put some old clothes on him, drove him out to Land's End and ditched his costume. Then he felt sure there would be no Jack Frost the next day. But that's when Myra met with me, and I talked Rembrandt into taking over. By this time, Liggett was in a frenzy and would stop at nothing. He trailed Myra and Burke to Myra's home, killed her, took her body over to his place, and ditched it behind the sofa. The next morning, he wrote a note to Rembrandt and gave it to one of the little girls waiting in line to see him. Fear and envy were taking their toll on the poor guy's mind. I wanted to compare the handwriting, so I had Burke write me a check and Liggett write Myra's address on a card. Also, we had the footprints cast. Between the two, everything pointed toward Liggett. That's when I staged my little parlor charade, with Rembrandt playing the part of the corpse. The sight, with Rembrandt's resemblance to the dead Jack Frost, would shatter anybody into a confession. But Christmas, in spite of everything, is a lovely time of year. 
And there is a Santa Claus. Three of them for me, as a matter of fact. Mr. Prentice Burke, who sent me a very nice check for my efforts. Rembrandt Watson, who out of the sheer love for the job, went back to playing Jack Frost for all of the kids at the Brownstone. And last but not least, Inspector Ray Mallard. He gave me a Christmas smooch, right on the mouth, just where any well-placed Christmas smooch should go. Listen again next week at this same time for excitement and adventure. Just dial... Candy Matson, and a Merry Christmas to you all, Yukon 28209. This has been Jack Frost from the classic radio series Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Originally broadcast December 19th, 1949. The script was written by Monty Masters. Our production this evening was directed by Diane Adams, with Foley and sound effects created by Evie Conant. The cast included Justin Kappel as Rembrandt, Caleb Silvers as Mallard, Diane Adams was Myra, Ian Hall played Burke and the Hillside Policeman, Jim Yunt was Liggett, Jeffrey Adams was Diogenes Murphy, Carice Boyer was Topper, and starring Ayla McIntosh as Candy Matson. Candy Manson is the property of its correct copyright holder. The broad, this broadcast was a tribute to them, and the Icebox Radio Theater makes no claim of ownership. Tonight's program is copyright 2022 by the Icebox Radio Theater, all rights reserved. Funded in part by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For more information, our website, iceboxradio.org. And... You can find a rebroadcast of Candy Matson, Jack Frost, on the IVRT's Old Time Icebox podcast. That's coming up on Monday, November 14th. Nero Wolf, The Case of the Slaughtered Santas, will follow Candy on November 28th. Again, on the Old Time Icebox podcast. Get it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen. This is our show for tonight, folks. Thank you so much for enjoying live radio drama. Good night. Okay, here we go into the second half of our countdown. This is the Icebox Radio Theater's 12 Plays of Christmas. That was number six, Candy Matson with Jack Frost, a live recording from a live broadcast uh, from just last year, 2022. Now we're going to go way back for number five on the countdown for an original story entitled The Christmas Room. Now this is kind of a, a special play to me personally because the story which I wrote, was originally put together by my wife and I way back, and I want to say it was it was the 90s sometime, when we were newly married and we didn't have a lot of money, and for Christmas one year, uh, we, uh, we put together a book of this story, of a print version of this story. At the time, my wife worked at a museum where they had some, uh, some bookbinding equipment, and I, of course, was a writer, focusing on fiction in those days. And I thought it would be fun to uh, just do a Christmas story and sort of publish it ourselves, so to speak. Uh, some of those copies still exist somewhere. They're just uh, they're just nice paper with a plastic cover, but it's still very, very special. And it was very, very special to me when uh, we adapted the story to radio. I, you know, I went looking for the date and I couldn't exactly find it, but I'm thinking it's somewhere around 2007 or eight. 
when we were uh, housed at the local community college and we recorded this on their stage with the curtains all drawn it actually made a, a very nice recording space so here is Ayla McIntosh, Courtney Sinclair, Anna Remus, Steve Sinclair, and Neil Smith, all in a production of The Christmas Room, which was divided into uh, segments for the Calls to Santa program as well. So there's a couple of breaks in the middle there. It is number five on the Icebox Radio Theater's 12 Plays of Christmas. The Christmas Room, A Story of Hope by Jeffrey Adams. Once in a place quite nearby, but still different from here, there lived an old man named Ned. Ned lived in a tiny attic room that was cold at night and hot during the summer, and too small at every time of year. Ned didn't like the room very much, but he didn't much like the idea of leaving it either. After all, people left Ned alone up in his attic room, and if there was one thing Ned disliked the most in this world, it was people. What is it? Um, uh, hello, Ned. Hello yourself. Now, there was one thing about this room I should mention. It was located high up in the attic of a church. How, uh, how are you today? That shy, nervous man is the pastor of the church. Pastor Knack is his name. He's very nice and very wise, but Ned frightens Pastor Knack a little bit. I'm fine. Now get out. But then, Ned frightens everybody. Now, Pastor Knack was very good at his job. He not only did the regular pastor things like marrying people and baptizing babies, he did a really nice job of helping everyone he could. In fact, the room up in his church attic that Ned was staying in was originally a closet, but Pastor Knack thought it would be better if that room were turned into a place for anyone who might need it. Ned had come with just such an emergency three years earlier and decided to stay. That was a real problem for Pastor Knack. He's got to go. But not such a problem for Mrs. Wilson, his church secretary. Now, Miss Wilson. No, I don't want to hear another word. That closet. Guest room. Yes, guest room is there for people who need it in an emergency, not for vagrants who want to stay there rent free for years at a time. Please, your voice, Miss Wilson. He might hear you. He can't hear me when I'm standing next to him. He's as deaf as a post. Be patient. We were never expecting to make money from that room, and I don't see the sense of turning him out now. It's nearly Christmas, after all, and we can't turn him out at Christmas. But what if someone needs the room? I mean really needs it. We'll just cross that bridge when we come to it. Now, it's funny that Pastor Knack should say that particular thing right then, because as it happened only two blocks away on the cold, windy streets of the city there walked a young woman in an old, old coat, and a little girl only about eight years old with a slightly newer coat. Her name was Karen, and with her was her mother. Earlier that day, the two of them had arrived by bus from a distant town, and had been walking around ever since. The truth was, they were out of money, 
and the woman was trying to figure out what to do. Mommy? Just a second, hon. Oh, these shoes. Maybe we should stop walking. Are you tired, sweetheart? Yeah, but so are you. Maybe we should go back to the hamburger place. Only this time, you'll get to eat. I'll just play on the playground. Oh, Karen. I, I don't think we can afford that. What can we afford? I'll think of something. <laughs> Looks like I'd better make it quick, too. I think that's snow. Yay! Snow! It's pretty. Look at it dancing up in the streetlights. Yeah. Mommy, look up there on the hill. What? What is it? It's a church. I didn't see it until I looked up into the streetlights. A church is God's house, right? He always has room. Karen, I, I don't think. Come on! Before Karen's mother could do much about it, Karen had grasped her hand and began pulling her right up to the church door and pulled her right inside. And of course, Pastor Knack, being very good at his job, was more than happy to give Karen and her mom a place to sleep. As it happens, we have a room in this very church reserved for such a situation as this. Now there's an interesting thing you should know about Pastor Knack. He's, well, a little forgetful. He was so happy to help Karen and her mom, and so happy that the special room in the church attic was going to be put to good use, that he completely forgot about Ned already being there. He got some blankets and pillows, and turned on the light on the stairway. All the while chatting away about this and that, and never once remembering that in the room at the top of the stairs... Now, it's not much, but it should do for the night, and in the morning we can go to work on... What is it?! was Ned. Oh, dear. Hi, I'm Karen. We're going to be roommates. What do you think Ned will say to that? To find out, be sure to listen to Calls to Santa on this radio station tomorrow at this time. The Christmas Room, A Story of Hope, by Jeffrey Adams. Part 2, Ned's Surprise. Last time on The Christmas Room, we met Ned, a grumpy man who lived way up in a cold attic room all by himself. But this room wasn't really his. It belonged to a church led by a very nice man named Pastor Knack. One night, a little girl named Karen and her mother came to the church for a place to sleep. Pastor Knack was very happy to help them, but the only place to sleep in the church was Ned's little attic room, and Pastor Knack told Karen and her mom they could have it before he remembered Ned was already there. As we join the story now, Pastor Knack has just opened the door to the tiny room, and Ned, who was sort of asleep, yelled at them in a very cross voice. That's when Karen said, Hi, we're going to be roommates. What's that? Um... I'm sorry, Ned. I'm just... What's I'm, going on here? We're, we're very sorry. Come on, Karen. What's wrong? We, we need to go. Why? We've come to the wrong place. Oh, please, let me explain. You're kicking me out, is that it? No, of course. Well... I knew it. I knew it on the coldest night of the year, too. Sir, we, we didn't mean to disturb you. We'll leave. You don't understand. It's all my fault. I'm very forgetful sometimes. No, that's all right. We'll just sleep in the corner. Karen. There's a lot of room, and the man won't kick us out. He just said it's the coldest night of the year. 
Oh, I won't, will I? Ned, please. Your name is Ned. Hi, I'm Karen. Toss me out right on my ear. Of course not. We'll just wait, go. Wait, wait, wait! <sighs> Ned, no one is going to toss you out. It's far too cold an evening for anyone to be on the streets. Well, I don't want anyone. And Ned, we have enjoyed your company for some time without asking anything of you. I think it's not too much to ask you to offer up a, say, one small corner of your room for these people. I thought it was my room. I'm sorry, Ned. It's the church's room. We we don't want to be... That's all right. It's just a misunderstanding. I'll run and get some blankets that we have and a mattress and we can just fit it in the corner. Ned was angry, but he didn't say anything. Mostly he was just surprised because this was the first time Pastor Neck had ever stood up to him. Ever. So with nothing else to do, Ned rolled over, shut his eyes real tight, and pretended there was no one else in the room. In a few minutes, Pastor Knack returned with a mattress, some sheets, and two extra warm blankets. The mattress was quite small, but by snuggling close together, Karen and her mom just managed to fit. When they were all snuggled and warm, Karen's mom said, Okay, honey, time to say your prayers. Dear God, thank you for Grandma Ruth and Aunt Reba, and please help Mommy find a job really soon. Oh, and thank you for the nice man who gives us this place to sleep and help the grumpy man in the room with us. <clears throat> oh yeah, and God, it's Christmas down here, and I know we're supposed to be celebrating Jesus' birthday, and not just getting presents and stuff, but please could I have the, the Christmas room I told you about? That's the little room with the warm fireplace and the Christmas decorations that will stay up all year round, so everyone can remember that Christmas needs to come every day. If it's going to do any good, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'll be extra quiet. Okay, Mom. Butterfly kisses. Butterfly kiss. <laughs> Mommy, did I say something to make you sad? No, 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 honey. I just have something in my eye. Okay, good night. And with that, Karen rolled over, closed her eyes, and drifted off to sleep. After a little bit, Karen's mother began to breathe peacefully, and then the only person left awake in the whole room was Ned. Now Ned, if you remember, did not like people. He especially didn't like sharing his room with them. But as he lay there, listening to Karen and her mother sleep, something strange happened to Ned. He decided to give them the room. Need uh, someplace with a little more privacy, anyway. So Ned got up very quietly and tiptoed around the room until he'd gotten all his stuff, which really just added up to one small bag's worth, then carefully opened the door, stepped through it, turned back to close it as quietly as he could. Then... Where are you going? <laughs> Give me a coronary! I'm sorry, but where are you going? Uh, I... Uh, I gotta go. Uh, things that I... Uh, had to do, and the government. I work for the government. Secret agent stuff. Oh, I need you to help me first. What? Shh. You'll like a mommy. Here, I'll close the door. 
door. Uh, you should get back in bed. You need to help me first. Help you with what? I need you to pray with me. Uh, didn't you do that before? That was just good night prayers. I need to pray something special for mommy. Well, uh, maybe your mother should help. No, you can't pray for someone with them helping you. It'll be better if she doesn't know. Look, I, I really gotta go. Please, it will only take a minute. Uh, okay. Okay, get down on your knees. What? It's more real that way. Come on. Oh. Uh. Whoa. Uh. There. Now what? Just bow your head and pray. I'll do all the talking. Oh, that's big of you. Okay, here we go. What do you think Karen is going to pray? What do you think Ned will do next? To find out, be sure to listen to Calls to Santa on this radio station tomorrow at 6 p.m. The Christmas Room, A Story of Hope by Jeffrey Adams Part 3, The Key If you remember our story so far, there once was a little girl named Karen. Hi! Who came from far, far away with her mother. Hello. To look for a job and a place to stay and really just make a new life. The first night Karen and her mother were in town, it was very cold outside and they didn't know where they were going to sleep until Karen noticed a church up on a hill. There they met Pastor Knack. Welcome. Who was more than happy to give them a place to stay. Unfortunately, the room Pastor Knack had in mind was being used by a man named Ned. A man named Ned. Ned? Oh, all right. Hello. Who was really kind of grumpy. But since it was cold outside, Karen and her mother moved in and said their prayers before going to sleep. That's when Karen mentioned the Christmas room, a special place she had always dreamed of, where Christmas decorations were up all through the year. Something about hearing that prayer made Ned think he should leave and let Karen and her mom have the room to themselves. But as he was leaving, Karen stopped him and asked, Would you help me pray, please? What for? It's for my mom. I'm worried about her. Well, maybe you should... I'll do all the talking. You just have to pray along. Here, get down on your knees. Are you okay? Fine. Okay. Dear God, it's me, Karen, again. I just wanted to say that Mommy really needs your help. She's sad all the time now, and she knows I can't have my Christmas room if we don't have our own house. So could you please help her find a job? And 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 could you please help me from asking for the Christmas room ever again? I think that's what's making her so sad. And it's not really important anyway. Just make her happy again. That's all I really want for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ned. Mm. I'm going back to bed. Do you need help getting up? Of course not. Uh, Say, uh, 
what is this Christmas room you're going on about? Oh, it's just from a story I read once. You read? Uh-huh. Mom likes to go to libraries because they're free. And you read a story? Yes. It was all about a little room in a house that was decorated for Christmas all year long. Well, so what? It would be wonderful. There would be a tree there all the time, and a fireplace, and a bookcase full of Christmas books. And everyone could go there and have hot chocolate, even if it was a hundred degrees outside. Everyone could remember Christmas all year. And you'd be willing to give that up just so your mom is happy? Well, I guess if mom were happy, I'd have Christmas every day anyway. Ned was very quiet for a long time. Finally, he took Karen's hand and got up. <sniffs> then he looked at Karen, really looked at her for the first time, and something in Ned's eyes softened just a little bit, as if Karen was reminding him of someone he hadn't thought about in a long time. Then Ned put a hand on Karen's shoulder and said, Run along back to bed. Your ma will be missing you. Thank you for praying with me. And she hugged him. Wait. Before he could do anything about it. Then Karen ran back into the little room at the top of the church and closed the door silently. Ned just stood in the hallway for a very, very long time. He thought about the praying, and about Karen, and about some things he hadn't thought about in years. Ned left the church that night and he spent a good part of that cold, cold evening walking the streets of the town, thinking. Meanwhile, Karen and her mother, both very tired from what had been a really long day, slept right through the night and into the morning. Not long after the sun came streaming through the frozen window of the little room, a knock came at the door. Um, are you decent? It's Pastor Knack. Yes. Is it time for us to leave? No, no, heavens no. Take your time. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Um, uh... Karen? Oh, of course. Yes, did you sleep? Good, excellent. There's a note for you. I'm sorry? A note for you. An envelope was under my office door when I arrived this morning, and I think there's something in it. What is it, Mommy? I, I, I don't know. Open it. I love surprises. It's a key? Oh my, yes. And there's a note. Come to 272 Maple Lane today after 1 o'clock. That, that's it. That's all it says. It's a mystery! Do you know anyone at that address? No, it's an older part of town. Quite fashionable many years ago. Come on, Mom! Whoa, slow down, Squirt. We gotta get ready. We've got a date! A few hours later, Karen and her mother were walking down a quiet sidewalk in a neighborhood filled with huge houses. Some were beautiful, some weren't. All were old. Because Karen was very smart, she knew how to count addresses. As she passed number 262 and 264, she began to get very excited. 266, 268, it's just about here. Karen, honey, slow down. No, Mommy. We're just about there. 
There it is. Honey, wait! Looking up ahead, Karen saw number two seven two. It was one of the most dingy and beat-up houses on the block, with weeds in the front yard and paint peeling off of the sides. It looked like no one had lived there for many years. Karen, wait! Now Karen should have obeyed her mother, but she was just too excited. She ran up to the door and put the key in the lock. Karen, and then the door opened. Do you want to know what happens next? You'll have to tune your radio to this station tomorrow to find out. The Christmas Room: A Story of Hope by Jeffrey Adams, Part Four: The House on Maple Lane. If you remember our story so far, you'll remember that Karen, a little girl about your age, has come with her mother to a city to find a new life just around Christmas time. They spent their first night in the city inside a church that was pastored by a very nice man named Pastor Nack. Pastor Nack had Karen and her mom stay in the room that sort of belonged to a not very nice man named Ned. But after Ned heard Karen pray with her mother one night about how times were tough for them. He decided to give them the room to themselves. Ned snuck out after he thought Karen and her mother were fast asleep, but Karen woke up and asked Ned to please pray with her, so she wouldn't keep asking for things and making her mother sad. More than anything in the world, Karen wanted a house with a special room, a Christmas room that would be decorated for Christmas all year long. Now. Karen and her mother have followed a mysterious note all the way across town to an old, dilapidated house. And as Karen reaches up to try the key that was left them, her mother says, "Wait, honey, Karen, we we don't know anything about this place. We've come all this way. At least let me look inside." I, I I don't I don't know. Well, I'm cold, Mom. Can't we at least go inside and get out of the wind? I guess, but just for a minute. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Careful, honey. That door looks old. Wow! Oh my! <laughs> Mommy, this is huge. Does anyone live here? From the looks of the dust, I don't think so. But they've got furniture and everything. Look at the shelves. Careful, honey. Don't touch anything. They've got books and little figures and. All kinds of stuff. It's like someone moved out of the house but left all their things behind. Karen and her mother moved slowly through the first floor of the house, looking carefully at everything. It was as if someone had just abandoned the house years before. They couldn't figure out why anyone would leave a perfectly good house like that. After about an hour, Karen and her mom sat down for a family meeting on a big, comfy couch in the living room. Do you think somebody just gave us this house? No, honey. I, well, I, I don't know. It's nice. It's very nice. All it really needs is a good cleaning. Can we stay here tonight? I don't think so. But mom, it's already dark outside, and didn't you look on the back porch? Someone left a bag of groceries. Maybe an angel gave us this house. <laughs> well, I I don't think it was an angel, but whoever it was, I don't suppose it would hurt 
to stay one night. Yeah! I'm hungry, are you? Starve. So, Karen and her mom went to work in the kitchen, putting together a modest meal from the groceries left on the back porch. After eating, Karen went to explore the house while her mom sat down on the big couch to look at an old photo album she'd found on the shelf. As she turned the pages past black and white photos of people she didn't know, looking for some clue as to who the house might belong to, Karen's mom found herself getting drowsy, and presently she drifted off to sleep. A while later, Karen found her mom on the couch. She snuggled up with her, and before long, both of them were snoozing peacefully. The next day dawned bright and clear and freezing cold. It was Christmas Eve. Karen and her mom were happy to wake up in a cozy house that was all warm and out of the wind. The front of this old house had an old-fashioned porch that was as big as the living room itself. And because the house was built on a small hill, the view from that porch was the whole city spread out like a blanket. Karen and her mom stepped out onto the porch that morning to get a little air. Wow! Quite a view. It's like the whole town is there just for us. Honey, don't get too attached to this house. I'm not. We just don't know enough about it. I'm, I'm not even sure we were supposed to stay here last night. Mom! What is it? Look! It's a package. That looks... <laughs> that That's a turkey. It is? I didn't think they made them that big. Oh, look, there's a tree, too. Is that a note? Oh, read it, read it. Please prepare this bird for dinner tonight, and decorating the tree should keep your little one busy. You'll find everything you need in the pantry. I'm sorry to be so secretive, but you'll find out tonight at six. <laughs> well, that's assuming a lot. I don't even know if I can cook something like this. Yeah. You can. You helped Grandma that time. She always said turkeys are easy. Well, let's see if we can get it in the house first. The rest of the day, Karen and her mom were kept completely busy getting ready for that evening. But even though it was a lot of hard work, Karen's mom couldn't stop smiling. After all, making Christmas dinner in a warm kitchen was more fun than searching for shelter. And after a while... She stopped worrying about the house and who it belonged to altogether. Karen found some Christmas ornaments in the basement and spent all day decorating and redecorating the tree as she discovered new ornaments to add. As six o'clock grew closer, both of them began to get nervous. There was less work to distract them from wondering who had done this wonderful thing. And finally, after what seemed like hours and hours of just waiting... <gasps> Should I let them in? Yes, yeah, yeah, Karen, let them in. Tomorrow is the last chapter of The Christmas Room. Be sure to tune in at 6 p.m. to hear how it all turns out. Christmas Room, A Story of Hope, by Jeffrey Adams, Part 5, The Perfect Christmas. If you remember from last time, Karen and her mom, homeless and in a new city at Christmas time, met Pastor Knack, the pastor of the church where they spent their first night in the new city. We also met Ned, 
a grumpy old man who did a nice thing by giving Karen and her mom his room. But after that, mysterious things began to happen. A key arrived for Karen and her mom, along with instructions to go to an address. There, they found an old abandoned house with new groceries in the kitchen. And the next day, a turkey and a Christmas tree appeared on the front porch, with instructions to prepare a Christmas dinner to be ready at six o'clock that night. That's just what Karen and her mom did. And at the stroke of six... Mommy, can I? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I'm nervous. <laughs> Me too. Merry Christmas. Pastor Knack? It was you? I had quite a hard time finding this place. What? You? It, it was you? At the door? Yeah, it was me. I'm sorry. Were you expecting someone else? Well, I don't know. D didn't you send us to this house? Heavens, no. I've never laid eyes on it before. Ugh, I don't know what to think. Come on, Mom. Pastor Nat came for dinner, right? I certainly did. I got a note in my office this afternoon saying just that. You got a note? Yes, very mysterious. But I noticed the address was the same as the one on your note. So I couldn't resist. Then let's eat. I'm starving. Oh. What's wrong? Pastor, we don't know who sent us the key to this house. But whoever did that, they also sent us all the fixings for a turkey dinner and a Christmas tree. I decorated it. I can see that. And now I think he's finally here. Oh. Would you like me to answer the door? Would you? Oh, of course. <gasps> Uh, uh, no. Ned! You came to dinner? Oh, you having a... I mean, sure I came to dinner. Well, I don't think we should stand here with the door open any longer than is necessary. Come on in, Ned. Uh, thanks. Now can we eat? <laughs> <laughs> so they did. Ned and Pastor Nack came into the table and sat right down. Pastor Knack fussed and complimented Karen's mother so much she actually blushed. And Karen kept jumping up from the table to bring more food. And she seemed to have a story about each and every dish, what she had done to help and how most of them were special foods that had been passed on from her grandmother down to her mom. But all through dinner, Karen's mother kept looking at Ned as if she were trying to decide if he could be the one responsible for the house, the feast, and everything. All through dinner, they talked and laughed and told stories about Christmas's past. Karen's mother told a story about the house she grew up in, and Pastor Knack told a very funny story about his first Christmas away from home. And they kept eating and eating until all of them were fit to burst. During a quiet moment when no one was saying anything, Karen looked at Ned and said, You haven't told the story, Ned. Hmm. I guess I haven't. Karen, he, he might not. No, 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 it's all right. About time I said my piece anyway. Your mother over there is about to bust. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't be. Family been through what you've been through. I shouldn't have done all the notes and whatnot. I, I just... Uh, I guess I didn't know what to say. Well, what would you like to say, Ned? It's this house. My story, I mean. This house is mine. Owned it for 40 years. If this is your house, why are you... Gosh, Karen. That's all right. I'll tell you, little girl. I lived here for 40 years. 
first off with my own daughter, then later my granddaughter. We had many, many wonderful Christmases here, and I'll never forget them. But there was one year I was living here alone. Carrie, that's my daughter, was coming down for dinner. I didn't want her to. They said fog and maybe black ice. There was a car accident. Oh, Ned. It it was this house. I told her to stay put at home, not to drive down, and she wouldn't hear of it. She wanted to have Christmas dinner here. I guess after that I just never forgave this old house for staying empty. I closed up the place and left it to rot. I stayed away for a long time. But I guess no wound can stay open forever, and yesterday I came back to see if the place could be of some good use to someone. That's a very sad story. Yep. Now, Missy, I, I know you have a story you ain't brought up yet. What, what do you mean? I seem to remember a story about a certain room. Oh. At that point... Karen smiled and nodded sheepishly. Suddenly, she felt very shy. She loved talking about the Christmas room, the wonderful room she'd always dreamed of that would stay decorated for Christmas all year round. But lately, Karen had been worried that talking about the Christmas room was making her mother sad. So, feeling a little mixed up, and maybe a little worried for her mother, Karen, for one of the few times in her life, said nothing. Ned looked at her and, for the first time in years, smiled. Then Ned held out his hard, wrinkled hand and got up. Come along, Missy. There's something you should see. Karen got up from the table and took Ned's hand. Pastor Knack and Mom got up as well and followed Ned up the main stairs to the second floor of the old house. Then they followed Ned through a door Karen and her mom hadn't even had time to notice before. It opened on a tiny staircase that wound up to an attic. And in one corner of the attic, there was another door. What is this place, Ned? <laughs> Just the attic. But a few years ago, I framed off one corner for a separate room. It was for my granddaughter. She was an artist and wanted the room for a studio. Until a day or so ago, I hadn't been up here in years. Go on, Karen. Doors unlocked. <gasps> oh, my. Oh! And the door opened on a perfect little room. The wallpaper was bright with red Santas and little teddy bears. A small Christmas tree stood in the corner, all decorated and lit with twinkling lights. Against one wall was a real fireplace with a tiny fire crackling happily. There were four comfy chairs and a whole bookcase that Karen guessed was full of Christmas books. And all around the room were garlands and wreaths and mistletoe. And on the tiny round window that looked out toward the street, frost had formed and snowflakes were flying by. My granddaughter, she always liked Christmas. I couldn't think of a better use for this little room than that. Is it all right? It's perfect. And it was. 
For the rest of that evening, the four of them stayed in the Christmas room. Karen read from books about Dasher and Dancer and Frosty the Snowman and the Baby Jesus. And by the time it was dark, when all of them were a little sleepy, Ned asked Karen and her mother to stay in the house as long as they wanted. And of course they said yes. Over time they became a family, and Ned was just as a grandfather to Karen. And through it all, the Christmas room remained exactly as Ned had made it. And even after years had passed, and Karen had moved out and started a family of her own, she would still come back to the old house and spend some time in the Christmas room now and again to remind her that Christmas isn't doing much if it isn't every day of the year. And for the rest of her life, forever and for always, Karen never forgot that. Good thing to remember, don't you think? The Christmas Room starred Courtney Sinclair as Karen, Anna Remus as Karen's mom, Stephen Sinclair as Pastor Knack, Neil Smith as Ned, and Ayla McIntosh was the secretary and your narrator. The Christmas Room was written and directed by Jeffrey Adams. Calls to Santa was produced and directed by Harley Droba. Your telephone elves were Harley Droba, Jeff Adams, and Ayla McIntosh. For more information on the Icebox Radio Theater, visit them on the web at iceboxradio.org. Twelve Plays of Christmas from the Icebox Radio Theater. Thank you so much for joining us. On your Christmas, uh, or during your Christmas celebrations, we should say. We're all the way up to number four now. And it has the distinction as being the only play uh, on this countdown that wasn't written by me or come directly out of the Icebox Radio Theater. It's Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule, written by a wonderful writer who specializes in audio drama by the name of Mike Murphy. Goes back to our, our production anyway, goes back to December of 2011. And it is the first play in our countdown to feature one of the great, great talents that we uh, we imported via the Internet to do this recording. And I'm speaking, of course, of John Bell. Uh, if you have, if you enjoy podcasts and you have a podcatcher, check out Bells in the Bat Free. It is his a solo comedy podcast where he creates a whole bunch of characters. He plays every part, writes them as he goes, and it's just fantastic. Bells in the Bat Free, the name of that podcast. And, uh, and this was the first time that John was called upon to play the particular water molecule in this particular snow-based adventure. So here is, for Mike Murphy, Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule, starring John Bell, Courtney Sinclair, and Kirstie Sinclair. Number four on the Icebox Radio Theater's 12 Plays of Christmas.
those of you hoping for a white Christmas are going to be disappointed this year. The early season snowstorm that deposited a widespread four inches of the white stuff across the area will soon be nothing more than a pleasant memory for the kids who got an unexpected Friday off from school this week. Temperatures will rise dramatically beginning tomorrow, and the snow will be gone before Christmas Day, with no more precipitation in the forecast. Danny. Yes, Mom? Lunch will be ready in about five minutes. Grilled cheese sandwiches. You'll have to finish that snow fort after you eat. Okay. I don't have much left to do. And I've already finished the snowman. And please try to be quiet when you come in. I think the baby has finally fallen asleep. I'll be through in a couple minutes. Nothing like a day off from school with grilled cheese sandwiches for lunch. I'd better be getting inside. What's a sandwich? Who said that? I did. Over here, with the carrot nose. You? But you're a... Go ahead, say it. I've heard it before. Snowman? Yeah, well, not exactly. Snowman can't talk. Do you ever talk to yourself, Danny? No. You know my name? I heard your mother calling you. But how? What's a sandwich? Huh? A sandwich. You said you were going to have one for lunch. Whatever that is. I'll, um, tell you later. I have to go in the house now. So you'll be coming back outside after this, uh, lunch? Sure. I have to finish the snow fort. Good, because I could really use your help with something. What? I'll tell you after your sandwich. But it's a matter of life and death. How's the sandwich, honey? It's okay. Just okay? You love my grilled cheese sandwiches. I'm sorry. It's really, really good. What's wrong, Danny? Mom, can Snowman talk? <laughs> of course not. What made you ask that? Have you been talking with a snowman? No, no, not me. Good, because if you thought you were, I was going to have to take you down to see Dr. Mulcahy. You're certain about the snowman? Of course I am. Maybe in your storybooks or in the movies they can, but in real life, no. Snowmen can't talk, ever. My mom says snowman can't talk. She's right. But you said... I never said I was a snowman. But of course you're a snowman. I made you this morning. Right, but I'm not a snowman. I'm only part of this snowman. Then what are you? I'm a water molecule. A molly what? Molecule. It's kind of like a drop of water. And you're inside the snowman I built. Right, B-17. What's that? That's when I'm located in the snowman. When you've been a part of as many snowmen as I have over the years, you use a little shorthand. Everything's mapped out in here, and I'm at B-17. Where's that? I'm in the head, just behind the pipe. That's why it seems like I'm talking to you. I can see and hear you through the little cracks in the snow. Do you like it in there? It's all right. I've been in worse places. The last snowman I was in, I was at L-31. 
the bum. Being a part of the head sounds better. It is. A lot of times, I don't even make it into a snowman. I just fall and get shoveled off the driveways and walks by adults. It's better to be part of a snowman than to just lie there off to the side somewhere. What was this thing you needed my help with? I need you to save me. How can I do that? It's going to get really warm over the next few days. All this snow is going to melt. How do you know that? I know about the weather. I can feel it. I'm part of it. Once this snowman melts, I'll just be a part of a puddle on the ground, which is no fun at all. What do you want me to do? I want you to change the weather so it stays cold. Me? Sure. Why not you? I'm just a kid, and people can't control the weather. No. Many times when grown-ups have been shoveling me off the driveways, I've heard them angrily talk about the meteorologist. Who's he? That's a fancy name for a weatherman. So he controls the weather? Nobody controls it. What? It just happens. You're kidding. No, when it gets cold like this, it just gets cold. Then what does this weatherman do? He tells us what the weather is going to be. How does he know that? He has all kinds of sciencey stuff. He goes to school for a long time, so he can be on the news every night. That's how he knows. So he predicted this little storm I fell in? Uh-huh. Are there places that are cold all the time? Yeah, but they're awfully far away from here. Oh, my. What's your problem? You said it was a matter of life and death. It is. Mine. After this snowman melts, I'll evaporate. What's that mean? I'll dry up, go away, and rise back into the clouds so I can fall again somewhere else's rain or snow. Sounds boring. It does get repetitive. Boy, have I grown to hate those chats in the waiting room. The what room? After I go back into the clouds so I can be used again, I go into a waiting room with the other water molecules until Mother Nature needs me. The other molecules are always bragging. I was part of a rainy season in Madagascar. I was part of a super blizzard that hit Buffalo, New York. We tied up the city for days. <laughs> and I was a part of a big hailstorm that fell in Alabama. You should have seen all of us bouncing off the roads and sidewalks. What fun. How about you? I was part of a little snowstorm in Minnesota. Again? <sighs> yeah. That's too bad. Maybe you're not ready for the big time. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. It's not. I know that recycling is the big thing nowadays, but I'm sick of it. What can I do to help? I can't simply evaporate again and go back to the waiting room with those other snooty molecules. They'll kid me even more when they find out I was only a part of this little storm that didn't even happen in Madagascar. Where's that? I have no idea. Danny, I need to go out in a big way this time. Some way that none of the other molecules has ever done. I need something to brag about while I linger in the waiting room. Any ideas? Well, no. Not now. But I'll think about it. We'll figure something out. Until we do, I need you to keep me from evaporating so quickly. How can I do that? Do you have something in that house you could put me in before the warm weather comes and I get recycled again? Mom probably has something in the kitchen we could use. Great! Go get it, and I'll tell you what to do. Then we can decide how I can go out with a bang!
Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule was written by Mike Murphy. Direction and post-production by Jeffrey Adams. Sound effects by Dave Irwin. Our cast featured Kirstie Sinclair as Mom, Jeff Adams and Kirstie Sinclair as the Snooty Molecules, Courtney Sinclair as Danny, and John Bell as the Molecule. Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule is copyright 2011 by Mike Murphy. This production is copyright 2011 by the Icebox Radio Theater, which is solely responsible for its content. Information on the web at iceboxradio.org. Time now for Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule, a special holiday presentation by the Icebox Radio Theater. Last time we met Danny, that's Danielle, McIntyre, a girl about your age who was enjoying a snow day off from school. While building a snowman, Danny made the acquaintance of a single water molecule, one of the millions that came together to make Danny's snowman possible. Only this water molecule had a problem. With the millions of water molecules in the world creating floods and blizzards and exciting stuff like that, how is he ever going to stand out? As we join the story this time, Danny is bringing her mom's biggest spaghetti pot to fill full of snow, including her new friend the Molecule, so they can go inside and dream up a plan to help him stand out. <laughs> this ought to do it. What is it? It's my mom's spaghetti pot. It's the biggest one she has. Will she miss it? She shouldn't need it again for a week or so. We had spaghetti the other night. We won't have it again. Again for a while. Great, Danny. Put me in there. Um, one problem. What? How am I going to fit the snowman into the pot? It's not big enough. You don't have to fit the whole snowman in there. Just the head. That's where I am. B-17. What about all the other water molecules? They'll melt soon. Is any other one of them talking to you? No. Then they're fine with going back to the clouds. I'm not. Don't you worry about them. What do I do? Pull the head off the snowman and stuff all of it into the spaghetti pot. Won't that hurt you? Not at all. Come on, before the warm weather comes and I get recycled again. Okay. (sighs) Are you in there? Yeah, you got me. Now push the whole head into the pot. Done. Are you all right? Couldn't be better. Perfect fit. Thanks. Now what? We have to figure out my big day. But Mom will want me in soon. Bring me in with you. But you'll melt in the house. She has the heat on. Not a problem. I'm water after all, and I should evaporate slowly in the house. Maybe some of my more content friends in the pot will evaporate first, huh? Is there some place you can hide me till we make our plans? You can stay in my room if... You're quiet and don't get me into trouble. No one will ever know I'm there. I'll be as quiet as a snowflake. Silence. That's what you'll get. Not a sound at all. There. You should be safe in my closet. If anybody comes in, I'll close the door quickly. Then you be quiet. I'll be quiet. 
You sound different. Are are you okay? Sure, just melting a little. Don't worry. If you say so. It's time to think about my big day. What do people do with water? Well, we drink it. What does that mean? We put it into our bodies when we get thirsty. Ooh, then what happens to the water? Well, it... Mm, yeah, forget that one. You wouldn't like what happens. What else? We use it to wash our hands and take showers. Well, that sounds promising. What happens to the water you use? It goes down the drain and out into the sewers. Is that a nice place? Mm, not really. Strike two. What else? My mom cooks with water sometimes, like when she made spaghetti. And then? No, you won't like that either. There must be something really important that people do with water. I don't mind going back to the clouds as long as I have a cool story to tell the other molecules. I'll sleep on it. Me too. Um, what's sleep? now. There's no snow at all. It was bound to happen. I'm fine here in the pot. If you say so. Did you think of any big thing for me to be a part of? No. Did you? No. But we won't give up yet! You bet we won't. I have to head downstairs for breakfast, or Mom might come up here to get me and find you. And we don't want that! Will this breakfast involve water? Maybe, if she makes oatmeal. Good morning, Mom. Hiya, Michelle. Good morning, dear. Did you dream of any talking snowmen last night? (laughs) Don't be silly. You know they don't exist. Your oatmeal will be ready in a few minutes. Just sit down and have your juice. (laughs) Say, I got some good news last night. You'll like it, too. What news? Uncle Matt and Aunt Sharon are coming over tonight. They just got back from their vacation in Europe. Is that anywhere near Madagascar? I don't think so. What made you think of Madagascar, of all places? Oh, I don't know. I think Mrs. Whitburn mentioned it in school the other day. Well, anyway, they'll be over for dinner tonight, and I'm going to make my special beef stew. You like my beef stew, right? Oh, yeah! And Uncle Matt loves it. After I give your sister her bath, I'm going to start making the stew. It takes a while. Will you need your spaghetti pot for that? Yeah, it's the only pot I have that's big enough. Uh-oh. If Danny's new friend, the water molecule, is hiding in the spaghetti pot, how is she going to give it back to her mom? Especially when mom doesn't even know that Danny took it. To find out more, you'll have to tune in next time for the exciting conclusion to Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule from the Icebox Radio Theater. Time now for Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule, a special holiday presentation by the Icebox Radio Theater. 
To this point in our story, Danny McIntyre, a normal girl about your age, made friends with a single tiny water molecule that fell to Earth and became part of a snowman she built. Danny offered to help the molecule find a way to stand out among all the other water molecules and took him inside in her mother's favorite spaghetti pot to think. Now Mom needs the pot back, and Danny didn't ask permission to take it. Plus, they still don't have a plan to help him stand out. Now we find Danny in her room, desperately trying to fish the molecule out of her mom's spaghetti pot with a paper cup. Did I get you? No, still in the pot. Darn, let me try again. How about now? No, a little bit to the left. Now? My left. You got me, Danny. I'm in the cup. Finally. Why are we doing this? Mom's going to need her spaghetti pot soon. I thought you said... I did. She surprised me. Parents do that sometimes. You'll be safe in this cup. I don't like it as much. It's cramped. Sorry, but I'll have to do. Now I have to sneak this pot back into the kitchen. Did you do it? Yep, that's where she always puts it. She'll never know it was gone. That's good. She won't need it until after... What is it, Danny? I think I know what I can do to get you out with a bang. How about this? Hi, Mom. Hello, Danny. You thirsty? Why do you ask? You're carrying a cup. Oh, yeah, thirsty. How's Michelle's bath coming along? Okay, thanks for asking. Nearly done. She really needed one. She fell asleep early last night, and I didn't want to wake her for her bath. Who's that in the driveway? Let me go and see. Mind your sister. There was no one there. They must have pulled away. What do you still have to wash? Her face could use a scrubbing. This looks like good water here. If you say so. Can I wash your face? Sure, if you like. Just be gentle. Will do. Scrub, 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 Michelle. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Did you say something, dear? Not me. Who's a clean girl? Can you be a big helper, Danny, and empty Michelle's bathtub water while I take her upstairs to get her dressed? Sure, Mom. I'd be glad to. Sure you don't mind me pouring you out here in the driveway? Not at all. I need to head back up to the clouds soon. Oh, boy, what a day. It was a great idea you had. Thanks, Danny. You're welcome. Will I ever see you again? Maybe. I fall to Earth as Mother Nature wants me to. You'll see a lot more storms before you grow up. It's possible. Are you all right? I... I'm fine. What's that coming out of your eye? It looks like water. 
It is. You know something? It really is. Goodbye! And uh, what about you? Yes, what did you do this time? Another little snowstorm in Minnesota? Nope. I washed the face of a human baby girl. Really? Yes. What was it like? It was the best day of my life. Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule was written by Mike Murphy. Direction and post-production by Jeffrey Adams. Sound effects by Dave Irwin. Our cast featured Kirstie Sinclair as Mom, Jeff Adams and Kirstie Sinclair as the Snooty Molecules, Courtney Sinclair as Danny, and John Bell as the Molecule. Danny McIntyre Meets the Molecule is copyright 2011 by Mike Murphy. This production is copyright 2011 by the Icebox Radio Theater, which is solely responsible for its content. Information on the web at iceboxradio.org. meets the molecule there. This is the 12th place of Christmas from the Icebox Radio Theater, and we're all the way up to number three, which is an original play entitled A Ghost for Christmas. It's produced in December of 2020, right in the middle of COVID. Originally, uh, there is a hope that we could perform this in front of a live audience. COVID was maybe starting to abate, oh, so we hoped, but no, we couldn't. We couldn't ask people to gather. Uh, so the, part of the reason this sounds the way it does is we uh, we were going to perform this show as part of a fundraiser for Bacchus Community Center, which has a fairly large auditorium. And uh, we performed in that auditorium, but we performed uh, in the auditorium as it was empty, which is one of the reasons you hear a lot of echoes and a lot of sound artifacts in this recording. But the story's pretty good, and the performances were excellent. Of course, we had James Yunt and Diane Adams, Linnea Yunt, uh, and myself, actually, doing some announcing as well with live Foley artists Evie Konat and Katie Nelson. So here is number three on our countdown. It's A Ghost for Christmas from the Icebox Radio Theater. time in the Northland, and once again families from all over are gathering together to share home and hearth, fellowship and food, all in the spirit of the season. Some gatherings are large, some small, and some are just two people. As our story begins, it's several days before Christmas. 
On a quiet street in a small town in the far, far north, there sits a large house. The house has seen better days, but it's solid, having endured a hundred Northland winters. It looks dark and empty now, but as a light snow begins to fall, two figures, a man and a young girl, step up onto the porch and unlock the front door. Stamp your boots. Yes, Dad. You don't want to track in snow. All right, all right. Don't put a hole in the floor. Ha, ha. They are Carolyn, all of 11 years old, and her father, Doug. Not too long ago, there were three in their family, but Carolyn's mother passed away, and this move to this new town is a fresh start for both of them. Or at least, that's what Doug hopes. Come on, take off your coat. It's cold. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I thought that agent said she'd turn on the fire. Turn on the furnace. There's a fireplace. Good idea. Doug has a new job in this new town, and after winter break, Carolyn will have a new school, a prospect that is, well, a little scary. But that's all in the future. The pressing concern of this day is how to make a home and a Christmas inside a new house. Dad? Without any stuff. Where's our stuff? Oh, on the moving truck. Okay, where's the moving truck? Yeah, I suppose I should call that guy again. I think he said two days. We don't have our stuff for two whole days? Well, we bought the house, so we have all the stuff the other owners left. Oh, what stuff? That chair. And, uh, yeah, I see a kitchen table in there. Wonderful. Oh, and the real estate agent said the owners left some beds behind. So if you go upstairs and pick out a bedroom, there will be a bed up there. Why don't you go do that, Carolyn? Dad, I told you. I want to be called Lynn now. Carolyn is an old lady's name. Isn't Lynn an old lady's name? Yes, but it's shorter. Okay, Lynn. Why don't you go pick out a bedroom and I'll see about building a fire. All right. up here. Which one should I take? Well, whichever one you want. Oh, are the beds in the rooms? Sort of. What do you mean, sort of? There's beds, just no mattresses. Uh, great. Stupid move in stupid town and stupid giant house. What's that? Nothing. Just enjoying our giant, freezing, empty house, Father. Is that sarcasm I hear? Why? No, of course not. Okay, well, I got the fire going. Have you picked out a bedroom yet? This one, I guess. It's the gloomiest. Hurry up, Lynn. I got hot dogs we can roast. Ooh, hot dogs! It's a little while later now, and Lynn is getting ready for bed. Getting ready to bed down for the night. Uh, Carol, uh, I mean, Lynn. Hmm. You sure you want this room? It's a little drafty. Dad, this whole house is a little drafty. 
I like this room. Yeah, it's just... It's just what? It's just so gloomy. It's tucked back in the rear of the house. There's only one window way up near the ceiling, and there's an attic door in the corner. So? Wouldn't you like one of the more cheerful rooms? The only cheerful room I know is the one back in our old apartment. And if we're going to live in a haunted mansion, I might as well take the most haunted room, right? (laughs) Who said this house is haunted? Oh, come on. Just look at it. I almost wish we'd move here around Halloween instead of Christmas. That way we wouldn't have to decorate. Well, you wait. When the moving truck gets here with all our stuff, we'll settle in and decorate the old place and be all ready for Christmas. It'll be great. If you say so. Now I'll be just down the hall if you need anything. Do you have enough blankets? Yeah. Did you find the bathroom okay? Of course. Do you have your phone charger? Yes, Dad. Good, cuz. Can I borrow it? Did you lose your charger again? Fine, Dad. Here you go. Thank you, sweetie. Good night, Dad. Okay, first night in the new house. New town, new school. At least I don't have to worry about that right away. I just have to worry about sleeping in a haunted house. (laughs) I wonder if it really is. What was that? sense of humor. That's a fact. He probably thinks this is funny. Huh? Okay, I can take a joke. What do you say to that dumb ghost? This is my new room and I'm not leaving. Get out. Well, since you asked so nice, Daddy! Icebox, Lynn and her father are having a bit of an argument. You remember the two of them moved to town just a few days before Christmas and are living in a big, drafty house with no furniture and very little heat. It looks, for all the world, like a haunted house, which is just what Lynn thinks it is after she heard a spooky voice in her room last night. It's morning now as we hear Lynn's father say, There's no such thing as ghosts. But I heard it, Dad. You heard something, I'm sure, but... There's no such thing as ghosts. It talked. It was just the wind. The wind can't say get out. Look, honey, I know what this is about, and I'm sorry. What do you mean? I know it's hard to move right around Christmas, but we didn't have any choice. My job starts tomorrow, your new school starts in a few days, and our lease back in the city was up. We had nowhere to go. But why did we have to come here, to this house? All we needed was an apartment back in the city. This place is huge. Well, believe it or not, houses are easier to find than apartments around here. And I figured we'd just grow into it. There's a yard to play in and a bunch of extra rooms. Hey, how about when our stuff gets here, we set up one of the rooms for games, huh? Put the video system up, maybe get a ping pong table too? Does that sound like fun? I don't think a ping pong table will keep ghosts away. Honey. You don't believe me. What? You don't believe me. I heard a voice and you think it's just my imagination or something. Well, 
it's been a tough time for us and sometimes when things are tough our imaginations run away with us big empty room in a big scary house so you admit that it's scary uh your imagination just played a trick that's all i don't think that's what happened i'll bet tonight when we go to bed you don't hear anything except that huge snowstorm that's blowing in except the huge snowstorm that's blowing in but who cares we have the furnace working we still have the fireplace it'll be cozy we're sitting on the floor dad floors can be cozy sort of look will you do me a favor and give it one more night and if the ghost comes back we can move well not right away we just bought this house so we don't have any money and i know i know will you try honey i guess thank you if you couldn't tell lynn didn't really feel like trying she felt scared but she wanted to help her dad if she could so when nighttime came she dutifully climbed the stairs to her room and snuggled up under the blankets which was just one blanket on top of a pile of other blankets seeing as she didn't have a mattress yet snowing hard by then and the room was cold lynn could see the snowflakes flying by her single window as they threw spooky shadows up on the wall she was not sleepy so she lay in her bed and listened to the old creaky house stupid house dad says you're not haunted but he didn't hear what i heard last night easy to say there's no such thing as ghosts when you don't hear them Why don't you go haunt my dad for a little while? Maybe he'll believe in you then. No. Wait. Don't do that. He doesn't deserve that. If you have to haunt somebody, haunt me. Though I have to point out there's a lot of empty rooms in this house. You could haunt an empty room, right? Look. Don't haunt dad. I'm mad at him right now, but he doesn't deserve to be haunted or anything. I know he's just trying to make things better for us. It's just my mom died 2 years ago. You'd think after 2 years it wouldn't hurt so bad, but it still does. And dad's really really trying hard. I can tell. I guess he thought leaving the city would help me forget. But I can't forget. Not really. And you know what, ghost? I don't want to forget. But I don't want to hurt dad either. So I guess go ahead and haunt me. If you have to haunt someone, it better be me, okay? I'm talking to myself. Dad's right. I'm too fruit loop short of a bowl. There's no such thing as ghosts. another scary night for Lynn but just so you know she got through it okay by sleeping in her dad's room it's daytime once again now the town is digging out from the first big storm of the year and Lynn's dad is heading to his first day at his new job are you sure you're going to be okay after last night and everything I'll be okay dad i'm going to move all my stuff to another bedroom that might be for the best and maybe get out of the house a little bit today Did you notice that the library is just two blocks down? 
I did, yeah. I'll probably head there this afternoon. Okay, and here. Twenty dollars? There's a cafe next door to the library. Go buy some lunch somewhere warm with people around. Dad, are you worried about me? Always, sweetheart. Your cell charged? Yep. Okay. Call me if you need anything. All right? All right, Dad. Have a good first day. Lynn's father took off for his new job, and Lynn went to work moving things out of her old room into the bedroom that was right next to her dad's. But moving didn't take very long, given all Lynn had was a suitcase and a backpack and a bundle of blankets she was using as a mattress. So after half an hour or so, Lynn decided to venture out into the snow and find the public library. It was a bright, clear day outside, and the temperature had dropped to near zero. Being a northern girl, Lynn knew how to bundle up, but she was still pretty chilled when she walked through the doors of the old brick building, which had metal letters on the outside reading, Library Community Building. She moved with a purpose, because Lynn didn't want, didn't just come to the library to kill time. Lynn loved books, and knew that the library would be the best place to do a little research on a certain old house. Excuse me? Yes, can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for the local history section. Well, we don't have a local history section as such, but if you look across the foyer there, you'll see the sign for the Minnesota Room. All our local history is in there. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I don't think I know you. Probably not. I just moved to town. Then welcome. I like people who make the library one of their first stops in town. I'm Miss Page, the director. I'm Lynn, the student. Very nice to meet you, Lynn. Have you started school yet? Not yet. We just moved and it's winter break. Oh, that's right, it is. You must be reading local history just for fun, then. Well, not exactly. I was hoping to do a little research on our new house. That sounds like fun. We don't have a house-by-house history, of course, but there are some locally published books. Which house is yours? It's 424 7th Street. 424 7th Street? Oh, I know just the book. Come with me. Really? That's amazing. I thought I'd have to dig through some dusty old records or something. No, I've got the perfect book in the Minnesota room. Here. Uh, Anderson, Michael, Anderson, Michelle, Anderson, Here it is. I think this book has all the information you need. <gasps> Famous haunted houses of the Northland? Yes, Lynn. Didn't you know? You live in the most haunted house in town. Well, things have gotten very interesting. You'll remember Lynn visited the public library to try and learn more about her house when the librarian gave her a big shock. Famous Haunted Houses of the Northland? That's the book you wanted to show me? Why, yes. Didn't you know? Know what? That I live in a real haunted house? You seem upset. Yeah, because I live in a real haunted house. I see. There's been a misunderstanding. Look at the book's subtitle. 
award-winning Halloween haunts of northern Minnesota. I don't understand. This book isn't about the supernatural. It's about people who convert their homes into haunted house amusements for Halloween. You know, decorations, guided tours, and the like. Oh. There's an organized group behind this book. Home hunters, they call themselves. And Cornelius Fidget is one of their premier members. Who? Cornelius Fidget, the former owner of your house at 424 7th Street. He's quite a local character. He always went all out for Halloween. He spent a lot of time here in the library researching his inventions. You mean he was an inventor? Exactly. But he never found much success, unfortunately. And last summer, after working at it for years, he finally gave up, sold his house, and moved away. It was very sad not seeing his place all lit up this Halloween. That is kind of sad. Do you know where he is? No, unfortunately. I remember right around the 4th of July, he came in, returned the last few books he'd checked out, thanked me, then walked right out the door never to be seen again. A neighbor of his told me his house was completely cleaned out the next day. Wow. I wish I could talk to him. Ask him about the ghost. He never mentioned anything about a ghost to me. As far as I know, 424 7th Street was only haunted by props and special effects. But I, uh, I heard something. I'm sorry? I heard something in one of the rooms of the house. A voice. Fascinating. Well, we don't have any books on ghost hunting exactly. Although we do have several videos from that Ghost Hunters television show. No, that show scares me. <laughs> me too. Tell me, what is it you'd like to do? Make it stop. I mean, Dad and I just moved to town and everything's really stressful right now. I just want the voices to quit talking to me. Hmm. And what do they say exactly? Mostly they just moan and say, Get out. Like in a scary movie. Well, why don't we? you spend the day here and we'll research the subject together. So Lynn spent a very pleasant day in the company of her new friend, the librarian, searching the books and the internet for some words of advice on how to rid your house of a ghost. But soon it was time for Lynn to head home, and by then she had an idea as to what she wanted to do. The wind had picked up as she went up to the old bedroom where she slept the first two nights in her new house. Why she was there, you ask? Because Lynn was feeling very brave. All right, ghost. You don't like me and I don't like you. So we're going to have it out. Right now. Um, hello? Anybody there? This is dumb. There's no such thing as ghosts. Just like Miss Page said. You know what, ghost? I don't believe in you. My daddy bought this house, and that means it belongs to us now. So you can just keep quiet from now on, all right? That's what I thought. Ha! There's no such thing as ghosts. 
getting out. Get out. Okay. All right. You know what? I want to see you. Get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that already. But I'm not going anywhere until I see you. I want to see a real live ghost. Get out, because I'm invisible. Tough. I'm not going anywhere until I see you. I want a full-body apparition. A what? A full-body apparition. Sorry, I've been reading ghost hunting books all afternoon. Um, I, can you come back uh, later? Wait a minute. This is the room with that with the little door leading up to the attic. Dad said I shouldn't open it. You you should obey your father. That's it. I'm opening it. No, no, no wait. It, it's really scary back here. Spiders and snakes and things and oh, peppermint sticks. Who are you? I'm a ghost. You don't look like a ghost. You look like a man with a microphone and a bunch of sound equipment. Well, ghosts can have sound equipment. You don't know. Wait a minute. You're Cornelius Fidget. The librarian told me all about you. She said you moved. Why, well, I, I did move. From the house up to the attic. You mean you've, you mean you've been here all along? Well, why not? It's my house. Not anymore. Dad bought it. Well, he bought it because he had money and I don't. But but I will soon. Such a wonderful invention I've been cooking up. A million dollar idea. What is it? Oh, wouldn't you like to know? You are crazy, Mr. Fidget. Crazy like a fox. No, just crazy. You sell your house, but sneak back in and hide in the attic, then try to scare us away with ghost noises? But, but, but you were scared, right? Admit it. Sure, I was scared, but we're not go going to just leave because of a few voices. Oh, I was working on lots of other things. Uh, doors were going to open and close by themselves, spooky creaks and things that go bump in the night. It was going to be wonderful. Why don't you just get a new place? You sold this house, so you must have money. Yeah, no, my dear, the bank has money. I'm flat busted. Well, you can't stay here. What, what, what do you mean? It's our house. Well, technically, but I have important work to do. We do, too. My dad just started his new job, and I start a new school in a few days. And it's Christmas. So, I'm sorry, Mr. Fidget. But you need to leave. You, you can't. I'll be, I'll be on the street. Well, you can't stay in our attic. I'm sorry, but... but, but wait, 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 wait. Uh, I invoke the spirit of Christmas. You what? I invoke the spirit of Christmas. At this uh, festive time of year, no one who invokes it can be turned out into the street. It's the law. No, it's not. Well, now, how do you know? Didn't you just say you're new in town? Well, um... Mm-hmm. I've got you. I invoke the spirit of Christmas, and there's nothing you can do about it. So there. Well, I'm going to ask Miss Page about it at the library. You do that, little girl. I will!
things have gotten pretty interesting for Lynn in her new house. You'll remember that she discovered Mr. Fidget, the house's former owner, hiding in the attic. But when she tried to get him to leave, he invoked the spirit of Christmas to stop her. Now, Lynn has as much Christmas spirit as anyone, but she never heard of it being used as a rule before. So she went to the one person she knew in town who could help. Back again, I see. You don't have much time. The library closes in just a few minutes. That's okay. I don't need much time. I just have a question about the local laws. Oh, that's not our purview. You'll want the law library over at the courthouse. They're open Monday through Friday, 10 to 4. I just have one quick question. I'm not supposed to give out legal advice. I don't want to send anyone to jail or sue them. At least I don't think I do. It's just a situation has come up at home. You'd be interested in this anyway. Oh? Yes. It turns out Mr. Fidget, the former owner of my house, he didn't leave town after all. What? Yeah. He's still in the house. I found him hiding in the attic. Well, that's... uh, Are you sure? Positive. I talked to him and everything. He's been using some of his Halloween sound effects to make me think the house was haunted. Turns out there is no ghost. Well, this is very disturbing news. I wonder what would compel Cornelius to do that. I don't know, but I have a bigger problem. He's invoked the spirit of Christmas. He's what? He's invoked the spirit of Christmas. That's what he said. He said it was against the law to turn someone out on the street at Christmas time. And that's my question. You want to know if such a law exists? Yes. No. No, it doesn't. You're sure? Yes. I helped one of our local newspaper reporters write a story about unusual laws last year. If that law existed, we would surely have found it. All right. Then I'm calling Dad, and he'll call the police. Oh. Yes, that's certainly your right. But before you do... I think you should take a moment and think this over. Why do I need to do that? This guy's trespassing. Yes. But he's also, well, homeless. So what? So are we, practically. We're in this big, drafty house, and our stuff hasn't arrived yet, so I'm sleeping on a pile of blankets! Blankets! And then I found out, find out this old guy is in my bedroom trying to scare us out of our wits? I mean, I didn't want to move here to begin with. I just wanted, I just wanted things to stay the same, but nothing's been, nothing's been the same since my mom died. Forgive me, but your mother passed recently? Two years ago. And your father moved you here for a fresh start, yes? Yeah, he said the old apartment was kind of full of her. He was sad there all the time. I guess I was too. I remember when my mother passed. It was like a hole in my heart. Did it ever heal? No, it never really does. But the hole gets smaller and you get used to it being there. And by and by, I realized my mother would have wanted me to go on living. We who are left behind must honor those that pass away. For me, that meant continuing my schooling and becoming a librarian. (laughs) My mother was a librarian herself, you see. Oh, I guess I never thought of that. 
Thought of what? Of what my mother would want me to do. I was too busy missing her to think about what she would want. Well, what do you think she'd say about your current situation? You mean about the ghost? I mean, Mr. Fidget? Yes. Well, pretty sure Mom wouldn't like him hanging out in her attic. <laughs> A fair point. But I also know Mom would want me to help him. She was always helping people, and it would be pretty mean kicking him out right before Christmas. Indeed. What do you think I should do? I think you should go tell your father, and then before you go home, I think you should bring him here to the library. I have an idea that might help. Lynn felt much better talking to Ms. Page. So she walked down to her dad's new job and met him just as he was punching out. On their way home, she told him everything and made a quick stop at the library to talk things through with her new friend, during which they hatched an ingenious plan. It's an hour later now, and Lynn is back in the house, standing before the tiny door that leads up to the attic, and she looks very resolute. Mr. Fidget? Mr. Fidget, are you there? I know what you're going to say, and I invoke the spirit of Christmas. Yeah, there's no such law. Well, now, how do you know? You're new in town. I asked Miss Page at the library. She said there was no such law in the books. No, you, you know Miss Page? No, peppermint sticks, then you know the whole story. I know you're an inventor, and you had to give up this house. Yes, yes, that's true. And I also know you used to go all out on all out and decorate for decorate it for Halloween, and all the kids in town loved it. And you gave out full sized candy bars. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I love Halloween and Christmas and all the holidays. Were you really in a Halloween book? Oh, of course. Just a slim little self-published volume, but they took plenty of pictures. They said my house was the best haunt within 50 miles. Wow. Mind you, I took it all down on All Saints Day and went to work decorating for Christmas right away. Ah, tree on each floor, computerized light display outside, robo-reindeer. Oh, that reminds me. Miss Page gave me some legal advice concerning you. She did. She's not supposed to do that. It involves the spirit of Christmas. Oh. I am invoking subset B. You're invoking what? I am invoking subset B of the spirit of Christmas, which says that if anyone is in real need, you must help. Really? You mean you're not going to throw me out? I'm going to invite you to dinner. You probably haven't had much to eat for a while, have you? Oh, it's, it's true. I won't deny it. Being stuck up here in the attic, I had to eat with whatever I had with me, and luckily I had a whole case of Ritz crackers. And can I tell you something? What? I am really sick of Ritz crackers. Well, we don't have much yet, but there's a pizza downstairs. Sold. So Mr. Fidget and Lynn went down to the living room where he sheepishly introduced himself to Lynn's dad, who was understandably annoyed at the little man, but agreed to let him stay for dinner. 
It was there over pepperoni on paper plates that Lynn and her father got Mr. Fidget's whole story. How he struggled to come up with a successful invention. How hard he'd work on keeping his house festive at every time of the year. And how he eventually decided to hatch the harebrained scheme of hiding in the attic and trying to scare away the house's new owners. That was pretty harebrained, you know. I, I know. I, or at least I can see it now. I ought to send you to jail. Dad, the spirit of Christmas. But I'm not going to, because as my daughter points out, it's Christmas. Well, that's, that's certainly very kind of you. And I admit you'd be well within your rights to put me away. You can stay a little while, but you have to find a place of your own eventually. Yes, yes, I know. What is it, sweetie? We have a ton of extra bedrooms. No, 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 young lady. I couldn't impose. Not not after everything I've done. Besides, if I'm to continue my work, I, I need some room to spread out in. You mean like that shed in the garden? Well, yes. I always meant to do something with that shed. It'd make a good workshop. That it would. Or an apartment. Come again? Well, I noticed you wired that place up all to code, and there's room above the joists for sleeping quarters. Dad, you're speaking carpenter again. Oh, is, is that what you do? Uh, yeah, I, I just got on at the mill. I could insulate that shed, you know. Wouldn't even take that long. And with proper insulation, that wood stove would provide more than enough heat. All we'd have to do is plumb the place, add a little bathroom with a shower... I could do all that work in a few weekends. You, you, you do all that for me? I would. Well, thank you, but if I may, why? Well, truth be told, I have a few inventions myself that I, I'd like help developing. Ah, my boy, now you're speaking my language. Uh, but before I can agree to such an arrangement, I feel I owe you an apology, Lynn. You do? Yes. My scheme to scare you away was silly and stupid, and it cost you a couple nights sleep. And as such, I owe you a debt. I shall design and build you whatever you want. Oh, I don't think that's necessary. No, no, no. I won't hear of it. Tell me, young lady, what would you do you like to do? Well, I always kind of wanted to get into music. How about a recording studio in one of the spare bedrooms? Sure. But won't that be a lot of work? Oh, that kind of work is fun. And besides, we can plan it all out over Christmas. Plan it where? We still don't have our stuff. <laughs> hey, look what's out in the drive. Moving truck. Right on time, too. And so, finally, Lynn and Doug could move in properly. And with Mr. Fidget's help, they had the place properly decorated for Christmas in no time. And by and by, Mr. Fidget did indeed move into the newly remodeled shed, which they now call the cabin. And Lynn... did get her very own recording studio. And eventually they became a family. A different sort of family, but a family just the same. And at every holiday of the year, Christmas included, 424 7th Street was the best decorated house in town. The end. This has been A Ghost for Christmas. A holiday offering by the Icebox Radio Theater. Our stars were Linnea Yunt as Lynn, 
Jim Yunt as Doug, Diane Adams played Ms. Page, and Jeffrey Adams was Mr. Fidget and the narrator. Live sound effects created by Foley artists Katie Nelson and Evie Konat. The play was written and directed by Jeffrey Adams. Sound by Jeff McCard. Recorded live at Bacchus Community Center International Falls on December 5th, 2020. This program created as part of the Bacchus Performing Arts Series. Learn more at bacchusab.org. And learn more about the Icebox Radio Theater at iceboxradio.org. Okay, it's starting to get serious here on the 12 Plays of Christmas because we are down to number two in our countdown. And it's a very special play to me because it was the first, the first time we actually ever performed before a live audience. The year was 2004, and uh, we had done to that point, I think, five radio plays on a local radio station. So we were live when we did those plays, uh, but the uh, the audience obviously wasn't present. And a local church asked us to provide the entertainment for their uh, for their Christmas dinner that year, and we said, "Sure, sounds wonderful." And uh, we put together an edition of a Christmas Carol, which has a wonderful cast of people, almost none of whom are still involved in the theater, and starring. Uh, I should feature this name above all others: Neil Smith, who is actually the first voice to ever appear on the theater, and sadly passed away a few years ago. So it's. Uh, it's wonderful. It's also a little bittersweet for me to hear this recording. Uh, but the play, I haven't mentioned the play, have I? It is, of course, the Christmas classic, A Christmas Carol. It was performed on uh, December, I believe, 12th of 2004. We're going way back now at the Evangelical Covenant Church in International Falls. And it's number two on our countdown. Here, then, is Neil Smith as Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Yet Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name on off the store. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck that generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. Four pounds, sixpence. Once upon a time, without the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. The clerk put on his white scarf and tried to warm himself at his candle, in which effort, not being a man of a strong imagination, he failed. (laughs) 
Afternoon, Bob, and a Merry Christmas to you. Good afternoon, sir. The same to you and your lovely wife. Is the oyster in? Aha! The visitor on the most unforgiving of afternoons was Scrooge's nephew, a chap as bright as Scrooge was dim. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. Christmas. <laughs> bah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I am sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. What right have you to be dismal? You're rich enough. Bah, humbug. Come, don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle. Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time as a good time, the only time I know of when men and women open their shirt up hearts freely and think of people below them as fellow passengers to the grave and on another race bound on a different journey. And therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Hear, hear. Let me hear another sound from you, Mr. Cratchit, and you keep your Christmas by losing your situation. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. <laughs> I'll see you in hell first. But why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because he fell in love. Good afternoon. You cannot say my marriage is what kept you from my door when you never came to see me before I married. Down with us tomorrow. Good afternoon. Very well. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute, but I have made this trial an homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to last. So Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. Oh, and there was one more thing. Mm-hmm. Happy New Year. Good afternoon. The clerk, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were elderly ladies, pleasant to behold, and now stood expectantly in Scrooge's office. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have we the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley died seven years ago this very night. Our sympathies, sir. We have no doubt Mr. Marley's liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. His liberality and mine were virtually identical. You may leave now. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and the destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. Still, though, I wish I could say they were not. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful purpose. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because Christmas is when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. 
Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. But, Mr. Scrooge... This is none of my business. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with others. Good afternoon. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, the ladies withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself. The fog in darkness outside thickened, and the cold became intense. At length, the hour of trotting up Scrooge's counting house arrived. Scrooge lived in a gloomy house set so far from the street that one could scarcely have fancied it must have run there when it was a young house and forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, though, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. All the whoosh for Scrooge, who, without any fancy or imagination inside his grizzled old head, was utterly without explanation for what he was about to see. Cold. Home. And locked doors. <laughs> With a Merry Christmas safely outside. <laughs> What's that? The knocker. Scrooge. Marley? Scrooge. Marley? <laughs> bah. Is, is anybody there? Uh... Nobody under the table. Uh, the bed, nobody. Uh, fire is, yes, fire is lit. Dressing gown here on the hook where it always is. Uh, stupid old man. Humbug. Uh, just sit by the fire. You didn't see anything. You didn't hear anything. What's that? Not that servant's bell. Surely it hasn't been connected to anything in years. Ha! My ears! My ears! No! That sounds as if it's coming from the basement. The door? Locked? Yes, it, it can't get in. It can't get in. It can't. <sighs> Scrooge, it can't. I say, I, it can't, I say. Scrooge. Oh. Oh. I know him. It is Marley's ghost. And it was Marley. Marley in his pigtail, waistcoat, tights and boots. There was an immense chain clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, 
and heavy purses wrapped in steel. Uh, uh, how now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Uh, who were you then? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Uh, humbug. You don't believe in me. I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Uh, because a little thing affects them. A, a slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. <laughs> There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Ah! Ah! Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do. That is to say, I, I think I... Ah! Ah! I do, I, I do, I do, I do believe in you. I must. But why do spirits walk the earth? Why have they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life as I did not, it is condemned to do so after death. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, yard by yard. Is its pattern strange to you? It is the strangest thing I've ever beheld. Would you know the weight and the length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago, and you have labored on it since. Yours, Scrooge, is a ponderous chain. Oh, Jacob, Jacob Marley, speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. Comfort comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and now weary journeys lie before me. But, Jacob, it can't be as bad as that. You were always a good man of business. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Oh! At this time of the rolling year, I suffer most. Why did I walk through the crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor heart to which its light would have conducted me? Is there anything I can do, Jacob? Hear me. My time is nearly gone. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. You were always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Oh, uh, well, oh. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path that I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over with? Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. 
And for your own sake, remember what has passed between us. But Jacob, remember. As Scrooge watched, the spectre tied a large band-aid, as wispy and transparent as the rest of him, around his head in such a way as to clap his jaw shut tight. Then it walked backward from Scrooge, and at every step it took, the window at the far end of the room raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. What's that, Jacob? You want me to come closer? Scrooge approached, terrible, terror visible in his every member. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge became suddenly and horribly aware of confused noises in the air outside the window. Marley, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out of the window upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge, his curiosity getting the better of him, followed to the window and looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost, and the misery with them all was, clearly, that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power to do so forever. Gone. Impossible. Bah, humbug. I'll get the bed curtains. There. Perfectly safe. Dull conversation, anyway. One, one, the bell tolls once. The spirit. Jacob had said it would appear at one. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing, of course. Humbug, that's all it is. The curtains. The curtains. Something is out there. And while Scrooge watched, the curtains of his bed were drawn aside by a hand. Scrooge found himself face to face with a strange figure, like a child or moreover, like an old man who had been diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Who and and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. Well, be that as it may, what business have you here? Your welfare. I'm much obliged, but I... I cannot help thinking, but that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conducive to my welfare. Your reclamation, then. Take heed, rise, and walk with me. 
The spirit reached out and took Scrooge by the arm. The grass, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. Where are we going? Out the window, of course. Oh, but I am mortal and liable to fall. Bear, but I touch my hand there on your heart. <sighs> and you should be upheld in more than this. As these words were spoken, they passed out the window of Scrooge's bedchamber and stood in a tiny schoolroom. It was a winter's afternoon, cold and snowy outside. Inside the room, there sat a solitary boy. Do you recognize him? Yes. Yes, I do. You, as a young boy, you were lonely. I had my books. Indeed. You once loved Alibaba and Robinson Crusoe. I loved them all, or did. You spent many Christmases here, at school. Not by choice, Spirit. My father, uh, my father and I didn't get along. Let us see another Christmas. Upon that very moment and memory, Scrooge discovered the scene melting away before him yet again. They were now in the busy thoroughfares of the city. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door. Do you know this place? <laughs> no, I was apprenticed here. It is, it's old Fezziwig's, and there he is, bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer. Dick, no more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have this all cleared away before a man can say Jack Robinson. Clear away? There was nothing that couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute, transforming the warehouse into one vast house, seemingly made for dancing. <laughs> Presently, all the people associated with Fezwig's business came in, each carrying a jug of wine or platter of the most delectable food, until that large table reserved for that purpose had accepted them all, forming a pile quite as high as Scrooge's head. And after all had eaten and drunk to their heart's content, they commenced to dance. During the whole of this time, Scrooge acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene. He, it was not until the guests had retired and the bright faces of his former self and Dick returned from them that she remembered the ghost. A small man to date these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? Why is it not? He is spent by a few pounds of your moral money. Three more, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, Spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome. The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. Uh, What's the matter? Nothing. Something, I think. No. I should like to be able to say a word or two to my own clerk just now, that's all. My time grows short. Quickly. The scene changed and once again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of his life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of latter years, but had begun to wear the signs of care and nervous. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye which showed the passion that had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. Do you know where we are? Yes. Scrooge was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a morning dress in whose eyes there were tears.
It matters little, to you very little. Another idol has displaced me. What idol has displaced you? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condone with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. I am not changed towards you, am I? You have changed in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? I thought so. I release you, Ebenezer. I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. Go after her, you fool. Go after her. David, show me no more. Take me from this place. I told you. These were the shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are. It's not my fault, but yours. Remove me. I cannot bear it. What? This is what? My bedchamber. Spirit? Nobody. It was a dream. That's what it was, a dream. One. The clock tolls one again. That's impossible. It had just struck one when the ghost arrived. Have I slept through the day and into the night? Is it one in the afternoon and something has happened to the sun? Light. Light. Shining from the room next door. Perhaps if I just stayed in bed. Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, dear. Ebenezer Scrooge, come forth. Oh, merciful heaven. Scrooge opened the door and found the room next to his own was transformed. The walls and ceiling were hung with living green. Crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered everywhere and heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, bells of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelve cakes, and seething bowls of punch. In easy state upon his couch, there sat a jolly giant. Ho, 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 Who was glorious to see. He bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn and held it up high up to shed its light upon Scrooge. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. It's been many a Christmas since you've seen my kind, but I dare say you'll have a difficult job ignoring me, eh? <laughs> Indeed, I won't deny it, spirit. I went forth last night on compulsion and learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. In an instant, the splendid room vanished and Scrooge found himself on the city streets on a clear snowy morning. 
all around him from the happy faces of the people to the brilliantly decorated shops to the very air that seemed to hang upon the scene like a palatable glow, it was obvious even to Scrooge that it was Christmas time. Presently, he and the ghost came to a rundown that was yet still habitable section of the city and slipped as if made of mist through the door of a house into the bleak, cramped rooms beyond. Do you not even know this place, Scrooge? I should say not. Mother, we've been outside the baker's. The goose, we smelled it. Calm down, my dears. What has ever got your precious father then? And your brother, Tiny Tim? Here, Mother, they're coming now. Here, loves. Father. Cratchit, this is his house? Of course. Would you expect a mansion on his salary? Let me set Tiny Tim by the fire. That child, is it Cratchit's? Of course. It must be ill. The breath of life in him is very weak. So how was he? As good as gold and better. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Oh, you must be freezing. Here, there's punch above the fire. An excellent idea. A toast. Gather round, my dears. There. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) Spirit, tell me, will the small boy live? I see a vacant seat in the chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Oh, spirit. Mr. Scrooge. Hmm? I give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. Bob Cratchit. My dear? The founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. My dear, the children. Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I'm sure, on which one drinks to the health of an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man is Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. No one knows it better than you do. My dear, Christmas Day. I'll drink to his health for your sake and the day's, but not for his. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. To Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge. My Uncle Scrooge. What? What? Where are we? It would be a man such as you that would not know the house of his own kin. Look, Scrooge, your nephew stands before you. He said that Christmas was a humbug. As I live, he believed it too. More shame for him, Fred. Your niece? By marriage, yes. He's a comical old fellow, that's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it, and he hasn't the satisfaction of thinking that he's ever going to benefit us with it. Well, I have no patience with him. Oh, who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come down with us. What's the consequence? He doesn't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Whatever his reasons... I'm sure Uncle Scrooge wouldn't want us carrying on about him, 
behind his back, Fred. Let's have a game! And the games begin, which is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. There was blind man's bluff and forfeits, and how, when, and where, and Scrooge himself fell to playing the games, though his voice made no sound in the reveller's ears. He sometimes came out with his guest quite loud, and very often guessed quite right. You are enjoying the party? I don't, I don't know when I've had such a good time. We must depart. Oh, no, 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 look, just one more game, they're starting yes and no. You start, Fred. Very well. Ah, I've got one. Is it an animal? Yes. A large one. No, not very big, very fierce. Now, Fred, yes or no answers only, please. Your pardon, my love. Is it a bear? No. Does it have big teeth? Yes. And you said it was fierce. Oh, yes. Does it grow? Like anything. Does it live in London? Yes. I know, I know. What? It's Uncle Scrooge. (laughs) (laughs) Foul, I say foul. What is it, Topper? You said it wasn't a bear. (laughs) A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man. Whatever he is, he wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. Scrooge had imperceptibly come so gay and light of heart that he would have thanked the company in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in an instant. And he and the spirit were again upon their travels. They stood beside sick beds and the sick were cheerful on foreign lands and they were close at home by struggling men and they were patient in their greater hope by poverty and it was rich. In every house the spirit left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, for while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. A spirit's lives so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight at midnight. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, but I see something strange down around your feet. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw for the flesh there is upon it. Look here, Scrooge. The spirit revealed two children, a boy and a girl clinging to his feet. Where graceful youth should have filled their features, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them. Where angels might have sat and thrown, devils lurked and glared out menacing. Spirit? Are they yours? They are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware them both and all of their degree. But most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Have they no refuge or resource? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Spirit! Spirit, come back! Home again. My bedchamber again. Jacob said there would be... There would be... There are three! Before Scrooge stood a great figure. It was shrouded in deep black garment, which concealed everything save one outstretched hand as thin and as white as bone. It towered above Scrooge and approached him like mist rolling across the water. Scrooge. 
I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You are about to show me the shadows of things that have not happened but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, Spirit? Will you not speak to me? Lead on then, Spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come, and Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up and carried him along. Presently they came to an obscure part of the town, to a low-browed beetling shop where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were bought and sold. Sitting in among the wares by a charcoal stove made of old bricks was a grey-haired rascal, nearly seventy years of age. Scrooge and the phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. She had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too. <laughs> <laughs> what odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? Every person has the right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. No one more so. Spirit, why have you brought me to this place? I, I fail to understand. I see the rags they're holding, but what impact do they have on me? Undo my bundle first, Joe. Right then. What do you call this? Bed curtains? A course, bed curtains. You don't mean to tell them you took them down rings and all with them lying there. Yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make your fortune. Look, she got his blankets, too. <laughs> I certainly shan't hold back my hand for the sake of such a man as he was. Oh, and that shirt you're holding. You may look through it till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it. It's the best he had. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? Why, burying him in it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Spirit, forgive me, but I don't understand. These people and their strange commerce are foreign to me. Can you clarify what it is you're trying to say? Oh, merciful heaven. What is this? Scrooge recoiled in terror, but the scene had changed, and now he found himself before bed, a bare, uncurtained bed on which, beneath the ragged sheet, there lay something which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. Spirit, what is this? Who is this? You point to the head. I understand, Spirit. You want me to pull back the sheet, but... But you must answer me my question first. Still, the spirit pointed at the head. A cat was tearing at the door and there was a sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone. What they wanted in the room of death and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me. Let us go. No. I understand you. You want me to pull back the sheet and look upon the mad man who lies here on this table. I would do it if I could, but I have not the power. Spirit, I have not the power. No. Oh, please, Spirit. If there is any person in this town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, Show that person to me, spirit, I beseech you. The spirit seemed to contemplate Scrooge for a moment, then spread its dark robe like a wing. And withdrawing it, 
revealed the room by daylight, where Mother and her children were. That'll be your father, then. Hello, loves. <clears throat> Here, sit by the fire. Is the news good or bad? There is hope yet, Caroline. How can there be hope unless that miserly old skin flint has relented? Has has such a miracle happened? He is past relenting. He is dead. <gasps> dead? Last night, when I tried to go see him to obtain a week's delay, what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know, but before that time we shall be ready with the money, and even if we are not, it would be bad fortune indeed to find so merciless a creditor in his successor. We may sleep tonight with light hearts, Caroline. Glad hearts. Hmm. It was obvious to Scrooge that for everyone in the room, a burden had been lifted. The children's faces, hushed and clustered round to hear what they so little understood, were brighter, and it was a happier house for this man's death. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I do not know how. Tell me, who was that man we saw lying dead? The the churchyard. The spirit pointed down to one headstone. Scrooge advanced towards it, trembling. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they shadow of things that may be only? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, it's true, but if those courses be changed, departed from, the ends will change, will they not? (sighs) The stone, yes. The name upon it. The name. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. No, spirit. Oh, no, no, spirit. Hear me. I am not the man I once was. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Oh, good spirit. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all a year. I will live in the past and the present and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. Spirit, I pray to Almighty God, help. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, Scrooge saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. What?
the bed. The bed. My bed! The curtains, they're torn, that torn down. Oh, Jacob Marley, <laughs> heaven in the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. Oh, cold. <laughs> oh, much too cold to kneel. Why did I ever, not ever put a decent fire in this place? Oh, no matter, it's morning. I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. Ah, Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to all the world. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. Wait. The church bells. Could it, could it be? Oh, glorious day. Sunshine, snow and all. Hello, you there. Hey. What's today, my fine fellow? Today, White Christmas Day. Christmas Day? I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Ha, do you know the polters in the next street by the corner? I should hope I did. Oh, an intelligent boy, a remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there, the big one? What, the one as big as me? Oh, delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. Is it? Go and buy it. Go on. No, 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 no. No, I'm earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here. Uh, I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's. That's what I'll do. He shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. <laughs> oh, come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. Yes. The boy was off like a shot and back again, with the polter turkey and all in tow. Scrooge paid for the turkey and remunerated the boy, and paid for a cab to have the turkey delivered, with such a look of utter delight on his face, that the polter, to whom Scrooge was well known, could scarcely believe his eyes. Then Scrooge retired to his apartment where he shaved, as best he could while dancing, and dressed in his finest. Within minutes, he was out upon the cheery, snowy streets of Yuletide, London, giving a call of Merry Christmas to everyone he met. Merry Christmas! He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro. He patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk that anything could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times, before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash and did it. Uncle Scrooge? Uncle Scrooge! <laughs> I've come, I've come to dinner, my boy, if you'll have me. I, I don't know what to say, Uncle. <laughs> then say Merry Christmas, Fred. And my dear... Yes, Uncle Scrooge? To you I must apologize. I have been no sort of kin toward you, nor have I been fair. Marriage is a wonderful thing. And you, my dear, were the best thing ever to happen to Fred. Oh, Uncle Scrooge. Are you feeling well, Uncle? I am now, my dears, I am now. Scrooge was at home in five minutes. 
They ate the meal from soup through to pudding, with the crusty old character glow throughout. But before his niece and nephew could entreat him to stay, Scrooge was off. By now the sun had slipped below the rooftops, and Scrooge had but one errand left in his day. I'm not sure it's right, Bob. I know, my dear, but what were we to do? The largest turkey we've ever seen is delivered to our door, packed up and paid for? Am I to turn it back into the street? I know, Bob, I know. It's just I've had a feeling all day. Powerful forces are at work. Is it nearly roasted, Mum? It smells so good. Give it time, my dears. A bird that size was never meant for our oven. Bob Cratchit? Blimey, it's Mr. Scrooge. Bob Cratchit, open this door this instant. Go into the kitchen, children. Is anything wrong, Mum? Oh, everything's fine. And take Tiny Tim with you, too. I'm waiting, Mr. Cratchit. Uh, um, uh, y- yes, sir. Just a moment, sir. Mr. Scrooge, what a pleasant surprise. It is neither a surprise nor pleasant, Mr. Cratchit, that I find you here fully eight hours after you were there's, expected. Th- th- there's, there's been a mistake, sir. I was to have the, the full th- day. Yes, I know. I have changed my mind, Mr. Cratchit. I changed it some time ago. Now you see here... Darling, you... no. I cannot allow things to continue as they have been, Mr. Cratchit. Therefore, I have no choice. Please, sir, Mr. Scrooge. No choice but to raise your salary. I've been waiting to give you a piece of my mind, you flint-hearted old miser, and I'm finally in a position to do it. You, Mr. Scrooge, are the mo- Why are you both smiling? Bob, are you all right? I think I'm going to faint. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Bob! Mr. Scrooge? And you too, Mrs. Cratchit. <sighs> You've got the turkey, I see. From you. From me. I am going to faint. Now, Bob, I've not made a merry Christmas for you in many a year, I know that. But I'll make amends, starting with that bird in there. Take the day, Bob, and tomorrow besides. But the next, the first thing I want you to do is buy a new stove for your office and a coal bin to go with it, and then we shall talk about your salary. Thank you, sir. Mrs. Cratchit? Mr. Scrooge? This is for you. Bob, they're gold sovereigns. And if you look, my good woman, there is also the name of the best physician in Whitechapel. I've already spoken to him about your tiny Tim, and he wants to see you both first thing in the morning. Mr. Scrooge, I don't know how to thank you. Don't. I am merely keeping with the season. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more, and to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city ever knew. Some people laughed to see this alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them. Indeed, his own heart laughed. And that was quite enough for him. He had no further dealings with spirits, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.
Let's all of us stand and uh, if you're able, let's sing together Joy to the World. Thank you so much, Icebox Radio Theater. Thank you so much, Jeff, producer. And when I get big, I hope I have a voice like Neil Smith. Wow, I'd love to sound like him. The Icebox Radio Theater's A Christmas Carol was performed at the Evangelical Covenant Church in International Falls, Minnesota, on December 6, 2004. It starred Neil Smith as Scrooge and Debbie Griffith as the narrator. Jim Hummel played Bob Cratchit, with Mary Hummel featured as Mrs. Cratchit, Amber Lyon as the young Cratchit girl, and Marco Griffith as both the young Cratchit boy and Tiny Tim. The ghosts were played by Jeremy Faith as Jacob Marley, Rachel Adams as Christmas Past, Daniel Ducharme as Christmas Present, and Jeffrey Adams as Christmas Future. Shane Dixon played Scrooge's nephew and Scrooge as a young fool, while Felicia Schmutz portrayed Scrooge's niece and Belle. The two ladies of charity were Crystal Clance and Linda Faith. The revelers at the nephew's party were Crystal Clance, Bruce Monroe, Jonathan Doe, and Amber Lyon. Old Joe of the beetling shop was Jeremy Faith, and the two scavenger women were Linda Faith and Crystal Clance. Old Fezziwig was Jeffrey Adams, and Marco Griffith played the turkey boy. The special message was delivered by Pastor Al Johnson of the International Falls Covenant Church. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens was adapted for radio by Jeffrey Adams. The sound mixer was Stephen Adams. Diane Adams was in charge of pre-recorded sound effects. Live sound effects were created by Amber Lyon, Shane Dixon, Bruce Monroe, Jonathan Doe, Rachel Adams, Marco Griffith, Jim Hummel, and Mary Hummel. This play is copyright 2004 by the Icebox Radio Theater, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information, visit our website at www.icebox.storiesonmp3.com. This is Jeffrey Adams speaking. Okay, thank you so much for staying with us. We have reached the end. That's right, we've reached number one on the 12 Plays of Christmas Countdown. And I can't think of a more deserving show than this one. From December of 2014, this is Season of the Elf, starring John Bell and Beth Nelson, Rebecca Salo and Gavia Yunt. This play ticks so many boxes for an IBRT show where we have a Northland setting and we have something mystical and wonderful, and we have family as kind of the backbone of the whole thing. Uh, I think this show came out well. I think it's a, it's an original play. I haven't heard anything like it, and I'm proud to present it to you now on the 12 Plays of Christmas as the number one Christmas show in the history of the theater. Here, then, is John Bell starring in Season of the Elf. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. Season of the Elf Christmas, a time of light and happiness. It is a time for family and a time to feast. It is, for most, the very soul of all that is good. But it's also important to remember that Christmas comes at the darkest time of the year, and the light of your candles is all that stands between your happiest of celebrations, and the still, cold hibernation of the frozen world outside your frosted windowpane. 
On a large farm hugging the shores of a wide river, there sits a farmhouse. It is old, worn down, yet somehow loved. Snow covers the fields all around. The river, a quarter mile wide in some places, has shrunk to a mere rushing stream for the ice that spreads from each shore. And the house itself, its elderly roof pushing back against the wind, a tendril of smoke rising from its crumbling chimney, sits as if waiting, waiting for someone to come and warm it once again. It is Christmas time, but one old man sits alone in the house, dozing as a half-read book sags in his lap. Then he awakes with a start. What? What? At the sound of a car coming up the drive. Oh, fell asleep. Oh, my. Oh, my. Hold on. Hello? Just a second. Hello, Uncle Tom? Just a... Just a second, I'm coming. Yes? Uncle Tom, it's me, Kristen. Of course, of course. Can we come in? Uh, come in, come in. Twenty below outside. Thank you so much. The heater's out in the car. We're all frozen. Heater's out? Get in here, girl. Oh, thank you. Get in by the fire. <sighs> now, what's your name? I'm Sarah. That's your ma there? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Then who are you? I'm Rachel, Uncle Tom. Who? I said I'm Rachel. I can hear. You just mumble, child. I've met you before. At Barb and Peter's wedding. She was all of six then. Let's get these boots off. Make sure you don't have any frostbite. Oh, I'm sure there's no threat of that. Twenty below out. There's always a threat of frostbite. Uncle Tom, I know we came here unannounced, and I'm sorry for that, but I do have... This one's boots are about worn through. We'll need to get you some new ones. I just got these at the second hand in Mount Iron. Well, you need new ones. Uncle Tom, I do have... I like these boots. Need new ones. I say, I do have... Your sister there, she has a good pair. What are those, Doc Martens? Uh, yeah. Good boots, that company... How come they're pink? Uncle Tom. What? What? What is it? I... I have to... Well, now I'm all flustered. She had this whole speech she's been practicing all the way up here. Rachel. Well, you were, Mom. I'm sorry to come up here unannounced. Did you? Well, that was rude. I'm sorry. But your family, and it's Christmas time, so there's nothing we can do about it. Have you eaten? No. Sarah, please... Uncle Tom, I just... Uncle! Just call me Uncle. Everyone does. Even people not related to me. Okay. I know we haven't always been as close as family should be, but we need your help. I've got no money. No, no, I didn't mean... But I've got this house, and you're welcome to stay here all Christmas if you like. Oh, well... You girls hungry? Yes, I bake some cornbread for my supper. It's in there. Butter in the fridge, honey up in the pantry. Run along now, both of you. Okay. Um, thank you. That's all right. I should explain. Your mother called me last night, Kirsten. She told me you were coming. She did? I asked her not to do that. Well, this way I had fresh bread for the girls and two of the rooms made up hope they don't mind sharing. They've been sharing the back of a car for a week. I don't think they're going to mind. Good. 
Uncle, I've messed everything up. Hush. You're just off the road. You need to warm up and get some food in you. It's a bachelor's cooking, but it's hot. And there's coffee. Come on. Of course, and just uncle, please. That's four pieces for you, Sarah. It's good, and I haven't eaten since yesterday. It's all right, Kirsten. I have plenty, and what I have is all yours. In fact, I had a little proposition for you, ladies. What's a proposition? Wow, ignorant much, Rachel? What on earth does that mean, ignorant much? Nothing, Rachel. Please. No, no. I want to know. Are you calling your sister ignorant? Well, she is, isn't she? Let me ask you something. Which are you, Rachel? Yes. Let me ask you something, Rachel. You know how to milk a goat. What? How much hay to put out for the stock? What needs to be done to the soil before winter? Why would I know any of that? But you don't know it, do you? No. Then I could call you ignorant on account you don't know anything about farming. You're probably ignorant about fixing tractors and H.O. scale too. See, the thing about ignorance, girl, is that it doesn't mean much. It's not the same thing as being slow or stupid. It just means you haven't encountered the subject yet. Pick up a book and it's cured. You can learn anything. Like how to milk goats? Of course, your sister there's younger than you. Her ignorance reflects on you as much as it does on her. Yeah, you don't even know what he's talking about. I do so, and I'm not responsible for her. Oh, you aren't, eh? No, and nobody's responsible for me either. Is that so? Yeah, and while we're on the subject of ignorance, do you know anything about being homeless, Rachel? No, I don't suppose I do. I was born in this house, and I could always come back to it. Then you don't know anything about me, so don't judge. Well, I'll tell you, Kirsten, you got two crusty girls here. I'm really sorry, Uncle. I didn't. I like 'em. What? I'm pretty crusty myself, and I could use the company. Your mother and I were talking, girls. Would you honor me with your presence over the holidays? What? Christmas girl, will you stay in the house for Christmas? Whatever. Good. How about you, Mom? It's okay, honey. What's wrong with that one? We, uh, we kind of got kicked out of the last place we were in. He'd invited us for Christmas too. Who's that? Um, a friend from school. An ex-boyfriend. Rachel, please. Mom wouldn't. You know, so he kicked us to the curb. I like Justin. That was his name, was it? Justin, yeah. He said we'd get Christmas dinner and presents and everything. And you're afraid I'll make a bunch of promises and then kick you? How'd you say it? To the curb. I guess. Well, I don't know about this Justin, but I'm family, little girl. Family doesn't do that. But I do need to talk to you two girls about something. What? You two are welcome to play anywhere you like in the house. Just let me show you the layout before you play with that. What's a layout? 
H.O. scale model trains down in the basement. Been working on it for thirty years, so I want to show you the ropes before you play with it. A model train set? Yes, but let me show you the layout before you play with it, okay? Okay. Now, if you go outside, the barn is fine. In fact, I may ask your help with the goats. Goats? Miss Matilda and her five kids. Littlest still takes a bottle now and then. Wonderful. But if you do go outside, I have to warn you about something. What? My grandfather bought this farm from Old Einerson back in thirty-six, and he warned him at the time that the land was filled with berries and sprites from the old country. They'd come over with Einerson's folks a generation before. Berries? Spirits, little people that watch over the land and those who work it. My grandfather didn't put much stock in it at first, but he learned. He learned respect for them and what they were here for. So they're like ghosts? No, they're nothing to be afraid of. But you have to respect the land. No mischief in the barn. No tugging at the goats' ears or playing with matches in the orchard. No mischief. Are the fairies will get us? Don't laugh, girl. Trust me, I'm not. There is more to this world than just what you can see. It's just ignorant to think otherwise. Mom, do we need to do this? Rachel, please. How about you take me back to that mall in Brainerd? I can find enough to eat there, and I'm sure there's places to sleep. You are being ungrateful. I'm not ungrateful. I'm worried he's crazy, and he's going to kill us in our sleep. Rachel, go get my purse in the car. Mom, I just go now. Fine. I'm so sorry. That's all right. It's her age, and nature has a way of showing people what they need to see. So many crazy relatives. Mom never knows what she's doing. I'd be so much better off. Just can't get out of here. I should take the car. I can drive. I know I can. Whoa! Great! I'm soaked. What tripped me? Of course, one of those ridiculous garden gnomes. No wonder Uncle Tom thinks he's got fairies. He he probably sees these statues and forgot he put them up <clears throat> into the woods. Ugly. There, it won't trip anyone in there. What? 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 What is that? So, like to see that train set? Rachel, what's wrong? I'm that. Calm down, girl. You'll have a stroke. What's wrong? There's a creepy little man outside. Like, like tiny, way too small. Oh. Did he have a little red hat? Yes. And a white beard came right down to a point. Yeah, that's right. What is it? You know what you see there, Rachel. You've seen the tomty. The what? The tomty is called a tomty, and it's nothing to be messed with. I believe that. Wait a minute, Uncle. Are you saying? What are you saying? You really have elves living on this farm? He's not saying that, dear.、Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying, Uncle Tom. What? What's wrong? You shouldn't be teasing the girls this way. Um, excuse me, eyewitness over here. The girl saw what she saw, Kirsten. I'm sure there's a perfectly logical explanation. 
What happened right before you saw him? Nothing. Then what were you doing out there? I was sent to get Mom's purse. Remember? Where is it, by the way? I forgot it. Rachel. I forgot it because I got accosted by a scary little gnome. Tomty. Whatever. And you had to have done something. Why are you accusing me of stuff? Because a Tomty does not act unprovoked. I didn't provoke it. Can I ask a question? What? What's a Tomty? It's a mythical creature. That's what Uncle's saying, isn't it? The young one wants to hear what a Tomty is. Can I tell it without interruption? Yes, of course, but it is. Kirsten, let me tell it. They say that when Christianity first came to the old country, to Scandinavia, the people adapted their traditions to the new faith, like people do everywhere. And the Tomty was said to be where we got our idea of Santa Claus. Really? Smaller, of course, but with a white beard and pointy little shoes. Remember, before we came to think of him as a big man, Santa was called a right jolly old elf. Hey, yeah. Anyway, a Tomty is said to be the spirit of a farm's first owner. You work on a farm your whole life, taking care of the land and the animals. I guess you just can't stop after death. So it's a ghost? In the old country, they didn't think in terms of ghosts. They thought your spirit became something different after you died, like a little elf who protected the farm. Tomties will leave you alone for the most part, but if you misuse the land or the animals, he'll scold you, maybe even get up to mischief. Are they scary? Not really. Most of the time, you don't even know they're there. Most of the time. Why are you looking at me like that? Like I said, they don't appear unless you abuse the land. So you think I abused the land? You must have. I went to the car and I came back. Unless leaving footprints counts as abuse, I'm innocent. Suit yourself, but just to be on the safe side, I think there's something you should do. What? The Icebox Radio Podcast will be back right after this. Radio, Internet, iPod. There are many ways to listen to the Icebox Radio Theater. And now, for the collector in you, we'd like to add the mailbox to that list. Subscribe to the Icebox Radio Theater, and every month you'll receive a compact disc in the mail with our latest plays, songs, and skits in top-quality audio and without commercials. It's a great way to build a collection or introduce our unique brand of radio storytelling to someone who doesn't particularly enjoy computers. Know an old-time radio fan? Give an IBRT subscription as a gift to let them know the golden age of radio is on its way back. Become a member of the IBRT and receive a special discount on your subscription and one for a friend. Just visit iceboxradio.org and click on the store link for more information. The Icebox Radio Theater, bringing the Northland stories to you. Shoot, it happened again. Your iPod broke? No, it's working fine. I just lost another audio drama podcast. It seems like every time I get into a story, the show goes on hiatus. I guess I can't complain. Podcasters just produce these shows for fun, after all. Well, not all of them. There are people producing serious work in podcasting. I'm talking about real artists, like the Icebox Radio Theater. Oh, I've been meaning to try them. 
They use professional actors, professional writers, and they haven't missed an episode in five years. Do they charge for their podcasts? Oh, no way. The Icebox Radio Theater is a non-profit organization. They have membership drives, just like NPR. When I joined the IBRT, I got special members-only content on their website, commercial-free versions of all their plays, discounts on IBRT merchandise, and more. And I get to vote in theater elections and the annual Frosty Awards. So, kind of like a club. Oh, that's not all. Did you know that members have written, acted, and even done CD covers for the IBRT? We'll join the theater, and it's almost like you're part of the family. Well, I'll just start by listening. <laughs> or check it out on iceboxradio.org. There's a membership link right along the top. Well, if they promise to never miss an episode... They won't. Then I just might do that. What's the address again? Iceboxradio.org. But just to be on the safe side, I think there's something you should do. What? Do what now? Milk the goats. You've got to be kidding me. They're so cute. <laughs> yeah, they kind of are. The mama over there is Miss Matilda, and her kids are the twins, Odette and Odell, then Gunner, Ishmael, and finally Pete, the little runt in the corner. And we're supposed to milk them. Just Matilda, of course. Christmas is coming, and if the tomtie is about, we'll need to leave him a nice present, or there'll be heck to pay. They like goat's milk. They like a nice bowl of porridge with lots of butter. That's what the milk's for, making butter. This is ridiculous. He showed himself to you, so I figured you should do the milking. Come on over here. I know, girl. I'm coming. What What do I have to do? Here's the pail. Just get under there. Under there? I imagine you can tell what her teats are. Uh... All right. Grab hold and pull down gently while you squeeze. It takes a little practice. Ew, the warm. Warm-blooded. Definition of a mammal is the mothers make milk. I can't get anything to come out. Just keep trying. Try different things, but be gentle. Hey! There you go. That's got it. There's not very much coming out. Well, keep at it. Takes a while. I'm going to head back into the house. You girls take care of things. Wait, how much should I get? She'll tell you when she's done. What? Too cold out here for my old bones. I'm headed in. Wait a minute, Uncle. What am I... Keep milking. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, then. Be good. We will. cannot believe I'm doing this. That looks like fun. You want to try? Be my guest. <laughs> Why doesn't it work? You're doing it wrong. No, I'm not. Sarah, I think you're hurting her. What's wrong with her? She's not milking. You're being too rough. No, I'm not. <laughs> ah! Whoa, she moves fast. She hit me right on the knee with her stupid head. It's called butting, I believe, and serves you right. You're being too rough. Stupid goat. Sarah! Well, she hit me first. You can't hit the goat. You're being too rough with her. No, I wasn't. Sarah, look out! I hurt my leg. Are you hurt bad? Ow! Let me get you out. Let me. Wow! Help me! Sarah, look! What? You 
see it too? I don't want to be a farmer anymore. Is she okay? It's a bad knock, but I don't think anything's broken. She can wiggle her toes just fine. Should stay off it, though. I didn't do anything, I swear. I know. It was that heinous little dude. Can we go kill it? Hold on, hold on. Tell me what happened. Nothing. We weren't doing anything, and that thing attacked us. Rachel. For our own safety, we need to go get rid of it. Rachel, stop it. Let me ask you something. Did you believe in fairies before you came here? No. Do you believe in them now? Is that Tomty a fairy? No. Then no, I don't believe in fairies. My point is, you came in here knowing nothing about nothing, and never even heard about a Tomty before. And now you think you know how to get rid of one? What's your point? Maybe you should listen to someone older and wiser. Like you? Yes. We listened to you before, and things didn't work out so well. What sort of listening was that? Your sister slapped Matilda. He headbutted her. She. She headbutted her. And was it unprovoked? Yes. Uh-huh. I'm not lying. Oh, yes, you are. And you're very good at it. What? I said you're a very practiced liar. <laughs> what was that? Nothing. No, it was something. You don't like being called a liar? I don't like being accused of things I didn't do. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Maybe you and your sister have been accused of things in the past. Stealing? We don't steal. But you've been accused of it. You know, I rode the rails for a time back in the 50s. What do you mean, rode the rails? Bombed around, played hobo. I was homeless. Of course, in those days, there was a certain romance to that life, especially for a grown man on his own. I knew a couple of families on the road, though. For them, it didn't look romantic at all. couldn't imagine what it was like for you girls and your mom. It was this fast food place in Brainerd. Sarah was thirsty, so I found a cup in the garbage outside. I wiped it off and took it in for a refill. The manager yelled. The whole restaurant could hear. So you did try and steal. It wasn't stealing. So I paid for that cup, and they had free refills. All right, all right. Mom was really paranoid about the police. She was afraid if we got picked up for anything, even like littering, they'd find out we were homeless and split us up. Sounds like a reasonable fear. I guess. You're not afraid of being split up? Whatever happens, happens. Besides, I'm almost 16. Pretty tough, aren't you? I have to be. I can see that. So what's next? Chasing unicorns? What? Looking for the rabbit hole? I've got an old wardrobe in the barn. Maybe you should walk through it and see what happens. What are you talking about? You act tough, and I have no doubt that you are tough. But there's something you're forgetting about. What? You've seen the Tomty, a creature most folks wouldn't believe exists. I wouldn't have believed it existed myself until I saw it with my own eyes. You think you can just walk away from that? Are you saying we're trapped here? No, no, no. Leave whenever you like. But you have to remember what's happened to you, Rachel. You've been given a glimpse into another world. 
And that's a good thing, because your world was a pretty mean place until that Tomty showed himself. So? So do you really think you'll ever set your head down on a pillow again without thinking of him? There you'll be, in the back of the car, or maybe on a shelter mattress, trying to get to sleep. Maybe your belly not quite full, and your mind will go back to him, back to the little man in the pointed cap. And you'll wonder if there isn't more to life. You've been given a gift, Rachel. Most people in your lot dream of hitting the lottery. You'll dream of a whole different world. Again, so? So, while you're here, while your sister's leg heals, why don't you take advantage and learn everything you can about that world and the creatures that inhabit it? What if I don't want to? That's up to you. You don't need to listen to this old man's ramblings if you don't want to. But I think you're going to be here at least until your sister heals up. Besides, it's Christmas time. You can't have magic now. When can you? I'll think about it. I thought you might. Now it is Christmas Eve, and though there is only a few presents under the tree, Uncle has one special one for little Sarah. He's moved her to an easy chair right next to the fire, and just as we join the scene, Uncle hands her a box. Ooh! You like it? What is it? Is it a crown? Just so. Bet you recognize it, Kirsten. Is it... It's a Lucia Bride crown, isn't it? A what? A Lucia Bride crown. The crown of light. Don't you girls know the story of Santa Lucia? Was she a princess? Not exactly. She was a martyr. Rachel. So you do know. I read occasionally. (laughs) That's right. She was a martyr. What's a martyr? Someone who died for their faith. I don't understand. Well, there were difficult times for Christians in Rome in the first century when Santa Lucia lived. She believed in Jesus, and when she refused to marry a man who didn't, they put her to death. That's terrible. Yes, it is. Those were hard times. But some good came of it. When the missionaries brought the faith to Scandinavia, people there were so moved by the story of Santa Lucia's courage that she became known as the Lucia Bride. It was said she would appear early in the morning and bring food and drink to the poor while wearing a crown of light. This crown? No one like it. That crown has been in my family for generations. Candles are new, though. Do you actually light the candles when you wear it? Well, in the traditional Yule Fest you do, on the shortest night of the year, the daughter of the house would dress in all white, put on the crown of light, and bring coffee and rolls to all the grown-ups. I thought the tradition was the oldest daughter got the crown. It is, but I thought someone else could use a little cheering up. The storm's getting worse. Yep, I think it is. Come on, Rachel. Where? You and I are going to check on the goats. Perfect. Hush. Get your boots. Can we light the crown when you get back? No. Mom! I said no. You are not going around the house with a bad leg and a flaming crown on your head. Oh, no. And don't you start. I don't care if it is tradition. No, no, it's the barn. What? The barn doors are open. 
We tell those right outside the window. If she's up by the house, it's a good bet the others are loose, too. Get your coat, Kirsten. I should stay here with... I want to go. No, honey, you can't go out. I'll be careful. It's not safe, little one. I'll start looking in the woods. Be careful, and don't run up on them fast. I won't. They trust me. While the storm raged outside, Rachel, her mother, and uncle trooped out into the snow. And sure enough, Matilda and her five kids were scattered everywhere all over the farm. Soon, all three of the elder members of the family were outside of the farmhouse, and little Sarah sat by herself, looking out the window. From her window seat, she could just see the figures of her family carrying goats back to the barn. That's two? Three? I think that's all the... No, wait, there's one more. Oh no, they're heading back into the woods. It's going to be forever before they come back. That's right outside. It's Pete, oh poor little guy, and Mama and the others are way across the field. He sounds hurt. Okay? Little Sarah climbed carefully down from her window seat and struggled to get to the door. She grabbed one of her uncle's coats hanging there, which hung upon her like a cape. Okay? And headed out into the storm. Limping along in the snow as fast as she could go, Sarah went along the side of the house to the backyard, and there, tangled up in a wire fence, was the littlest goat, Pete. Oh, poor thing! Your leg's caught! If I could just reach down... Whoa! Sarah's one good leg slipped in the snow, and she fell into a heap. She wasn't hurt, but she couldn't see how to get up again. Well, I'm already soaked, so I might as well help you out. Here, your leg's caught in the wire. I'll... There! Oh, you're bleeding! We gotta get you inside. I just... I... Oh, I can't get up! Are you cold, too? The others will be back from the barn soon. We just need to hunker down. That's what Uncle says. Hunker down. Come on. Come in under the coat. There, see? Plenty of room for both of us. I'll just put it up over my head and we'll be okay. That's right, it's going to be okay. The snow continued to fall and pile up all around little Sarah and the littlest goat, Pete. But Uncle's massive coat acted somewhat like a tent, and as the snow piled up on top of them, it actually grew warm and cozy inside. This isn't too bad, is it, Pete? (laughs) I bet you want your mama. Well, they'll be back soon. I know they will. At that moment, three figures struggled across the field toward the farmhouse. Snowdrifts, some already two feet deep, slowed their progress to a crawl. You can't just give up. Rachel, please. It's all right. It's good she cares. But it was Petey, the littlest one. I know, I know. That's often the way it is on a farm. I'm sorry, Rachel, but we can't be out in this store much longer ourselves. But it's not fair. No, no, it isn't. But that's the way it is. Come on in the house now. Sarah! Watch the storm. If the wind lets up, we can go out again. I'm going out anyway. Now, Rachel. I just need to come in and warm up, and that's all. Once I can feel my toes again, I'm going back out. She's not here. What? Sarah, she's gone. Uh, Calm yourself. She's probably down playing with the train set. No, 
No, the lights in the basement are off. Uh, what about her room? I checked there first. She's gone, Uncle. Do you think she went outside? Why would she do that? She really wants to join the search, Mom. I suppose we need to... Hang on. What is it? My old pea coat always hangs on this nail. It's missing. Oh, we have to get back outside. Mom, calm down. Rachel? Hold on, both of you. Now, she couldn't have gone very far. We were outside for close to an hour. She's probably already frozen out there somewhere. Then we'll go back out. Didn't even take my boots off. Oh, would you come on, please? What in blazes? Did the power just go out? Don't know. The lights did, anyway. Oh, worry about it later. Come on. Can you see any footprints? Snow would have filled them in already. How are you supposed to find her? I don't know. Head toward the barn. Wait. We can't wait. We have to get... Just wait. The electrical took out all the lights in the house, except for the security light in back. That runs on a battery. So? Look, there's something out there. See that pile in the snow? Yeah. It wasn't there before. Come on. Do you think? Sarah. There, there. Pile just moved. Sarah? Mom? Was that? Get out from under there. Mom, I had to come outside. He was hurt. Oh, my gosh. I'm, you're safe. I had to. He was hurt. It's okay now. It's okay. He's hurt, you say? He got his leg caught in that fence. He's bleeding. Oh, so he is. A little scrape there is all. We should get him cleaned up, though. Rachel, you take Petey. Okay. And I will get you. I can walk. Snow's too deep. Come on now. Uncle carried little Sarah, and Rachel carried the little goat into the house where both were warmed by the fire, and the mischievous little goat had his wounds tended to. Hey, the lights. Why did they go out, I wonder? I don't. What? I don't wonder why they went out. It was the Tomty. What? The Tomty wanted to make sure we saw little Petey and Sarah. By taking out all the lights except the one on battery, he made sure we'd see her. That seems far-fetched. You want to explain why they just came back on by themselves? It's not that. It's just not like Tomty to do something nice. Well, they don't always scold you. Sometimes they reward. Sarah had done this little animal a kindness, and he rewarded her for it. Rewarded us all. Now that the power's back, we can be sure to thank him for it. What do you mean? We have to make a nice bowl of porridge for him, with plenty of butter. Come on, girls, let's get to the kitchen. The family went to the kitchen and set to cooking. Before long, a large pot of porridge was steaming on the stove. This butter churn is old, but it still works. This is all you have to do? Just move the stick up and down? Keep at it. It'll be butter soon enough. A little while later, with the lights of the Christmas tree lit... The four of them set the bowl of porridge, brimming with fresh butter, on the hearth. You just have to leave it there? He'll find it just fine. You did good, girls. Could Petey stay outside with us tonight? Of course. There's no way we could get him safely back to the barn in the storm. Yay! But he can't sleep with you. Aww. We'll set him up here by the fire. The next morning, Christmas morning... They all awoke to a blanket of new snow glistening in the brilliant winter sunshine. There weren't a lot of presents, of course, but that made what they did have mean that much more. This is beautiful. Did you make it yourself, Uncle? Here's some old watch pieces I soldered together and shined up. There's one for each of you. 
Makes a nice pin, don't you think? Cool, it's very steampunk. What on earth is steampunk? And there was plenty of food, for no one ever goes hungry on a farm. There was even a turkey in the oven, which filled the little farmhouse with delicious smells and gave the whole family a wonderful joy in just being there and being together. There was even a little bit of magic. Hey! What is it? The bowl we put that porridge in for the tomkey? Yes. There's some missing. Oh, I'm sure the goat's just been at it. Yeah, I'm sure that's it. That was the story of a wonderful Christmas. And Uncle found he liked living with family. And by New Year's Eve, everyone had decided they should stay together. The girls grew up strong and wise on the farm, and they learned that family was the strongest bond of all. And always, always, they respected the land and everything in it. And the Tomty never appeared to them again. That first Christmas on the farm was truly the season of the elf. The End This has been Season of the Elf from the Icebox Radio Theater. Your cast featured Rebecca Salo as Rachel, Gavia Yunt was Sarah, Beth Nelson was Kirsten, and John Bell played Uncle. The script was written and directed by Jeffrey Adams. Sound effects created and realized by Dave Irwin. John Bell appeared courtesy of his very funny podcast, Bells in the Batfree. Learn all about it at thebatfree.com. Season of the Elf is copyright 2014 by the Icebox Radio Theater. All rights reserved. For more information about new radio theater, visit iceboxradio.org.